Chapter 29 Thomas didn't stop until the voice had gone for good. It shocked him when he realized he'd been running for almost an hour. The shadows of the walls ran along toward the east, and soon the sun would set for the night and the doors would close. He had to get back. It only peripherally hit him then that without thinking he'd recognized the direction and the time, that his instincts were strong. He had to get back. But he didn't know if he could face her again. The voice in his head. The strange things she'd said. He had no choice. Denying the truth would solve nothing. And as bad, as weird, as the invasion of his mind had been, it beat another date with the grievers any day. As he ran toward the glade, he learned a lot about himself. Without meaning to or realizing it, he'd pictured in his mind his exact route through the maze as he escaped the voice. Not once did he falter on his return, turning left and right and running down long corridors in reverse of the way he had come. He knew what it meant. Minho had been right. Soon, Thomas would be the best runner. The second thing he learned about himself, as if the night in the maze hadn't proved it already, was that his body was in perfect shape. Just a day earlier he'd been at the end of his strength and sore from top to bottom. He'd recovered quickly and ran now with almost no effort, despite nearing the end of his second hour of running. It didn't take a math genius to calculate that his speed and time combined meant he'd run roughly half a marathon by the time he returned to the glade. Never before had the sheer size of the maze truly hit him. Miles and miles and miles, with its walls that moved every night, he finally understood why the maze was so hard to solve. He'd doubted it until now, wondered how the runners could be so inept. On he ran, left and right, straight on and on. By the time he'd crossed the threshold into the glade, the doors were only minutes away from closing for the night. Exhausted, he headed straight for the deadheads, went deep into the forest until he reached the spot where the trees crowded against the southwest corner. More than anything, he wanted to be alone. When he could hear only the sounds of distant glader conversations, as well as faint echoes of bleeding sheep and snorting pigs, his wish was granted. He found the junction of the two giant walls and collapsed into the corner to rest. No one came no one bothered him. The south wall eventually moved, closing for the night. He leaned forward until it stopped. Minutes later, his back once again comfortably pressed against thick layers of ivy, he fell asleep. The next morning, someone gently shook him awake. Thomas, wake up! It was Chuck. The kid seemed to be able to find him anywhere. Groaning, Thomas leaned forward, stretched out his back and arms. A couple of blankets had been placed over him during the night. Someone playing the glade mother. What time is it? he asked. You're almost too late for breakfast. Chuck tugged on his arm. Come on, get up. You need to start acting normal or things will just get worse. The events of the previous day came crashing into Thomas's mind, and his stomach seemed to twist inside out. What are they going to do to me, he thought. Those things she said. Something about me and her doing this to them? To us? What did that mean? Then it hit him that maybe he was crazy. Maybe the stress of the maze had driven him insane. 
Either way, only he had heard the voice inside his head. No one else knew the weird things Teresa had said or accused him of. They didn't even know that she had told him her name. Well, no one except Newt. And he would keep it that way. Things were bad enough. No way he'd make it worse by telling people about voices in his head. The only problem was Newt. Thomas would have to convince him somehow that stress had finally overwhelmed him and a good night's rest had solved everything. I'm not crazy, Thomas told himself. Surely he wasn't. Chuck was looking at him with eyebrows raised. Sorry, Thomas said as he stood up, acting as normal as he could. Just thinking. Let's eat. I'm starving. Good that, Chuck said, slapping Thomas on the back. They headed for the homestead, Chuck yapping the whole time. Thomas wasn't complaining. It was the closest thing to normal in his life. Newt found you last night and told everyone to let you sleep. And he told us what the council decided about you. One day in the cell, then you'll enter the runner training program. Some shanks grumbled, some cheered. Most acted like they couldn't care less. As for me, I think it's pretty awesome. Chuck paused to take a breath, then kept going. That first night, when you were bragging about being a runner and all that clunk? Shuck it, I was laughing inside so hard. I kept telling myself, this sucker's in for a rude awakening. Well, you proved me wrong, huh? But Thomas didn't feel like talking about it. I just did what anyone else would have done. It's not my fault Minho and Newt want me to be a runner. Yeah, right. Quit being modest. Being a runner was the last thing on Thomas's mind. What he couldn't stop thinking about was Teresa, the voice in his head, what she'd said. I guess I'm a little excited. Thomas forced a grin, though he cringed at the thought of hanging out in the slammer by himself all day before he got to start. We'll see how you feel after running your guts out. Anyway, as long as you know old Chucky is proud of you. Thomas smiled at his friend's enthusiasm. If only you were my mom, Thomas murmured. Life would be a peach. My mom, he thought. The world seemed to darken for a moment. He couldn't even remember his own mother. He pushed the thought away before it consumed him. They made it to the kitchen and grabbed a quick breakfast, taking two empty seats at the big table inside. Every glader going in and out the door gave Thomas a stare. A few came up and offered congratulations. Other than a sprinkling of dirty looks here and there, most people seemed to be on his side. Then he remembered Galley. Hey, Chuck, he asked after taking a bite of eggs, trying to sound casual. Did they ever find Galley? No, I was going to tell you. Someone said they saw him run out into the maze after he left the gathering. Hasn't been seen since. Thomas dropped his fork, not knowing what he'd expected or hoped for. Either way, the news stunned him. What? You serious? He went into the maze? Yeah. Everyone knows he went nuts. Some shank even accused you of killing him when you ran out there yesterday. I can't believe... Thomas stared at his plate, trying to understand why Galley would do that. Don't worry about it, dude. No one liked him except for his few shuck cronies. They're the ones accusing you of stuff. Thomas couldn't believe how casually Chuck spoke about it. You know, the guy is probably dead. You're talking about him like he went on vacation. A contemplative look came over Chuck. I don't think he's dead. Huh? Then where is he? Aren't Mean Ho and I the only ones who've survived a night out there? 
That's what I'm saying. I think his buddies are hiding him inside the glade somewhere. Callie was an idiot, but he couldn't possibly be stupid enough to stay out in the maze all night, like you. Thomas shook his head. Maybe that's exactly why he stayed out there. Wanted to prove he could do anything I can do. The guy hates me. A pause. Hated me. Well, whatever. Chuck shrugged as if they were arguing over what to have for breakfast. If he's dead, you guys will probably find him eventually. If not, he'll get hungry and show up to eat. I don't care. Thomas picked up his plate and took it to the counter. All I want is one normal day. One day to relax. Then your bloody wish is granted, said a voice from the kitchen door behind him. Thomas turned to see Newt there, smiling. That grin sent a wave of reassurance through Thomas, as if he were finding out the world was okay again. Come on, you buggin' jailbird, Newt said. You can take it easy while you're hanging in the slammer. Let's go. Chucky'll bring you some lunch at noon. Thomas nodded and headed out the door, Newt leading the way. Suddenly, a day in prison sounded excellent. A day to just sit and relax. Though something told him there was a better chance of Galley bringing him flowers than of passing a day in the glade with nothing strange happening. Chapter 30 The slammer stood in an obscure place between the homestead and the north glade wall, hidden behind thorny, ragged bushes that looked like they hadn't been trimmed in ages. It was a big block of roughly cut concrete with one tiny barred window and a wooden door that was locked with a menacing rusty metal latch, like something out of the Dark Ages. Newt took out a key and opened it up, then motioned for Thomas to enter. There's only a chair in there and nothing at all for you to do. Enjoy yourself. Thomas groaned inwardly as he stepped inside and saw the one piece of furniture, an ugly, rickety chair with one leg obviously shorter than the rest, probably on purpose. Didn't even have a cushion. Have fun, Newt said before closing the door. Thomas turned back to his new home and heard the latch close and the lock click behind him. Newt's head appeared at the little glassless window, looking through the bars, a smirk on his face. Nice reward for breaking the rules. You saved some lives, Tommy, but you still need to learn. Yeah, I know. Order, Newt smiled. You're not half bad, Shank. But friends or no, gotta run things properly, keep us buggers alive. Think about that while you sit in there and stare at the bloody walls. And then he was gone. The first hour passed and Thomas felt boredom creep in like rats under the door. By hour number two, he wanted to bang his head against the wall. Two hours after that, he started to think having dinner with Galley and the Grievers would beat sitting inside that stupid slammer. He sat and tried to bring back memories, but every effort evaporated into oblivious mist before anything formed. Thankfully, Chuck arrived with lunch at noon, relieving Thomas from his thoughts. After passing some pieces of chicken and a glass of water through the window, he took up his usual role of talking Thomas's ear off. Everything's getting back to normal, the boy announced. The runners are out in the maze. Everyone's working. Maybe we'll survive after all. Still no sign of Galley. Newt told the runners to come back lickety-splickety if they found his body. And, oh yeah, Albie's up and around. Seems fine. And Newt's glad he doesn't have to be the big boss anymore. 
The mention of Albie pulled Thomas's attention from his food. He pictured the older boy thrashing around, choking himself the day before. Then he remembered that no one else knew what Albie had said after Newt left the room before the seizure. But that didn't mean Albie would keep it between them now that he was up and walking around. Chuck continued talking, taking a completely unexpected turn. Thomas, I'm kind of messed up, man. It's weird to feel sad and homesick, but have no idea what it is you wish you could go back to. You know, all I know is I don't want to be here. I want to go back to my family, whatever's there, whatever I was taken from. I want to remember. Thomas was a little surprised. He'd never heard Chuck say something so deep and so true. I know what you mean," he murmured. Chuck was too short for his eyes to reach where Thomas could see them as he spoke, but from his next statement, Thomas imagined them filling with a bleak sadness, maybe even tears. I used to cry every night. This made thoughts of Albie leave Thomas's mind. Yeah, like a pants-wetting baby, almost till the day you got here. Then I just got used to it, I guess. This became home, even though we spend every day hoping to get out. I've only cried once since showing up, but that was after almost getting eaten alive. I'm probably just a shallow shuck face. Thomas might not have admitted it if Chuck hadn't opened up. You cried? He heard Chuck say through the window. Then? Yeah. When the last one finally fell over the cliff. I broke down and sobbed till my throat and chest hurt. Thomas remembered all too well. Everything crushed in on me at once. Sure made me feel better. Don't feel bad about crying, ever. Kinda does make you feel better, huh? Weird how that works. A few minutes passed in silence. Thomas found himself hoping Chuck wouldn't leave. Hey, Thomas, Chuck asked. Still here. Do you think I have parents? Real parents? Thomas laughed, mostly to push away the sudden surge of sadness the statement caused. Of course you do, Shank. You need me to explain the birds and bees. Thomas's heart hurt. He could remember getting that lecture, but not who'd given it to him. That's not what I mean, Chuck said, his voice completely devoid of cheer. It was low and bleak, almost a mumble. Most of the guys who've gone through the changing remember terrible things they won't even talk about, which makes me doubt I have anything good back home. So, I mean, you think it's really possible I have a mom and dad out in the world somewhere, missing me? Do you think they cry at night? Thomas was completely shocked to realize his eyes had filled with tears. Life had been so crazy since he'd arrived; he'd never really thought of the Gladers as real people with real families missing them. It was strange, but he hadn't even really thought of himself that way. Only about what it all meant, who'd sent them there, how they'd ever get out. For the first time, he felt something for Chuck that made him so angry he wanted to kill somebody. The boy should be in school, in a home, playing with neighborhood kids. He deserved to go home at night to a family who loved him, worried about him, a mom who made him take a shower every day, and a dad who helped him with homework. Thomas hated the people who'd taken this poor, 
innocent kid from his family. He hated them with a passion he didn't know a human could feel. He wanted them dead, tortured even. He wanted Chuck to be happy. But happiness had been ripped from their lives. Love had been ripped from their lives. Listen to me, Chuck. Thomas paused, calming down as much as he could, making sure his voice didn't crack. I'm sure you have parents. I know it. Sounds terrible, but I bet your mom is sitting in your room right now, holding your pillow, looking out at the world that stole you from her. And yeah, I bet she's crying. Hard. Puffy-eyed, snotty-nosed crying. The real deal. Chuck didn't say anything, but Thomas thought he heard the slightest of sniffles. Don't give up, Chuck. We're going to solve this thing. Get out of here. I'm a runner now. I promise on my life I'll get you back to that room of yours. Make your mom quit crying. And Thomas meant it. He felt it burn in his heart. Hope you're right, Chuck said with a shaky voice. He showed a thumbs-up sign in the window, then walked away. Thomas stood up to pace around the little room, fuming with an intense desire to keep his promise. I swear, Chuck, he whispered to no one. I swear I'll get you back home. Chapter 31 Just after Thomas heard the grind and rumble of stone against stone announce the closing of the doors for the day, Albie showed up to release him, which was a huge surprise. The metal of key and lock jingled. Then the door to the cell swung wide open. "'Ain't dead, are you, Shank?' Albie asked. He looked so much better than the day before, Thomas couldn't help staring at him. His skin was back to full color, his eyes no longer crisscrossed with red veins. He seemed to have gained fifteen pounds in twenty-four hours. Albie noticed him goggling. Shuck it, boy, what you looking at? Thomas shook his head slightly, feeling like he'd been in a trance. His mind was racing, wondering what Albie remembered, what he knew, what he might say about him. What? Nothing. Just seems crazy you healed so quickly. You're fine now? Albie flexed his right bicep. Ain't never been better. Come on out. Thomas did, hoping his eyes weren't flickering, making his concern obvious. Albie closed the slammer door and locked it, then turned to face him. Actually, nothing but a lie. I feel like a piece of clunk twice crapped by a griever. Yeah, you looked it yesterday. When Albie glared, Thomas hoped it was in jest and quickly clarified. But today you look brand new. I swear. Albie put the keys in his pocket and leaned back against the slammer's door. So, quite the little talk we had yesterday. Thomas's heart pounded. He had no idea what to expect from Albie at that point. Uh, yeah, I remember. I saw what I saw, Greeny. It's kind of fading, but I ain't never gonna forget. It was terrible. Tried to talk about it, something starts choking me. Now the images are getting up and gone, like that same something don't like me remembering. The scene from the day before flashed in Thomas's mind. Albie thrashing, trying to strangle himself. Thomas wouldn't have believed it had happened if he hadn't seen it himself. Despite fearing an answer, he knew he had to ask the next question. 
What was it about me? You kept saying you saw me. What was I doing? Albie stared at an empty space in the distance for a while before answering. You were with the creators, helping them. But that ain't what got me shook up. Thomas felt like someone had just rammed their fist in his abdomen. Helping them? He couldn't form the words to ask what that meant. Albie continued. I hope the changing doesn't give us real memories, just plants fake ones. Some suspect it. I can only hope. If the world's the way I saw it. He trailed off, leaving an ominous silence. Thomas was confused, but pressed on. Can't you tell me what you saw about me? Albie shook his head. No way, Shank. Ain't gonna risk strangling myself again. Might be something they got in our brains to control us, just like the memory wipe. Well, if I'm evil, maybe you should leave me locked up. Thomas half meant it. Greeny, you ain't evil. You might be a shuck-faced slinthead, but you ain't evil. Albie showed the slightest hint of a smile, a bare crack in his usually hard face. What you did, risking your butt to save me and Minho, that ain't no evil I've ever heard of. Now it just makes me think the grief serum and the changing got something fishy about him. For your sake and mine, I hope so. Thomas was so relieved that Albie thought he was okay, he only heard about half of what the older boy had just said. How bad was it? Your memories that came back. I remembered things from growing up, where I lived, that sort of stuff. And if God himself came down right now and told me I could go back home... Albie looked to the ground and shook his head again. If it was real, Greeny, I swear I'd shack up with the Grievers before going back. Thomas was surprised to hear it was so bad. He wished Albie would give details, describe something, anything. But he knew the choking was still too fresh in Albie's mind for him to budge. Well, maybe they're not real, Albie. Maybe the grief serum is some kind of psycho drug that gives you hallucinations. Thomas knew he was grasping at straws. Albie thought for a minute. A drug. Hallucinations. Then he shook his head. Doubt it. It had been worth a try. We still have to escape this place. Yeah, thanks, Greeny, Albie said sarcastically. Don't know what we'd do without your pep talks. Again, the almost smile. Albie's change of mood broke Thomas out of his gloom. Quit calling me Greeny. The girl's the Greeny now. Okay, Greeny, Albie sighed, clearly done with the conversation. Go find some dinner. Your terrible prison sentence of one day is over. One was plenty. Despite wanting answers, Thomas was ready to get away from the slammer. Plus, he was starving. He grinned at Albie, then headed straight for the kitchen and food. Dinner was awesome. Frypan had known Thomas would be coming late, so he'd left a plateful of roast beef and potatoes. A note announced there were cookies in the cupboard. The cook seemed fully intent on backing up the support he'd shown for Thomas in the gathering. Minho joined Thomas as he ate, prepping him a little before his first big day of runner training, giving him a few stats and interesting facts, things for him to think about as he went to sleep that night. When they were finished, Thomas headed back to the secluded place where he'd slept the night before, in the corner behind the deadheads. He thought about his conversation with Chuck, 
wondered how it would feel to have parents to say goodnight to you. Several boys milled about the glade that night, but for the most part it was quiet, like everyone just wanted to go to sleep, end the day, and be done with it. Thomas didn't complain. That was exactly what he needed. The blankets someone had left for him the night before still lay there. He picked them up and settled in, snuggling up against the comforting corner where the stone walls met in a mass of soft ivy. The mixed smells of the forest greeted him as he took his first deep breath, trying to relax. The air felt perfect, and it made him wonder again about the weather of the place. Never rained, never snowed, never got too hot or too cold. If it weren't for the little fact that they were torn apart from friends and families and trapped in a maze with a bunch of monsters, it would be paradise. Some things here were too perfect. He knew that, but had no explanation. His thoughts drifted to what Minho had told him at dinner about the size and scale of the maze. He believed it. He'd realized the massive scale when he'd been to the cliff. But he just couldn't fathom how such a structure could have been built. The maze stretched for miles and miles. The runners had to be in almost superhuman shape to do what they did every day. And yet they'd never found an exit. And despite that, despite the utter hopelessness of the situation, they still hadn't given up. At dinner, Minho had told him an old story, one of the bizarre and random things he remembered from before, about a woman trapped in a maze. She escaped by never taking her right hand off the walls of the maze, sliding it along as she walked. In doing so, she was forced to turn right at every turn, and the simple laws of physics and geometry ensured that eventually she found the exit. It made sense. But not here. Here, all paths led back to the glade. They had to be missing something. Tomorrow, his training would begin. Tomorrow, he could start helping them find that missing something. Right then, Thomas made a decision. Forget all the weird stuff. Forget all the bad things. Forget it all. He wouldn't quit until he'd solved the puzzle and found a way home. Tomorrow. The word floated in his mind until he finally fell asleep. Chapter 32 Minho woke Thomas before dawn, motioning with a flashlight to follow him back to the homestead. Thomas easily shook off his morning grogginess, excited to begin his training. He crawled out from under his blanket and eagerly followed his teacher, winding his way through the crowd of gladers who slept on the lawn, their snores the only sign they weren't dead. The slightest glow of early morning illuminated the glade, turning everything dark blue and shadowed. Thomas had never seen the place look so peaceful. A cock crowed in the bloodhouse. Finally, in a crooked cranny near a back corner of the homestead, Minho pulled out a key and opened up a shabby door leading to a small storage closet. Thomas felt a shiver of anticipation, wondering what was inside. He caught glimpses of ropes and chains and other odds and ends as Minho's flashlight crisscrossed the closet. Eventually, it fell on an open box full of running shoes. Thomas almost laughed. It seemed so ordinary. That right there's the number one supply we get, Minho announced. At least for us. They send new ones in the box every so often. If we had bad shoes, we'd have feet that looked like freaking Mars. 
He bent over and rummaged through the pile. What size do you wear? Size? Thomas thought for a second. I don't know. It was so odd sometimes what he could and couldn't remember. He reached down and pulled off a shoe he'd worn since coming to the glade and took a look inside. Eleven. Geez, Shank, you got big feet. Minho stood up holding a pair of sleek silver ones. But looks like I've got some. Man, we could go canoeing in these things. Those are fancy. Thomas took them and walked out of the closet to sit on the ground, eager to try them on. Minho grabbed a few more things before coming out to join him. Only runners and keepers get these, Minho said. Before Thomas could look up from tying his shoes, a plastic wristwatch dropped into his lap. It was black and very simple, its face showing only a digital display of the time. Put it on and never take it off. Your life might depend on it. Thomas was glad to have it. Though the sun and the shadows had seemed plenty to let him know roughly what time it was up to that point, being a runner probably required more precision. He buckled the watch onto his wrist and then returned to fitting on his shoes. Minho continued talking. Here's a backpack, water bottles, lunch pack, some shorts and t-shirts, other stuff. He nudged Thomas, who looked up. Minho was holding out a couple of pairs of tightly cut underwear, made from a shiny white material. These bad boys are what we call runny undies. Keeps you, um, nice and comfy. Nice and comfy? Yeah, you know, you're... Yeah, got it. Thomas took the underwear and other stuff. You guys really have this all thought out, don't you? Couple years running your butt off every day, you figure out what you need and ask for it. He started stuffing things into his own backpack. Thomas was surprised. You mean you can make requests? Supplies you want? Why would the people who'd sent them here help so much? Of course we can. Just drop a note in the box and there she goes. Doesn't mean we always get what we want from the creators. Sometimes we do, sometimes we don't. Ever ask for a map? Minho laughed. Yeah, tried that one. Asked for a TV, too, but no luck. I guess those shuck faces don't want us seeing how wonderful life is when you don't live in a freaking maze. Thomas felt a trickle of doubt that life was so great back home. What kind of world allowed people to make kids live like this? The thought surprised him, as if its source had been founded in actual memory, a wisp of light in the darkness of his mind. But it was already gone. Shaking his head, he finished lacing up his shoes, then stood up and jogged around in circles, jumping up and down to test them out. They feel pretty good. I guess I'm ready. Min Ho was still crouched over his backpack on the ground. He glanced up at Thomas with a look of disgust. You look like an idiot prancing around like a shuck ballerina. Good luck out there with no breakfast, no packed lunch, no weapons. Thomas had already stopped moving, felt an icy chill. Weapons? Weapons. Minho stood and walked back to the closet. Come here, I'll show you. Thomas followed Minho into the small room and watched as he pulled a few boxes away from the back wall. Underneath lay a small trap door. Minho lifted it to reveal a set of wooden stairs leading into blackness. Keep them down in the basement so shanks like galley can't get to them. Come on. Minho went first. The stairs creaked with every shift of weight as they descended the dozen or so steps. 
The cool air was refreshing, despite the dust and the strong scent of mildew. They hit a dirt floor, and Thomas couldn't see a thing until Minho turned on a single light bulb by pulling a string. The room was larger than Thomas had expected, at least thirty square feet. Shelves lined the walls, and there were several blocky wooden tables. Everything in sight was covered with all manner of junk that gave him the creeps: wooden poles, metal spikes, large pieces of mesh like what covers a chicken coop, rolls of barbed wire, saws, knives, swords. One entire wall was dedicated to archery: wooden bows, arrows, spare strings. The sight of it immediately brought back the memory of Ben getting shot by Albie and the Deadheads. Wow, Thomas murmured, his voice a dull thump in the enclosed space. At first, he was terrified that they needed so many weapons, but he was relieved to see that the vast majority of it was covered with a thick layer of dust. Don't use most of it, Minho said, but you never know. All we usually take with us is a couple of sharp knives. He nodded toward a large wooden trunk in the corner, its top open and leaning against the wall. Knives of all shapes and sizes were stacked haphazardly all the way to the top. Thomas just hoped the room was kept secret from most of the gladers. Seems kind of dangerous to have all this stuff, he said. What if Ben had gotten down here right before he went nuts and attacked me? Minho pulled the keys out of his pocket and dangled them with a clickety clank. Only a few lucky toads have a set of these. Still, quit your belly aching and pick a couple. Make sure they're nice and sharp. Then we'll go get breakfast and pack our lunch. I want to spend some time in the map room before we head out. Thomas was pumped to hear that. He'd been curious about the squat building ever since he'd first seen a runner go through its menacing door. He selected a short silvery dagger with a rubbery grip, then one with a long black blade. His excitement waned a little, even though he knew perfectly well what lived out there. He still didn't want to think about why he needed weapons to go into the maze. A half hour later, fed and packed, they stood in front of the riveted metal door of the map room. Thomas was itching to go inside. Dawn had burst forth in all her glory, and gladers milled about, readying for the day. Smells of frying bacon wafted through the air. Frypan and his crew trying to keep up with dozens of starving stomachs. Minho unlocked the door, cranked the wheel handle, spinning it until an audible click sounded from inside, then pulled. With a lurching squeal, the heavy metal slab swung open. After you, Minho said with a mocking bow. Thomas went in without saying anything. A cool fear mixed with an intense curiosity gripped him, and he had to remind himself to breathe. The dark room had a musty, wet smell, laced with a deep, coppery scent so strong he could taste it. A distant, faded memory of sucking on pennies as a kid popped into his head. Minho hit a switch, and several rows of fluorescent lights flickered until they came on full strength, revealing the room in detail. Thomas was surprised at its simplicity. About twenty feet across, the map room had concrete walls bare of any decoration. A wooden table stood in the exact center, eight chairs tucked in around it. Neatly stacked piles of paper and pencils lay about the table's surface, one for each chair. The only other items in the room were eight trunks, just like the one containing the knives in the weapons basement. Closed, 
They were evenly spaced, two to a wall. Welcome to the map room, Minho said. As happy a place as you could ever visit. Thomas was slightly disappointed. He'd been expecting something more profound. He took in a deep breath. Too bad it smells like an abandoned copper mine. I kind of like the smell. Minho pulled out two chairs and sat in one of them. Have a seat. I want you to get a couple of images in your head before we go out there. As Thomas sat down, Minho grabbed a piece of paper and a pencil and started drawing. Thomas leaned in to get a better look and saw that Minho had drawn a big box that filled almost the entire page. Then he filled it with smaller boxes until it looked exactly like an enclosed tic tac toe board, three rows of three squares, all the same size. He wrote the word glade in the middle, then numbered the outside squares from one to eight, starting in the upper left corner and going clockwise. Lastly, he drew little notches here and there. These are the doors, Minho said. You know about the ones from the glade, but there are four more out in the maze that lead to sections one, three, five, and seven. They stay in the same spot, but the route there changes with the wall movements every night. He finished, then slid the paper over to rest in front of Thomas. Thomas picked it up, completely fascinated that the maze was so structured, and studied it as Minho kept talking. So we have the glade surrounded by eight sections. Each one a completely self-contained square and unsolvable in the two years since we began this freaking game. The only thing even approaching an exit is the cliff, and that ain't a very good one unless you like falling to a horrible death. Minho tapped the map. The walls move all over the shuck place every evening, same time as our doors close shut. At least we think that's when, because we never really hear walls moving any other time. Thomas looked up. Happy to be able to offer a piece of information, I didn't see anything move that night we got stuck out there. Those main corridors right outside the doors don't ever change; it's just the ones a little deeper out. Oh, Thomas returned to the crude map, trying to visualize the maze and see stone walls where Minho had penciled lines. We always have at least eight runners, including the keeper, one for each section. It takes us a whole day to map out our area. Hoping against hope, there's an exit. Then we come back and draw it up, a separate page for each day. Minho glanced over at one of the trunks. That's why those things are shuck full of maps. Thomas had a depressing and scary thought. Am I replacing someone? Did somebody get killed? Minho shook his head. No, we're just training you. Someone will probably want a break. Don't worry. It's been a while since a runner was killed. For some reason, that last statement worried Thomas, though he hoped it didn't show on his face. He pointed at section three. So it takes you a whole day to run through these little squares. Hilarious. Minho stood up and stepped over to the trunk right behind him, knelt down, then lifted the lid and rested it against the wall. Come here. Thomas had already gotten up. He leaned over Minho's shoulder and took a look. The trunk was large enough that four stacks of maps could fit, and all four reached the top. Each of the ones Thomas could see were very similar—a rough sketch of a square maze, filling almost the whole page. In the top right corners, section eight was scribbled, followed by the name Hank, then the word Day, followed by a number. 
The latest one said it was day number 749. Minho continued. We figured out the walls were moving right at the beginning. As soon as we did, we started keeping track. We've always thought that comparing these day to day, week to week, would help us figure out a pattern. And we did. The mazes basically repeat themselves about every month. But we've yet to see an exit open up that will lead us out of the square. Never been an exit. It's been two years, Thomas said. Haven't you gotten desperate enough to stay out there overnight? See if maybe something opens while the walls are moving? Minho looked up at him, a flash of anger in his eyes. That's kind of insulting, dude. Seriously. What? Thomas was shocked. He hadn't meant it that way. We've been busting our butts for two years, and all you can ask is why we're too sissy to stay out there all night. A few tried it in the very beginning. All of them showed up dead. You want to spend another night out there? Like your chances of surviving again, do you? Thomas's face reddened in shame. No, sorry. He suddenly felt like a piece of clunk. And he certainly agreed. He'd much rather come home safe and sound to the glade every night than ensure another battle with the grievers. He shuddered at the thought. Yeah, well. Minho returned his gaze to the maps in the trunk, much to Thomas's relief. Life in the glade might not be sweet living, but at least it's safe. Plenty of food, protection from the grievers. There's no way we can ask the runners to risk staying out there. No way. At least not yet. Not until something about these patterns gives a clue that an exit might open up, even temporarily. Are you close? Anything developing? Minho shrugged. I don't know. It's kind of depressing, but we don't know what else to do. Can't take a chance that one day, in one spot, somewhere, an exit might appear. We can't give up. Ever. Thomas nodded, relieved at the attitude. As bad as things were, giving up would only make them worse. Minho pulled several sheets from the trunk, the maps from the last few days. As he flipped through them, he explained, We compared day to day, week to week, month to month, just like I was saying. Each runner is in charge of the map for his own section. If I gotta be honest, we haven't figured out Jack yet. Even more honest, we don't know what we're looking for. Really sucks, dude. Really freaking sucks. But we can't give up, Thomas said in a matter-of-fact tone, as a resigned repeat of what Minho had said a moment earlier. He'd said, we, without even thinking about it, and realized he was truly part of the glade now. Right on, bro. We can't give up. Minho carefully returned the papers and closed the trunk, then stood. Well, we gotta bust it fast since we took time in here. You'll just be following me around your first few days. Ready? Thomas felt a wire of nervousness tighten inside him, pinching his gut. It was actually here. They were going for real now. No more talking and thinking about it. Um, yeah. No ums around here. You ready or not? Thomas looked at Mean Ho, matched his suddenly hard gaze. I'm ready. Then let's go running. Chapter 33 They went through the west door into Section 8 and made their way down several corridors, Thomas right beside Min Ho as he turned right and left without seeming to think about it, running all the while. The early morning light had a sharp sheen about it, making everything look bright and crisp, 
the ivy, the cracked walls, the stone blocks of the ground. Though the sun had a few hours before hitting the noon spot up above, there was plenty of light to see by. Thomas kept up with Minho as best he could, having to sprint every once in a while to catch back up. They finally made it to a rectangular cut in a long wall to the north that looked like a doorway without a door. Minho ran straight through it without stopping. This leads from Section 8, the middle left square, to Section 1, the top left square. Like I said, this passage is always in the same spot, but the route here might be a little different because of the walls rearranging themselves. Thomas followed him, surprised at how heavy his breaths had already become. He hoped it was only jitters, that his breathing would steady soon. They ran down a long corridor to the right, passing several turns to the left. When they reached the end of the passage, Minho slowed to barely more than a walk and reached behind him to pull out a notepad and pencil from a side pocket in his backpack. He jotted a note, then put them back, never fully stopping. Thomas wondered what he'd written, but Minho answered him before he could pose the question. I rely mostly on memory, the keeper huffed, his voice finally showing a hint of strain. But about every fifth turn, I write something down to help me later, mostly just related to stuff from yesterday, what's different today. Then I can use yesterday's map to make today's. Easy peasy, dude. Thomas was intrigued. Minho did make it sound easy. They ran for a short while before they reached an intersection. They had three possible choices, but Minho went to the right without hesitating. As he did so, he pulled one of his knives from a pocket and, without missing a beat, cut a big piece of ivy off the wall. He threw it on the ground behind him and kept running. Breadcrumbs? Thomas asked, the old fairy tale popping into his mind. Such odd glimpses of his past had almost stopped surprising him. Breadcrumbs, Minho replied. I'm Hansel, you're Gretel. On they went, following the course of the maze, sometimes turning right, sometimes turning left. After every turn, Minho cut and dropped a three-foot length of ivy. Thomas couldn't help being impressed. Minho didn't even need to slow down to do it. All right, the keeper said, breathing heavier now. Your turn. What? Thomas hadn't really expected to do anything but run and watch on his first day. Cut the ivy now. You gotta get used to doing it on the run. We pick them up as we come back, or kick them to the side. Thomas was happier than he thought he'd be at having something to do, though it took him a while to become good at it. First couple of times, he had to sprint to catch up after cutting the ivy, and once he nicked his finger. But by his tenth attempt, he could almost match Min Ho at the task. On they went. After they'd run a while... Thomas had no idea for how long or how far, but he guessed three miles. Minho slowed to a walk, then stopped altogether. Break time. He swung off his pack and pulled out some water and an apple. Thomas didn't have to be convinced to follow Minho's lead. He guzzled his water, relishing the wet coolness as it washed down his dry throat. Slow down there, fishhead, Minho yelped. Save some for later. Thomas stopped drinking, sucked in a big, satisfied breath, then burped. He took a bite of his apple, feeling surprisingly refreshed. For some reason, his thoughts turned back to the day Minho and Albi had gone to look at the dead griever, 
when everything had gone to clunk. You never really told me what happened to Albie that day, why he was in such bad shape. Obviously the griever woke up, but what happened? Minho had already put his backpack on. He looked ready to go. Well, Shuck Thing wasn't dead. Albie poked at it with his foot like an idiot, and that bad boy suddenly sprang to life, spikes flaring, its fat body rolling all over him. Something was wrong with it, though. Didn't really attack like usual. It seemed like it was mostly just trying to get out of there, and poor Albie was in the way. So it ran away from you guys? From what Thomas had seen only a few nights before, he couldn't imagine it. Minho shrugged. Yeah, I guess. Maybe it needed to get recharged or something. I don't know. What could have been wrong with it? Did you see an injury or anything? Thomas didn't know what kind of answer he was searching for, but he was sure there had to be a clue or lesson to learn from what happened. Minho thought for a minute. No, Shakthing just looked dead, like a wax statue. Then, boom, it was back to life. Thomas's mind was churning, trying to get somewhere, only he didn't know where or which direction to even start in. I just wonder where it went, where they always go. Don't you? He was quiet for a second, then, haven't you ever thought of following them? Man, you do have a death wish, don't you? Come on, we gotta go. And with that, Minho turned and started running. As Thomas followed, he struggled to figure out what was tickling the back of his mind. Something about that griever being dead and then not dead. Something about where it had gone once it sprang to life. Frustrated, he put it aside and sprinted to catch up. Thomas ran right behind Minho for two more hours, sprinkled with little breaks that seemed to get shorter every time. Good shape or not, Thomas was feeling the pain. Finally, Minho stopped and pulled off his backpack once more. They sat on the ground, leaning against the soft ivy as they ate lunch, neither one of them talking much. Thomas relished every bite of his sandwich and veggies, eating as slowly as possible. He knew Minho would make them get up and go once the food disappeared, so he took his time. Anything different today? Thomas asked, curious. Minho reached down and patted his backpack, where his notes rested. Just the usual wall movements. Nothing to get your skinny butt excited about. Thomas took a long swig of water, looking up at the ivy-covered wall opposite them. He caught a flash of silver and red, something he'd seen more than once that day. What's the big deal with those beetle blades? he asked. They seem to be everywhere. Then Thomas remembered what he'd seen in the maze. So much had happened he hadn't had the chance to mention it. And why do they have the word wicked written on their backs? Never been able to catch one. Minho finished up his meal and put his lunchbox away. And we don't know what that word means. Probably just something to scare us. But they have to be spies. For them. Only thing we can reckon. Who is them, anyway? Thomas asked, ready for more answers. He hated the people behind the maze. Anybody have a clue? We don't know jack about the stupid creators. Minho's face reddened as he squeezed his hands together like he was choking someone. Can't wait to rip their... But before the keeper could finish, Thomas was on his feet and across the corridor. What's that? he interrupted, heading for a dull glimmer of gray he'd just noticed behind the ivy on the wall, about head high.
Oh, yeah, that, Minho said, his voice completely indifferent. Thomas reached in and pulled apart the curtains of ivy, then stared blankly at a square of metal riveted to the stone, with words stamped across it in big capital letters. He put his hand out to run his fingers across them, as if he didn't believe his eyes. World in Catastrophe, Kill Zone Experiment Department. He read the words aloud, then looked back at Min Ho. What's this? It gave him a chill. It had to have something to do with the creators. I don't know, Shank. They're all over the place, like freaking labels for the nice pretty maze they built. I quit bothering to look at them a long time ago. Thomas turned back to stare at the sign, trying to suppress the feeling of doom that had risen inside him. Not much here that sounds very good. Catastrophe? Kill zone? Experiment? Real nice. Yeah, real nice, Greeny. Let's go. Reluctantly, Thomas let the vines fall back into place and swung his backpack over his shoulders. And off they went, those six words burning holes in his mind. An hour after lunch, Minho stopped at the end of a long corridor. It was straight, the walls solid, with no hallways branching off. The last dead end, he said to Thomas. Time to go back. Thomas sucked in a deep breath, trying not to think about only being halfway done for the day. Nothing new? Just the usual changes to the way we got here. Day's half over, Minho replied as he looked at his watch emotionlessly. Gotta go back. Without waiting for a response, the keeper turned and set off at a run in the direction from which they'd just come. Thomas followed, frustrated that they couldn't take time to examine the walls, explore a little. He finally pulled in stride with Minho. But just shut it, dude. Remember what I said earlier. Can't take any chances. Plus, think about it. You really think there's an exit anywhere? A secret trap door or something? I don't know. Maybe. Why do you ask it that way? Minho shook his head, spat a big wad of something nasty to his left. There's no exit. It's just more of the same. A wall is a wall is a wall. Solid. Thomas felt the heavy truth of it, but pushed back anyway. How do you know? Because people willing to send grievers after us aren't going to give us an easy way out. This made Thomas doubt the whole point of what they were doing. Then why even bother coming out here? Minho looked over at him. Why bother? Because it's here. Gotta be a reason. But if you think we're going to find a nice little gate that leads to Happy Town, you're smoking cow clunk. Thomas looked straight ahead, feeling so hopeless he almost slowed to a stop. This sucks. Smartest thing you've said yet, Greeny. Minho blew out a big puff of air and kept running, and Thomas did the only thing he knew to do. He followed. The rest of the day was a blur of exhaustion to Thomas. He and Minho made it back to the glade, went to the map room, wrote up the day's maze route, compared it to the previous days. Then there were the walls closing and dinner. Chuck tried talking to him several times, but all Thomas could do was nod and shake his head, only half hearing he was so tired. Before twilight faded to blackness, he was already in his new favorite spot in the forest corner, curled up against the ivy, wondering if he could ever run again. Wondering how he could possibly do the same thing tomorrow, especially when it seemed so pointless. 
being a runner had lost its glamour. After one day, every ounce of the noble courage he'd felt, the will to make a difference, the promise to himself to reunite Chuck with his family, it all vanished into an exhausted fog of hopelessness, wretched weariness. He was somewhere very close to sleep when a voice spoke in his head, a pretty, feminine voice that sounded as if it came from a fairy goddess trapped in his skull. The next morning, when everything started going crazy, he'd wonder if the voice had been real or part of a dream. But he heard it all the same, and remembered every word. Tom, I just triggered the ending. Chapter 34 Thomas awoke to a weak, lifeless light. His first thought was that he must have gotten up earlier than usual, that dawn was still an hour away. But then he heard the shouts, and then he looked up through the leafy canopy of branches. The sky was a dull slab of gray, not the natural pale light of morning. He jumped to his feet, put his hand on the wall to steady himself as he craned his neck to gawk toward the heavens. There was no blue, no black, no stars, no purplish fan of a creeping dawn. The sky, every last inch of it, was slate gray, colorless and dead. He looked down at his watch. It was a full hour past his mandatory waking time. The brilliance of the sun should have awakened him, had done so easily since he'd arrived at the glade. But not today. He glanced upward again, half expecting it to have changed back to normal. But it was all gray. Not cloudy, not twilight, not the early minutes of dawn. Just gray. The sun had disappeared. Thomas found most of the gladers standing near the entrance to the box, pointing at the dead sky, everyone talking at once. Based on the time, breakfast should have already been served. People should be working. But there was something about the largest object in the solar system vanishing that tended to disrupt normal schedules. In truth, as Thomas silently watched the commotion, he didn't feel nearly as panicked or frightened as his instincts told him he ought to be. And it surprised him that so many of the others looked like lost chicks thrown from the coop. It was, in fact, ridiculous. The sun had obviously not disappeared. That wasn't possible. Though that was what it seemed like, signs of the ball of furious fire nowhere to be seen, the slanting shadows of morning absent. But he and all the gladers were far too rational and intelligent to conclude such a thing. No, there had to be a scientifically acceptable reason for what they were witnessing. And whatever it was, to Thomas it meant one thing. The fact they could no longer see the sun probably meant they'd never been able to in the first place. A sun couldn't just disappear. Their sky had to have been, and still was, fabricated. Artificial. In other words, the sun that had shone down on these people for two years, providing heat and life to everything, was not the sun at all. Somehow, it had been fake. Everything about this place was fake. Thomas didn't know what that meant, didn't know how it was possible. But he knew it to be true. It was the only explanation his rational mind could accept. And it was obvious from the other gladers' reactions that none of them had figured this out until now. 
Chuck found him, and the look of fear on the boy's face pinched Thomas's heart. What do you think happened? Chuck said, a pitiful tremor in his voice, his eyes glued to the sky. Thomas thought his neck must hurt something awful. Looks like a big gray ceiling, close enough you could almost touch it. Thomas followed Chuck's gaze and looked up. Yeah, makes you wonder about this place. For the second time in twenty-four hours, Chuck had nailed it. The sky did look like a ceiling, like the ceiling of a massive room. Maybe something's broken. I mean, maybe it'll be back. Chuck finally quit gawking and made eye contact with Thomas. Broken? What's that supposed to mean? Before Thomas could answer, the faint memory of last night, before he fell asleep, came to him. Teresa's words inside his mind. She'd said, "I just triggered the ending." It couldn't be a coincidence, could it? A sour rot crept into his belly. Whatever the explanation, whatever that had been in the sky, the real sun or not, it was gone, and that couldn't be a good thing. Thomas Chuck asked, lightly tapping him on the upper arm. Yeah, Thomas's mind felt hazy. What did you mean by broken? Chuck repeated. Thomas felt like he needed time to think about it all. Oh. I don't know. Must be things about this place we obviously don't understand. But you can't just make the sun disappear from space. Plus, there's still enough light to see by, as faint as it is. Where's that coming from? Chuck's eyes widened, as if the darkest, deepest secret of the universe had just been revealed to him. Yeah, where is it coming from? What's going on, Thomas? Thomas reached out and squeezed the younger boy's shoulder. He felt awkward. No clue, Chuck. Not a clue. But I'm sure Newt and Albie will figure things out. Thomas, Minho was running up to them. Quit your leisure time with Chucky here and let's get going. We're already late. Thomas was stunned. For some reason, he'd expected the weird sky to throw all normal plans out the window. You're still going out there? Chuck asked, clearly surprised as well. Thomas was glad the boy had asked the question for him. Of course we are, Shank. Minho said, "Don't you have some slapping to do?" He looked from Chuck to Thomas. If anything, gives us even more reason to get our butts out there. If the sun's really gone, won't be long before plants and animals drop dead too. I think the desperation level just went up a notch. The last statement struck Thomas deep down. Despite all his ideas, all the things he'd pitched to Minho. He wasn't eager to change how things had been done for the last two years. A mixture of excitement and dread swept over him when he realized what Minho was saying. "You mean we're going to stay out there overnight, explore the walls a little more closely?" Minho shook his head. "No, not yet. Maybe soon, though." He looked up toward the sky. "Man, what a way to wake up! Come on, let's go." Thomas was quiet as he and Minho got their things ready and ate a lightning-fast breakfast. His thoughts were churning too much about the gray sky and what Teresa—at least he thought it had been the girl—had told him in his mind to participate in any conversation. What had she meant by the ending? Thomas couldn't knock the feeling that he should tell somebody, everybody, but he didn't know what it meant, and he didn't want them to know he had a girl's voice in his head.
They'd think he'd really gone bonkers, maybe even lock him up, and for good this time. After a lot of deliberation, he decided to keep his mouth shut and went running with Minho for his second day of training, below a bleak and colorless sky. They saw the griever before they'd even made it to the door leading from Section 8 to Section 1. Minho was a few feet ahead of Thomas. He'd just rounded a corner to the right when he slammed to a stop, his feet almost skidding out from under him. He jumped back and grabbed Thomas by the shirt, pushing him against the wall. Shh, Minho whispered. There's a freaking griever up there. Thomas widened his eyes in question, felt his heart pick up the pace, even though it had already been pumping hard and steady. Minho simply nodded, then put his finger to his lips. He let go of Thomas's shirt and took a step back, then crept up to the corner around which he'd seen the griever. Very slowly, he leaned forward to take a peek. Thomas wanted to scream at him to be careful. Minho's head jerked back and he turned to face Thomas. His voice was still a whisper. It's just sitting up there, almost like that dead one we saw. What do we do? Thomas asked as quietly as possible. He tried to ignore the panic flaring inside him. Is it coming toward us? No, idiot. I just told you it was sitting there. Well? Thomas raised his hands to his sides in frustration. What do we do? Standing so close to a griever seemed like a really bad idea. Minho paused a few seconds, thinking before he spoke. We have to go that way to get to our section. Let's just watch it a while. If it comes after us, we'll run back to the glade. He took another peek, then quickly looked over his shoulder. Crap! It's gone! Come on! Minho didn't wait for a response, didn't see the look of horror Thomas had just felt widen his own eyes. Minho took off running in the direction where he'd seen the griever. Though his instincts told him not to, Thomas followed. He sprinted down the long corridor after Minho, turned left, then right. At every turn, they slowed so the keeper could look around the corner first. Each time, he whispered back to Thomas that he'd seen the tail end of the griever disappearing around the next turn. This went on for ten minutes until they came to the long hallway that ended at the cliff, where beyond lay nothing but the lifeless sky. The griever was charging toward that sky. Minho stopped so abruptly Thomas almost ran him over. Then Thomas stared in shock as up ahead the griever dug in with its spikes and spun forward right up to the cliff's edge, then off into the gray abyss. The creature disappeared from sight. A shadow swallowed by more shadow. Chapter 35 That settles it, Minho said. Thomas stood next to him on the edge of the cliff, staring at the gray nothingness beyond. There was no sign of anything to the left, right, down, up, or ahead, for as far as he could see. Nothing but a wall of blankness. Settles what? Thomas asked. We've seen it three times now. Something's up. Yeah. Thomas knew what he meant, but waited for Minho's explanation anyway. That dead griever I found. It ran this way, and we never saw it come back or go deeper into the maze. Then those suckers we tricked into jumping past us. Tricked? Thomas said. Maybe not such a trick. Minho looked over at him, contemplative. Hmm. 
Anyway, then this. He pointed out at the abyss. Not much doubt anymore. Somehow the grievers can leave the maze this way. Looks like magic, but so does the sun disappearing. If they can leave this way, Thomas added, continuing Minho's line of reasoning, so could we. A thrill of excitement shot through him. Minho laughed. There's your death wish again. Want to hang out with the grievers? Have a sandwich, maybe? Thomas felt his hopes drop. Got any better ideas? One thing at a time, Greeny. Let's get some rocks and test this place out. There has to be some kind of hidden exit. Thomas helped Minho as they scrabbled around the corners and crannies of the maze, picking up as many loose stones as possible. They got more by thumbing cracks in the wall, spilling broken chunks onto the ground. When they finally had a sizable pile, they hauled it over right next to the edge and took a seat, feet dangling over the side. Thomas looked down and saw nothing but a gray descent. Minho pulled out his pad and pencil, placed them on the ground next to him. All right, we gotta take good notes, and memorize it in that shuck head of yours, too. If there's some kind of optical illusion hiding an exit from this place, I don't want to be the one who screws up when the first shank tries to jump into it. That shank ought to be the keeper of the runners, Thomas said, trying to make a joke to hide his fear. Being this close to a place where grievers might come out at any second was making him sweat. You'd want to hold on to one beauty of a rope. Minho picked up a rock from their pile. Yeah. Okay, let's take turns tossing them, zigzagging back and forth out there. If there's some kind of magical exit, hopefully it'll work with rocks, too. Make them disappear. Thomas took a rock and carefully threw it to their left, just in front of where the left wall of the corridor leading to the cliff met the edge. The jagged piece of stone fell and fell, then disappeared into the gray emptiness. Minho went next. He tossed his rock just a foot or so farther out than Thomas had. It also fell far below. Thomas threw another one, another foot out. Then Minho. Each rock fell to the depths. Thomas kept following Minho's orders. They continued until they'd marked a line reaching at least a dozen feet from the cliff, then moved their target pattern a foot to the right and started coming back toward the maze. All the rocks fell. Another line out, another line back. All the rocks fell. They threw enough rocks to cover the entire left half of the area in front of them, covering the distance anyone, or anything, could possibly jump. Thomas's discouragement grew with every toss, until it turned into a heavy mass of blah. He couldn't help chiding himself. It had been a stupid idea. Then, Minho's next rock disappeared. It was the strangest, most hard-to-believe thing Thomas had ever seen. Minho had thrown a large chunk, a piece that had fallen from one of the cracks in the wall. Thomas had watched, deeply concentrating on each and every rock. This one left Minho's hand, sailed forward, almost in the exact center of the cliff line, started its descent to the unseen ground far below. Then it vanished as if it had fallen through a plane of water or mist. One second there, falling. Next second, gone. Thomas couldn't speak. We've thrown stuff off the cliff before, Minho said. How could we have ever missed that? I never saw anything disappear. Never. 
Thomas coughed. His throat felt raw. Do it again. Maybe we blinked weird or something. Minho did, throwing it at the same spot, and once again, it winked out of existence. Maybe you weren't looking carefully other times you threw stuff over, Thomas said. I mean, it should be impossible. Sometimes you don't look very hard for things you don't believe will or can happen. They threw the rest of the rocks, aiming at the original spot and every inch around it. To Thomas's surprise, the spot in which the rocks disappeared proved only to be a few feet square. No wonder we missed it, Minho said, furiously writing down notes and dimensions, his best attempt at a diagram. It's kind of small. The grievers must barely fit through that thing. Thomas kept his eyes riveted to the area of the invisible floating square, trying to burn the distance and location in his mind, remember exactly where it was. And when they come out, they must balance on the rim of the hole and jump over the empty space to the cliff edge. It's not that far. If I could jump it, I'm sure it's easy for them. Minho finished drawing, then looked up at the special spot. How's this possible, dude? What are we looking at? Like you said, it's not magic. Must be something like our sky turning gray. Some kind of optical illusion or hologram hiding a doorway. This place is all jacked up. And, Thomas admitted to himself, kind of cool. His mind craved to know what kind of technology could be behind it all. Yeah, jacked up is right. Come on. Minho got up with a grunt and put on his backpack. Better get as much of the maze run as we can. With our new decorated sky, maybe other weird things have happened out there. We'll tell Newt and Albie about this tonight. Don't know how it helps, but at least we know now where the shuck grievers go. And probably where they come from, Thomas said as he took one last look at the hidden doorway. The griever hole. Yeah, good a name as any. Let's go. Thomas sat and stared, waiting for Minho to make a move. Several minutes passed in silence, and Thomas realized his friend must be as fascinated as he was. Finally, without saying a word, Minho turned to leave. Thomas reluctantly followed, and they ran into the gray dark maze. Thomas and Minho found nothing but stone walls and ivy. Thomas did the vine cutting and all the note taking. It was hard for him to notice any changes from the day before. But Minho pointed out without thinking about it where the walls had moved. When they reached the final dead end and it was time to head back home, Thomas felt an almost uncontrollable urge to bag everything and stay there overnight, see what happened. Minho seemed to sense it and grabbed his shoulder. Not yet, dude. Not yet. And so they'd gone back. A somber mood rested over the glade, an easy thing to happen when all is gray. The dim light hadn't changed a bit since they'd woken up that morning, and Thomas wondered if anything would change at sunset either. Minho headed straight for the map room as they came through the west door. Thomas was surprised. He thought it was the last thing they should do. Aren't you dying to tell Newt and Albie about the griever hole? Hey, we're still runners, Minho said, and we still have a job. Thomas followed him to the steel door of the big concrete block and Minho turned to give him a wan smile. But yeah, we'll do it quick so we can talk to them. There were already other runners milling about the room, drawing up their maps when they entered. No one said a word, 
as if all speculation on the new sky had been exhausted. The hopelessness in the room made Thomas feel as if he were walking through mud-thick water. He knew he should also be exhausted, but he was too excited to feel it. He couldn't wait to see Newt's and Albie's reaction to the news about the cliff. He sat down at the table and drew up the day's map based on his memory and notes, Minho looking over his shoulder the whole time, giving pointers. I think that hole was actually cut off here, not there. And watch your proportions. And draw straighter, you shank. He was annoying but helpful, and fifteen minutes after entering the room, Thomas examined his finished product. Pride washed through him. It was just as good as any other map he'd seen. Not bad, Minho said. For a greenie, anyway. Minho got up and walked over to the Section 1 trunk and opened it. Thomas knelt down in front of it and took out the map from the day before and held it up side by side with the one he'd just drawn. What am I looking for? he asked. Patterns. But looking at two days' worth isn't going to tell you jack. You really need to study several weeks, look for patterns, anything. I know there's something there, something that'll help us. Just can't find it yet. Like I said, it sucks. Thomas had an itch in the back of his mind, the same one he'd felt the very first time in this room. The maze walls, moving. Patterns. All those straight lines. Were they suggesting an entirely different kind of map? Pointing to something? He had such a heavy feeling that he was missing an obvious hint or clue. Minho tapped him on the shoulder. You can always come back and study your butt off after dinner, after we talk to Newt and Albie. Come on. Thomas put the papers in the trunk and closed it, hating the twinge of unease he felt. It was like a prick in his side. Walls moving, straight lines, patterns. There had to be an answer. Okay, let's go. They'd just stepped out the map room, the heavy door clanging shut behind them, when Newt and Albie walked up, neither one of them looking very happy. Thomas's excitement immediately turned to worry. Hey, Minho said. We were just... Get on with it, Albie interrupted. Ain't got time to waste. Find anything? Anything? Minho actually recoiled at the harsh rebuke, but his face seemed more confused to Thomas than hurt or angry. Nice to see you, too. Yeah, we did find something, actually. Oddly, Albie almost looked disappointed. Because this whole shuck place has fallen to pieces. He shot Thomas a nasty glare as if it were all his fault. What's wrong with him? Thomas thought, feeling his own anger light up. They'd been working hard all day, and this was their thanks? What do you mean? Minho asked. What else happened? Newt answered, nodding toward the box as he did so. Bloody supplies didn't come today. Come every week for two years, same time, same day. But not today. All four of them looked over at the steel doors attached to the ground. To Thomas, there seemed to be a shadow hovering over it, darker than the gray air surrounding everything else. Ah, oh, we're shucked for good now, Minho whispered, his reaction alerting Thomas to how grave the situation really was. No sun for the plants, Newt said. No supplies from the bloody box? Yeah, I'd say we're shucked all right. Albie had folded his arms, still glaring at the box as if trying to open the doors with his mind. Thomas hoped their leader didn't bring up what he'd seen in the changing, or anything related to Thomas, for that matter. Especially now. Yeah, 
Anyway, Minho continued, we found something weird. Thomas waited, hoping that Newt or Albie would have a positive reaction to the news, maybe even have further information to shed light on the mystery. Newt raised his eyebrows. What? Minho took a full three minutes to explain, starting with the griever they followed and ending with the results of their rock-throwing experiment. Must lead to where the, you know, grievers live, he said when finished. The griever hole, Thomas added. All three of them looked at him, annoyed, as if he had no right to speak. But for the first time, being treated like the greenie didn't bother him that much. Gotta bloody see that for myself, Newt said, then murmured, Hard to believe. Thomas couldn't have agreed more. I don't know what we can do, Minho said. Maybe we could build something to block off that corridor. No way, Newt said. Shuck things can climb the bloody walls, remember? Nothing we could build would keep them out. But a commotion outside the homestead shifted their attention away from the conversation. A group of gladers stood at the front door of the house, shouting to be heard over each other. Chuck was in the group, and when he saw Thomas and the others he ran over, a look of excitement spread across his face. Thomas could only wonder what crazy thing had happened now. "'What's going on?' Newt asked. "'She's awake!' Chuck yelled. "'The girl's awake!' Thomas's insides twisted. He leaned against the concrete wall of the map room. The girl. The girl who spoke in his head. He wanted to run before it happened again, before she spoke to him in his mind. But it was too late. Tom, I don't know any of these people. Come get me. It's all fading. I'm forgetting everything but you. I have to tell you things. But it's all fading. He couldn't understand how she did it, how she was inside his head. Teresa paused, then said something that made no sense. The maze is a code, Tom. The maze is a code. Chapter 36 Thomas didn't want to see her. He didn't want to see anybody. As soon as Newt set off to go and talk to the girl, Thomas silently slipped away, hoping no one would notice him in the excitement. With everyone's thoughts on the stranger waking up from her coma, it proved easy. He skirted the edge of the glade, then, breaking into a run, he headed for his place of seclusion behind the deadhead forest. He crouched in the corner, nestled in the ivy, and threw his blanket over himself, head and all. Somehow, it seemed like a way to hide from Teresa's intrusion into his mind. A few minutes passed, his heart finally calming to a slow roll. Forgetting about you was the worst part. At first, Thomas thought it was another message in his head. He squeezed his fists against his ears. But no, it had been different. He'd heard it with his ears. A girl's voice. Chills creeping up his spine, he slowly lowered the blanket. Teresa stood to his right, leaning against the massive stone wall. She looked so different now, awake and alert, standing. Wearing a long-sleeved white shirt, blue jeans, and brown shoes, she looked, impossibly, even more striking than when he'd seen her in the coma. Black hair framed the fair skin of her face, with eyes the blue of pure flame. Tom, do you really not remember me? Her voice was soft, 
a contrast from the crazed, hard sound he'd heard from her after she first arrived, when she'd delivered the message that everything was going to change. You mean, you remember me? he asked, embarrassed at the squeak that escaped on the last word. Yes, but no, maybe. She threw her arms up in disgust. I can't explain it. Thomas opened his mouth, then closed it without saying anything. I remember remembering, she muttered, sitting down with a heavy sigh. She pulled her legs up to wrap her arms around her knees. Feelings? Emotions? Like I have all these shelves in my head, labeled for memories and faces? But they're empty. As if everything before this is just on the other side of a white curtain. Including you. But how do you know me? He felt like the walls were spinning around him. Teresa turned toward him. I don't know. Something about before we came to the maze. Something about us. It's mostly empty, like I said. You know about the maze? Who told you? You just woke up. I... It's all very confusing right now. She held a hand out. But I know you're my friend. Almost in a daze, Thomas pulled the blanket completely off and leaned forward to shake her hand. I like how you call me Tom. As soon as it came out, he was sure he couldn't have possibly said anything dumber. Teresa rolled her eyes. That's your name, isn't it? Yeah, but most people call me Thomas. Well, except Newt. He calls me Tommy. Tom makes me feel like I'm at home or something, even though I don't know what home is. He let out a bitter laugh. Are we messed up or what? She smiled for the first time, and he almost had to look away, as if something that nice didn't belong in such a glum and gray place, as if he had no right to look at her expression. Yeah, we're messed up, she said. And I'm scared. So am I, trust me. Which was definitely the understatement of the day. A long moment passed, both of them looking toward the ground. What's... he began, not sure how to ask it. How did you talk to me inside my mind? Teresa shook her head. No idea. I can just do it, she thought to him. Then she spoke aloud again. It's like if you tried to ride a bicycle here, if they had one. I bet you could do it without thinking. But do you remember learning to ride one? No. I mean, I remember riding one, but not learning. He paused, feeling a wave of sadness. Or who taught me? Well, she said, her eyes flickering as if she was embarrassed by his sudden gloom. Anyway, it's kind of like that. Really clears things up. Teresa shrugged. You didn't tell anyone, did you? They'd think we're crazy. Well, when it first happened, I did. But I think Newt just thinks I was stressed out or something. Thomas felt fidgety, like he'd go nuts if he didn't move. He stood up, started pacing in front of her. We need to figure things out. That weird note you had about being the last person to ever come here, your coma, the fact you can talk to me telepathically. Any ideas? Teresa followed him with her eyes as he walked back and forth. Save your breath and quit asking. All I have are faint impressions, 
that you and I were important, that we were used somehow, that we're smart, that we came here for a reason. I know I triggered the ending, whatever that means. She groaned, her face reddening. My memories are as useless as yours. Thomas knelt down in front of her. No, they're not. I mean, the fact that you knew my memory had been wiped without asking me, and this other stuff. You're way ahead of me and everybody else. Their eyes met for a long time. It looked like her mind was spinning, trying to make sense of it all. I just don't know, she said in his mind. There you go again, Thomas said aloud, though he was relieved that her trick didn't really freak him out anymore. How do you do that? I just do, and I bet you can too. Well, can't say I'm too anxious to try. He sat back down and pulled his legs up, much like she had done. You said something to me, in my head, right before you found me over here. You said, the maze is a code. What did you mean? She shook her head slightly. When I first woke up, it was like I'd entered an insane asylum. These strange guys hovering over my bed, the world tipping around me, memories swirling in my brain. I tried to reach out and grasp a few, and that was one of them. I can't really remember why I said it. Was there anything else? Actually, yeah. She pulled up the sleeve of her left arm, exposing her bicep. Small letters were written across the skin in thin black ink. What's that? he asked, leaning in for a better look. Read it yourself. The letters were messy, but he could make them out when he got close enough. Wicked is good. Thomas's heart beat faster. I've seen that word, wicked. He searched his mind for what the phrase could possibly mean. On the little creatures that live here, the beetle blades. What are those? she asked. Just little lizard-like machines that spy on us for the creators, the people who sent us here? Teresa considered that for a moment, looking off into space. Then she focused on her arm. I can't remember why I wrote this, she said, as she wet her thumb and started rubbing off the words. But don't let me forget. It has to mean something. The three words ran through Thomas's mind over and over. When did you write it? When I woke up. They had a pen and notepad next to the bed. In the commotion, I wrote it down. Thomas was baffled by this girl. First the connection he'd felt to her from the very beginning, then the mind speaking, now this. Everything about you is weird. You know that, right? Judging by your little hiding spot, I'd say you're not so normal yourself. Like living in the woods, do you? Thomas tried to scowl, then smiled. He felt pathetic and embarrassed about hiding. Well, you look familiar to me, and you claim we're friends. Guess I'll trust you. He held out his hand for another shake, and she took it, holding on for a long time. A chill swept through Thomas that was surprisingly pleasant. All I want is to get back home, she said, finally letting go of his hand. Just like the rest of you. Thomas's heart sank as he snapped back to reality and remembered how grim the world had become. Yeah, well, things pretty much suck right about now. The sun disappeared and the sky's gray. They didn't send us the weekly supplies. Looks like things are going to end one way or another. But before Teresa could answer, Newt was running out of the woods. 
How in the? He said as he pulled up in front of them. Albie and a few others were right behind him. Newt looked at Teresa. How do you get here? Medjack said you were there one second and bug and gone the next. Teresa stood up, surprising Thomas with her confidence. Guess he forgot to tell the little part about me kicking him in the groin and climbing out the window. Thomas almost laughed as Newt turned to an older boy standing nearby, whose face had turned bright red. Congrats, Jeff. Newt said, "You're officially the first guy here to get your butt beat by a girl." Teresa didn't stop. Keep talking like that, and you'll be next. Newt turned back to face them, but his face showed anything but fear. He stood silently, just staring at them. Thomas stared back, wondering what was going through the older boy's head. Albie stepped up. "I'm sick of this." He pointed at Thomas's chest, almost tapping it. I want to know who you are, who this Shank girl is, and how you guys know each other. Thomas almost wilted. Albie, I swear, she came straight to you after waking up, shuckface. Anger surged inside Thomas, and worry that Albie would go off like Ben had. So what? I know her. She knows me, or at least we used to. That doesn't mean anything. I can't remember anything. Neither can she. Albie looked at Teresa. What did you do, Thomas? Confused by the question, glanced at Teresa to see if she knew what he meant, but she didn't reply. What did you do? Albie screamed. First the sky, now this. I triggered something, she replied in a calm voice. Not on purpose, I swear it. The ending. I don't know what it means. What's wrong, Newt? Thomas asked, not wanting to talk to Albie directly. What happened? But Albie grabbed him by the shirt. What happened? I'll tell you what happened, Shank. Too busy making lovey eyes to bother looking around, to bother noticing what freaking time it is. Thomas looked at his watch, realizing with horror what he'd missed, knowing what Albie was about to say before he said it. The walls, you shuck! The doors, they didn't close tonight. Chapter Thirty Seven. Thomas was speechless. Everything would be different now. No sun, no supplies, no protection from the grievers. Teresa had been right from the beginning. Everything had changed. Thomas felt as if his breath had solidified, lodged itself in his throat. Albie pointed at the girl. I want her locked up now, Billy Jackson. Put her in the slammer and ignore every word that comes out of her shuck mouth. Teresa didn't react, but Thomas did enough for the both of them. What are you talking about, Albie? You can't. He stopped when Albie's fiery eyes shot such a look of anger at him he felt his heart stutter. But how could you possibly blame her for the walls not closing? Newt stepped up, lightly placed a hand on Albie's chest, and pushed him back. How could we not, Tommy? She bloody admitted it herself. Thomas turned to look at Teresa, paled at the sadness in her blue eyes. It felt like something had reached through his chest and squeezed his heart. Just be glad you ain't going with her, Thomas. Albie said. He gave both of them one last glare before leaving. Thomas had never wanted so badly to punch someone. Billy and Jackson came forward and grabbed Teresa by both arms, started escorting her away. Before they could enter the trees, though, Newt stopped them.
Stay with her. I don't care what happens. No one's going to touch this girl. Swear your lives on it. The two guards nodded, then walked away, Teresa in tow. It hurt Thomas even more to see how willingly she went. And he couldn't believe how sad he felt. He wanted to keep talking to her. But I just met her, he thought. I don't even know her. Yet he knew that wasn't true. He already felt a closeness that could only have come from knowing her before the memory-wiped existence of the glade. Come see me, she said in his mind. He didn't know how to do it, how to talk to her like that. But he tried anyway. I will. At least you'll be safe in there. She didn't respond. Teresa? Nothing. The next thirty minutes were an eruption of mass confusion. Though there had been no discernible change in the light since the sun and blue sky hadn't appeared that morning, it still felt like a darkness spread over the glade. As Newt and Albie gathered the keepers and put them in charge of making assignments and getting their groups inside the homestead within the hour, Thomas felt like nothing more than a spectator, not sure how he could help. The builders, without their leader, Galley, who was still missing, were ordered to put up barricades at each open door. They obeyed, although Thomas knew there wasn't enough time and there weren't materials to do much good. It almost seemed to him as if the keepers wanted people busy, wanted to delay the inevitable panic attacks. Thomas helped as the builders gathered every loose item they could find and piled them in the gaps, nailing things together as best they could. It looked ugly and pathetic and scared him to death. No way that'd keep the grievers out. As Thomas worked, he caught glimpses of the other jobs going on across the glade. Every flashlight in the compound was gathered and distributed to as many people as possible. Newt said he planned for everyone to sleep in the homestead that night, and that they'd kill the lights except for emergencies. Frypan's task was to take all the non-perishable food out of the kitchens and store it in the homestead, in case they got trapped there. Thomas could only imagine how horrible that'd be. Others were gathering supplies and tools. Thomas saw Minho carrying weapons from the basement to the main building. Albie had made it clear they could take no chances. They'd make the homestead their fortress and must do whatever it took to defend it. Thomas finally snuck away from the builders and helped Minho, carrying up boxes of knives and barbed wire-wrapped clubs. Then Minho said he had a special assignment from Newt and more or less told Thomas to get lost, refusing to answer any of his questions. This hurt Thomas's feelings, but he left anyway, really wanting to talk to Newt about something else. He finally found him, crossing the glade on his way to the bloodhouse. Newt, he called out, running to catch up. You have to listen to me. Newt stopped so suddenly Thomas almost ran into him. The older boy turned to give Thomas such an annoyed look he thought twice about saying anything. Make it quick, Newt said. Thomas almost balked, not sure how to say what he was thinking. You've got to let the girl go. Teresa. He knew that she could only help, that she might still remember something valuable. Ah, glad to know you guys are buddies now. Newt started walking off. Don't waste my time, Tommy. Thomas grabbed his arm. Listen to me. There's something about her. I think she and I were sent here to help end this whole thing. Yeah, end it by letting the bloody grievers waltz in here and kill us? I've heard some sucky plans in my day, Grainy, but that's got them all beat. Thomas groaned, 
wanting Newt to know how frustrated he felt. No, I don't think that's what it means. The wall's not closing. Newt folded his arms. He looked exasperated. Greeny, what are you yapping about? Ever since Thomas had seen the words on the wall of the maze, World in Catastrophe, Kill Zone Experiment Department, he'd been thinking about them. He knew if there was anyone who would believe him, it would be Newt. I think... I think we're here as part of some weird experiment or test or something like that. But it's supposed to end somehow. We can't live here forever. Whoever sent us here wants it to end, one way or another. Thomas was relieved to get it off his chest. Newt rubbed his eyes. And that's supposed to convince me that everything's jolly, that I should let the girl go, because she came and everything is suddenly do or die? No, you're missing the point. I don't think she has anything to do with us being here. She's just a pawn. They set her here as our last tool or hint or whatever to help us get out. Thomas took a deep breath. And I think they sent me too. Just because she was the trigger for the ending doesn't make her bad. Newt looked toward the slammer. You know what? I don't bug and care right now. She can handle one night in there. If anything, she'll be safer than us. Thomas nodded, sensing a compromise. Okay, we get through tonight somehow. Tomorrow, when we have a whole day of safety, we can figure out what to do with her. Figure out what we're supposed to do. Newt snorted. Tommy, what's going to make tomorrow any different? It's been two bloody years, you know. Thomas had an overwhelming feeling that all of these changes were a spur, a catalyst for the end game. Because now we have to solve it. We'll be forced to. We can't live that way anymore, day to day, thinking that what matters most is getting back to the glade before the doors close, snug and safe. Newt thought a minute as he stood there, the bustle of the glader preparation surrounding both of them. Dig deeper. Stay out there while the walls move. Exactly, Thomas said. That's exactly what I'm talking about. And maybe we could barricade or blow up the entrance to the griever hole. Buy time to analyze the maze. Albie's the one who won't let the girl out, Newt said with a nod toward the homestead. That guy's not too high on you two shanks. But right now we just gotta slim ourselves and get to the wake-up. Thomas nodded. We can fight him off. Done it before, haven't you, Hercules? Without smiling or even waiting for a response, Newt walked away, yelling at people to finish up and get inside the homestead. Thomas was happy with the conversation. It had gone about as well as he could have possibly hoped. He decided to hurry and talk to Teresa before it was too late. As he sprinted for the slammer on the backside of the homestead, he watched as gladers started moving inside, most of them with arms full of one thing or another. Thomas pulled up outside the small jail and caught his breath. Teresa? he finally asked through the barred window of the lightless cell. Her face popped up on the other side, startling him. He let out a small yelp before he could stop it. It took him a second to recover his wits. You can be downright spooky, you know. That's very sweet, she said. Thanks. In the darkness, her blue eyes seemed to glow like a cat's. You're welcome, he answered, ignoring her sarcasm. Listen, I've been thinking. He paused to gather his thoughts. More than I can say for that Albie schmuck, she muttered. Thomas agreed, but was anxious to say what he'd come to say. There's got to be a way out of this place. We just have to push it, stay out in the maze longer. 
and what you wrote on your arm, and what you said about a code, it all has to mean something, right? It has to, he thought. He couldn't help feeling some hope. Yeah, I've been thinking the same thing. But first, can't you get me out of here? Her hands appeared, gripping the bars of the window. Thomas felt the ridiculous urge to reach out and touch them. Well, Newt said maybe tomorrow. Thomas was just glad he'd gotten that much of a concession. You'll have to make it through the night in there. It might actually be the safest place in the glade. Thanks for asking him. Should be fun sleeping on this cold floor. She motioned behind her with a thumb. Though I guess a griever can't squeeze through this window, so I'll be happy, right? The mention of grievers surprised him. He didn't remember talking about them to her yet. Teresa, are you sure you've forgotten everything? She thought a second. It's weird. I guess I do remember some stuff. Unless I just heard people talking while I was in the coma. Well, I guess it doesn't matter right now. I just wanted to see you before I went inside for the night. But he didn't want to leave. He almost wished he could get thrown in the slammer with her. He grinned inside. He could only imagine Newt's response to that request. Tom, Teresa said. Thomas realized he was staring off in a daze. Oh, sorry. Yeah? Her hand slipped back inside, disappeared. All he could see were her eyes, the pale glow of her white skin. I don't know if I can do this. Stay in this jail all night. Thomas felt an incredible sadness. He wanted to steal Newt's keys and help her escape. But he knew that was a ridiculous idea. She'd just have to suffer and make do. He stared into those glowing eyes. At least it won't get completely dark. Looks like we're stuck with this twilight junk 24 hours a day now. Yeah. She looked past him at the homestead, then focused on him again. I'm a tough girl. I'll be okay. Thomas felt horrible leaving her there, but he knew he had no choice. I'll make sure they let you out first thing tomorrow, okay? She smiled, making him feel better. That's a promise, right? Promise. Thomas tapped his right temple. And if you get lonely, you can talk to me with your... trick all you want. I'll try to answer back. He'd accepted it now, almost wanted it. He just hoped he could figure out how to talk back, so they could have a conversation. You'll get it soon, Teresa said in his mind. I wish. He stood there, really not wanting to leave. At all. You better go, she said. I don't want your brutal murder on my conscience. Thomas managed his own smile at that. All right. See you tomorrow. And before he could change his mind, he slipped away, heading around the corner toward the front door of the homestead, just as the last couple of gladers were entering, Newt shooing them in like errant chickens. Thomas stepped inside as well, followed by Newt, who closed the door behind him. Just before it latched shut, Thomas thought he heard the first eerie moan of the grievers, coming from somewhere deep in the maze. The night had begun. Chapter 38 Most of them slept outside in normal times, so packing all those bodies into the homestead made for a tight fit. The keepers had organized and distributed the gladers throughout the rooms, along with blankets and pillows. Despite the number of people and the chaos of such a change, 
A disturbing silence hung over the activities, as if no one wanted to draw attention to themselves. When everyone was settled, Thomas found himself upstairs with Newt, Albie, and Minho, and they were finally able to finish their discussion from earlier in the courtyard. Albie and Newt sat on the only bed in the room, while Thomas and Minho sat next to them in chairs. The only other furniture was a crooked wooden dresser and a small table, on top of which rested a lamp providing what light they had. The gray darkness seemed to press on the windows from outside, with promises of bad things to come. Closest I've come so far, Newt was saying, to hanging it all up. Shuck it all and kiss a griever good night. Supplies cut, bloody gray skies, walls not closing. But we can't give up, and we all know it. The buggers who sent us here either want us dead or they're giving us a spur. This or that, we gotta work our asses off till we're dead or not dead. Thomas nodded, but didn't say anything. He agreed completely, but had no concrete ideas on what to do. If he could just make it to tomorrow, maybe he and Teresa could come up with something to help. Thomas glanced over at Albie, who was staring at the floor, seemingly lost in his own gloomy thoughts. His face still wore the long, weary look of depression, his eyes sunken and hollow. The changing had been aptly named, considering what it had done to him. Albie, Newt asked, are you going to pitch in? Albie looked up, surprise crossing his face as if he hadn't known that anyone else was in the room. Huh? Oh, yeah, good that. But you've seen what happens at night. Just because Greeny the freaking Superboy made it doesn't mean the rest of us can. Thomas rolled his eyes ever so slightly at Minho, so tired of Albie's attitude. If Minho felt the same way, he did a good job of hiding it. I'm with Thomas and Newt. We gotta quit boo-hooing and feeling sorry for ourselves. He rubbed his hands together and sat forward in his chair. Tomorrow morning, first thing, you guys can assign teams to study the maps full time while the runners go out. We'll pack our stuff shuck full so we can stay out there a few days. What? Albie asked, his voice finally showing some emotion. What do you mean, days? I mean, days. With open doors and no sunset, there's no point in coming back here anyway. Time to stay out there and see if anything opens up when the walls move. If they still move. No way, Albie said. We have the homestead to hide in, and if that ain't working, the map room and the slammer. We can't freaking ask people to go out there and die, Minho. Who'd volunteer for that? Me, Minho said. And Thomas. Everyone looked at Thomas. He simply nodded. Although it scared him to death, exploring the maze, really exploring it, was something he'd wanted to do from the first time he learned about it. I will if I have to, Newt said, surprising Thomas. Though he'd never talk about it, the older boy's limp was a constant reminder that something horrible had happened to him out in the maze. And I'm sure all the runners will do it. With your bum leg? Albie asked, a harsh laugh escaping his lips. Newt frowned, looked at the ground. Well, I don't feel good asking Gladers to do something if I'm not bloody willing to do it myself. Albie scooted back on the bed and propped his feet up. Whatever. Do what you want. Do what I want, Newt asked, standing up. What's wrong with you, man? Are you telling me we have a choice? Should we just sit around on our butts and wait to be snuffed by the grievers? Thomas wanted to stand up and cheer, sure that Albie would finally snap out of his doldrums. 
But their leader didn't look in the least bit reprimanded or remorseful. Well, it sounds better than running to them. Newt sat back down. Albie, you gotta start talking reason. As much as he hated to admit it, Thomas knew they needed Albie if they were going to accomplish anything. The Gladers looked up to him. Albie finally took a deep breath, then looked at each of them in turn. You guys know I'm all screwed up. Seriously, I'm... sorry. I shouldn't be the stupid leader anymore. Thomas held his breath. He couldn't believe Albie had just said that. Oh, bloody... Newt started. No! Albie shouted, his face showing humility. Surrender. That's not what I mean. Listen to me. I ain't saying we should switch or any of that clunk. I'm just saying... I think I need to let you guys make the decisions. I don't trust myself. So, yeah, I'll do whatever. Thomas could see that both Minho and Newt were as surprised as he was. Uh, okay, Newt said slowly, as if he was unsure. We'll make it work, I promise. You'll see. Yeah, Albie muttered. After a long pause, he spoke up, a hint of odd excitement in his voice. Hey, tell you what. Put me in charge of the maps. I'll freaking work every glader to the bone studying those things. Works for me, Minho said. Thomas wanted to agree, but he didn't know if it was his place. Albie put his feet back on the floor, sat up straighter. You know, it was really stupid for us to sleep in here tonight. We should have been out in the map room working. Thomas thought that was the smartest thing he'd heard Albie say in a long time. Minho shrugged. Probably right. Well, I'll go, Albie said with a confident nod. Right now. Newt shook his head. Forget that, Albie. Already heard the bloody grievers moaning out there. We can wait till they wake up. Albie leaned forward, elbows on his knees. Hey, you shucks are the ones giving me all the pep talks. Don't start whining when I actually listen. If I'm going to do this, I got to do it. Be the old me. I need something to dive into. Relief flooded Thomas. He'd grown sick of all the contention. Albie stood up. Seriously, I need this. He moved toward the door of the room as if he really meant to leave. You can't be serious, Newt said. You can't go out there now. I'm going and that's that. Albie took his ring of keys from his pocket and rattled them mockingly. Thomas couldn't believe the sudden bravery. See you shucks in the morning. And then he walked out. It was strange to know that the night grew later, that darkness should have swallowed the world around them, but to see only the pale gray light outside. It made Thomas feel off-kilter, as if the urge to sleep that grew steadily with every passing minute were somehow unnatural. Time slowed to an agonizing crawl. He felt as if the next day might never come. The other gladers settled themselves, turning in with their pillows and blankets for the impossible task of sleeping. No one said much, the mood somber and grim. All you could hear were quiet shuffles and whispers. Thomas tried hard to force himself to sleep, knowing it would make the time pass faster, but after two hours he'd still had no luck. He lay on the floor in one of the upper rooms, on top of a thick blanket, several other gladers crammed in there with him, almost body to body. The bed had gone to Newt. 
Chuck had ended up in another room, and for some reason, Thomas pictured him huddled in a dark corner, crying, squeezing his blankets to his chest like a teddy bear. The image saddened Thomas so deeply he tried to replace it, but to no avail. Almost every person had a flashlight by their side in case of emergency. Otherwise, Newt had ordered all lights extinguished despite the pale, deathly glow of their new sky, no sense attracting any more attention than necessary. Anything that could be done on such short notice to prepare for a griever attack had been done. Windows boarded up, furniture moved in front of doors, knives handed out as weapons, but none of that made Thomas feel safe. The anticipation of what might happen was overpowering, a suffocating blanket of misery and fear that began to take on a life of its own. He almost wished the suckers would just come and get it over with. The waiting was unbearable. The distant wails of the grievers grew closer as the night stretched on. Every minute seemed to last longer than the one before it. Another hour passed, then another. Sleep finally came, but in miserable fits. Thomas guessed it was about two in the morning when he turned from his back to his stomach for the millionth time that night. He put his hands under his chin and stared at the foot of the bed, almost a shadow in the dim light. Then everything changed. A mechanized surge of machinery sounded from outside, followed by the familiar rolling clicks of a griever on the stony ground, as if someone had scattered a handful of nails. Thomas shot to his feet, as did most of the others. But Newt was up before anyone, waving his arms, then shushing the room by putting a finger to his lips. Favoring his bad leg, he tiptoed toward the lone window in the room, which was covered by three hastily nailed boards. Large cracks allowed for plenty of space to peek outside. Carefully, Newt leaned in to take a look, and Thomas crept over to join him. He crouched below Newt against the lowest of the wooden boards, pressing his eye against a crack. It was terrifying being so close to the wall. But all he saw was the open glade. He didn't have enough space to look up or down or to the side, just straight ahead. After a minute or so, he gave up and turned to sit with his back against the wall. Newt walked over and sat back down on the bed. A few minutes passed, various griever sounds penetrating the walls every ten to twenty seconds. The squeal of small engines followed by a grinding spin of metal. The clicking of spikes against the hard stone. Things snapping and opening and snapping. Thomas winced in fear every time he heard something. Sounded like three or four of them were just outside. At least. He heard the twisted animal machines come closer, so close, waiting on the stone blocks below. All hums and metallic clatter. Thomas's mouth dried up. He'd seen them face to face, remembered it all too well. He had to remind himself to breathe. The others in the room were still. No one made a sound. Fear seemed to hover in the air like a blizzard of black snow. One of the grievers sounded like it was moving toward the house. Then the clicking of its spike against the stone suddenly turned into a deeper, hollower sound. Thomas could picture it all. The creature's metal spikes digging into the wooden sides of the homestead, the massive creature rolling its body, climbing up toward their room, defying gravity with its strength. 
Thomas heard the griever's spikes shred the wood siding in their path as they tore out and rotated around to take hold once again. The whole building shuddered. The crunching and groaning and snapping of the wood became the only sounds in the world to Thomas, horrifying. They grew louder, closer. The other boys had shuffled across the room and as far away from the window as possible. Thomas finally followed suit, Newt right beside him. Everyone huddled against the far wall, staring at the window. Just when it grew unbearable, just as Thomas realized the griever was right outside the window, everything fell silent. Thomas could almost hear his own heart beating. Lights flickered out there, casting odd beams through the cracks between the wooden boards. Then a thin shadow interrupted the light, moving back and forth. Thomas knew that the griever's probes and weapons had come out, searching for a feast. He imagined beetle blades out there, helping the creatures find their way. A few seconds later, the shadow stopped. The light settled to a standstill, casting three unmoving planes of brightness into the room. The tension in the air was thick. Thomas couldn't hear anyone breathing. He thought much the same must be going on in the other rooms of the homestead. Then he remembered Teresa in the slammer. He was just wishing she'd say something to him when the door from the hallway suddenly whipped open. Gasps and shouts exploded throughout the room. The Gladers had been expecting something from the window, not from behind them. Thomas turned to see who'd opened the door, expecting a frightened Chuck or maybe a reconsidering Albie. But when he saw who stood there, his skull seemed to contract, squeezing his brain in shock. It was Galley. Chapter 39 Galley's eyes raged with lunacy. His clothes were torn and filthy. He dropped to his knees and stayed there, his chest heaving with deep, sucking breaths. He looked about the room like a rabid dog searching for someone to bite. No one said a word. It was as if they all believed as Thomas did— that Galley was only a figment of their imagination. They'll kill you, Galley screamed, spittle flying everywhere. The Grievers will kill you all, one every night till it's over. Thomas watched, speechless, as Galley staggered to his feet and walked forward, dragging his right leg with a heavy limp. No one in the room moved a muscle as they watched, obviously too stunned to do anything. Even Newt stood mouth agape. Thomas was almost more afraid of their surprise visitor than he was of the grievers just outside the window. Galley stopped, standing just a few feet in front of Thomas and Newt. He pointed at Thomas with a bloody finger. You, he said with a sneer so pronounced it went past comical to flat-out disturbing. It's all your fault. Without warning, he swung his left hand, forming it into a fist as it came around and crashed into Thomas's ear. Crying out, Thomas crumpled to the ground, more taken by surprise than pain. He scrambled to his feet as soon as he'd hit the floor. Newt had finally snapped out of his daze and pushed Galley away. Galley stumbled backward and crashed into the desk by the window. The lamp scooted off the side and broke into pieces on the ground. Thomas assumed Galley would retaliate, but he straightened instead, taking everyone in with his mad gaze. It can't be solved, 
he said, his voice now quiet and distant, spooky. The shuck maze will kill all you shanks. The grievers will kill you. One every night till it's over. I... It's better this way. His eyes fell to the floor. They'll only kill you one a night. They're stupid variables. Thomas listened in awe, trying to suppress his fear so he could memorize everything the crazed boy said. Newt took a step forward. Gally, shut your bloody hole. There's a griever right out the window. Just sit on your butt and be quiet. Maybe it'll go away. Gally looked up, his eyes narrowing. You don't get it, Newt. You're too stupid. You've always been too stupid. There's no way out. There's no way to win. They're going to kill you, all of you, one by one. Screaming the last word, Galley threw his body toward the window and started tearing at the wooden boards like a wild animal trying to escape a cage. Before Thomas or anyone else could react, he'd already ripped one board free. He threw it to the ground. No! Newt yelled, running forward. Thomas followed to help, in utter disbelief at what was happening. Galley ripped off the second board just as Newt reached him. He swung it backward with both hands and connected with Newt's head, sent him sprawling across the bed as a small spray of blood sprinkled the sheets. Thomas pulled up short, readying himself for a fight. Galley! Thomas yelled. What are you doing? The boy spat on the ground, panting like a winded dog. You shut your shuck face, Thomas. You shut up. I know who you are, but I don't care anymore. I can only do what's right. Thomas felt as if his feet were rooted to the ground. He was completely baffled by what Galley was saying. He watched the boy reach back and rip loose the final wooden board. The instant the discarded slab hit the floor of the room, the glass of the window exploded inward like a swarm of crystal wasps. Thomas covered his face and fell to the floor, kicking his legs out to scoot his body as far away as possible. When he bumped into the bed, he gathered himself and looked up, ready to face his world coming to an end. A griever's pulsating, bulbous body had squirmed halfway through the destroyed window, metallic arms with pincers snapping and clawing in all directions. Thomas was so terrified, he barely registered that everyone else in the room had fled to the hallway, all except Newt, who lay unconscious on the bed. Frozen, Thomas watched as one of the griever's long arms reached for the lifeless body. That was all it took to break him from his fear. He scrambled to his feet, searched the floor around him for a weapon. All he saw were knives. They couldn't help him now. Panic exploded within him, consumed him. Then Galley was speaking again. The griever pulled back its arm as if it needed the thing to be able to observe and listen. But its body kept churning, trying to squeeze its way inside. No one ever understood, the boy screamed over the horrible noise of the creature, crunching its way deeper into the homestead, ripping the wall to pieces. No one ever understood what I saw. What the changing did to me. Don't go back to the real world, Thomas. You 
don't want to remember. Galley gave Thomas a long, haunted look, his eyes full of terror. Then he turned and dove onto the writhing body of the griever. Thomas yelled out as he watched every extended arm of the monster immediately retract and clasp onto Galley's arms and legs, making escape or rescue impossible. The boy's body sank several inches into the creature's squishy flesh, making a horrific squelching sound. Then, with surprising speed, the griever pushed itself back outside the shattered frame of the window and began descending toward the ground below. Thomas ran to the jagged, gaping hole, looking down just in time to see the griever land and start scooting across the glade, Galley's body appearing and disappearing as the thing rolled. The lights of the monster shone brightly, casting an eerie yellow glow across the stone of the open west door, where the griever exited into the depths of the maze. Then, seconds later, several other monsters followed close behind their companion, whirring and clicking as if celebrating their victory. Thomas was sickened to the verge of throwing up. He began to back away from the window, but something outside caught his eye. He quickly leaned out of the building to get a better look. A lone shape was sprinting across the courtyard of the glade toward the exit through which Galley had just been taken. Despite the poor light, Thomas realized who it was immediately. He screamed, yelled at him to stop, but it was too late. Min Ho, running full speed, disappeared into the maze. Chapter 40 Lights blazed throughout the homestead. Gladers ran about, everyone talking at once. A couple of boys cried in a corner. Chaos ruled. Thomas ignored all of it. He ran into the hallway, then leaped down the stairs three at a time. He pushed his way through a crowd in the foyer, tore out of the homestead and toward the west door, sprinting. He pulled up just short of the threshold of the maze, his instincts forcing him to think twice about entering. Newt called to him from behind, delaying the decision. Minho followed it out there, Thomas yelled when Newt caught up to him, a small towel pressed against the wound on his head. A patchy spot of blood had already seeped through the white material. I saw, Newt said, pulling the towel away to look at it. He grimaced and put it back. Shuck it, that hurts like a mother. Minho must have finally fried his last bit of brain cells, not to mention Gali. Always knew he was crazy. Thomas could only worry about Minho. I'm going after him. Time to be a bloody hero again. Thomas looked at Newt sharply, hurt by the rebuke. You think I'd do things to impress you, Shanks? Please. All I care about is getting out of here. Yeah, well, you're a regular toughie. But right now we've got worse problems. What? Thomas knew if he wanted to catch up with Minho, he had no time for this. Somebody, Newt began. There he is, Thomas shouted. Minho had just turned a corner up ahead and was coming straight for them. Thomas cupped his hands. What were you doing, idiot? Minho waited until he made it back through the door, then bent over, hands on his knees, and sucked in a few breaths before answering. I just wanted to make sure. Make sure of what? Newt asked. Lot of good you'd be taken with Galley. Minho straightened and put his hands on his hips, still breathing heavily. 
Slim it, boys. I just wanted to see if they went toward the cliff, toward the griever hole. And, Thomas said, bingo. Minho wiped sweat from his forehead. I just can't believe it, Newt said, almost whispering. What a night. Thomas's thoughts tried to drift toward the hole and what it all meant, but he couldn't shake the thought of what Newt had been about to say before they saw Minho return. What were you about to tell me? he asked. You said we had worse, yeah. Newt pointed his thumb over his shoulder. You can still see the bug in smoke. Thomas looked in that direction. The heavy metal door of the map room was slightly ajar, a wispy trail of black smoke drifting out and into the gray sky. Somebody burned the map trunks, Newt said. Every last one of them. For some reason, Thomas didn't care about the maps that much. They seemed pointless anyway. He stood outside the window of the slammer, having left Newt and Min Ho when they went to investigate the sabotage of the map room. Thomas had noticed them exchange an odd look before they split up, almost as if communicating some secret with their eyes. But Thomas could think of only one thing. Teresa? he asked. Her face appeared, hands rubbing her eyes. Was anybody killed? she asked, somewhat groggy. Were you sleeping? Thomas asked. He was relieved to see that she appeared okay, felt himself relax. I was, she responded, until I heard something shred the homestead to bits. What happened? Thomas shook his head in disbelief. I don't know how you could have slept through the sound of all those grievers out there. You try coming out of a coma sometime. See how you do. Now answer my question, she said inside his head. Thomas blinked, momentarily surprised by the voice, since she hadn't done it in a while. Cut that junk out. Just tell me what happened. Thomas sighed. It was such a long story, and he didn't feel like telling the whole thing. You don't know, Galley, but he's a psycho kid who ran away. He showed up, jumped on a griever, and they all took off into the maze. It was really weird. He still couldn't believe it had actually happened. Which is saying a lot, Teresa said. Yeah. He looked behind him, hoping to see Albie somewhere. Surely he'd let Teresa out now. Gladers were scattered all over the complex, but there was no sign of their leader. He turned back to Teresa. I just don't get it. Why would the grievers have left after getting Galley? He said something about them killing us one a night until we were all dead. He said it at least twice. Teresa put her hands through the bars, rested her forearms against the concrete sill. Just one a night? Why? I don't know. He also said it had to do with trials or variables, something like that. Thomas had the same strange urge he'd had the night before, to reach out and take one of her hands. He stopped himself, though. Tom, I was thinking about what you told me I said— that the maze is a code. Being holed up in here does wonders for making the brain do what it was made for. What do you think it means? Intensely interested, he tried to block out the shouts and chatter rumbling through the glade as others found out about the map room being burned. Well, the walls move every day, right? Yeah. He could tell she was really on to something. And Minho said they think there's a pattern, right? Right? Gears were starting to shift into place inside Thomas's head as well, 
almost as if a prior memory was beginning to break loose. Well, I can't remember why I said that to you about the code. I know when I was coming out of the coma, all sorts of thoughts and memories swirled through my head like crazy, almost as if I could feel someone emptying my mind, sucking them out. And I felt like I needed to say that thing about the code before I lost it. So there must be an important reason. Thomas almost didn't hear. He was thinking harder than he had in a while. They always compare each section's map to the one from the day before, and the day before that, and the day before that, day by day, each runner just analyzing their own section. What if they're supposed to compare the maps to other sections? He trailed off, feeling like he was on the cusp of something. Teresa seemed to ignore him, doing her own theorizing. The first thing the word code makes me think of is letters, letters in the alphabet. Maybe the maze is trying to spell something. Everything came together so quickly in Thomas's mind, he almost heard an audible click, as if the pieces all snapped into place at once. You're right! You're right! But the runners had been looking at it wrong this whole time. They'd been analyzing it the wrong way. Teresa gripped the bars now, her knuckles white, her face pressed against the iron rods. What? What are you talking about? Thomas grabbed the two bars outside of where she held on, moved close enough to smell her, a surprisingly pleasant scent of sweat and flowers. Minho said the patterns repeat themselves, only they can't figure out what it means. But they've always studied them section by section, comparing one day to the next. What if each day is a separate piece of the code, and they're supposed to use all eight sections together somehow? You think maybe each day is trying to reveal a word? Teresa asked. With the wall movements? Thomas nodded. Or maybe a letter a day, I don't know. But they've always thought the movements would reveal how to escape, not spell something. They've been studying it like a map, not like a picture of something. We've got a... Then he stopped, remembering what he'd just been told by Newt. Oh, no. Teresa's eyes flared with worry. What's wrong? Oh, no, oh, no, oh, no. Thomas let go of the bars and stumbled back a step as the realization hit him. He turned to look at the map room. The smoke had lessened, but it still wafted out the door, a dark, hazy cloud covering the entire area. What's wrong? Teresa repeated. She couldn't see the map room from her angle. Thomas faced her again. I didn't think it mattered. What? she demanded. Someone burned all the maps. If there was a code, it's gone. Chapter 41 I'll be back, Thomas said, turning to go. His stomach was full of acid. I gotta find Newt, see if any of the maps survived. Wait, Teresa yelled. Get me out of here. But there was no time, and Thomas felt awful about it. I can't. I'll be back, I promise. He turned before she could protest and set off at a sprint for the map room in its foggy black cloud of smoke. Needles of pain pricked his insides. If Teresa was right, and they'd been that close to figuring out some kind of clue to get out of there, only to see it literally lost in flames, it was so upsetting it hurt. The first thing Thomas saw when he ran up was a group of gladers huddled just outside the large steel door, still ajar, its outer edge blackened with soot. But as he got closer, 
he realized they were surrounding something on the ground, all of them looking down at it. He spotted Newt, kneeling there in the middle, leaning over a body. Minho was standing behind him, looking distraught and dirty, and spotted Thomas first. Where'd you go? he asked. To talk to Teresa. What happened? He waited anxiously for the next dump of bad news. Minho's forehead creased in anger. Our map room was set on fire, and you ran off to talk to your shuck girlfriend? What's wrong with you? Thomas knew the rebuke should have stung, but his mind was too preoccupied. I didn't think it mattered anymore. If you haven't figured out the maps by now... Minho looked disgusted, the pale light and fog of smoke making his face seem almost sinister. Yeah, this'd be a great freaking time to give up. What the... I'm sorry. Just tell me what happened. Thomas leaned over the shoulder of a skinny boy standing in front of him to get a look at the body on the ground. It was Albie, flat on his back, a huge gash on his forehead. Blood seeped down both sides of his head, some into his eyes, crusting there. Newt was cleaning it with a wet rag, gingerly, asking questions in a whisper too low to hear. Thomas, concerned for Albie despite his recent ill-tempered ways, turned back to Minho and repeated his question. Winston found him out here, half dead, the map room blazing. Some shanks got in there and put it out, but way too late. All the trunks are burned to a freaking crisp. I suspected Albie at first, but whoever did it slammed his shuck head against the table. You can see where. It's nasty. Who do you think did it? Thomas was hesitant to tell him about the possible discovery he and Teresa had made. With no maps, the point was moot. Maybe Galley before he showed up in the homestead and went psycho? Maybe the Grievers? I don't know, and I don't care. Doesn't matter. Thomas was surprised at the sudden change of heart. Now who's the one giving up? Minho's head snapped up so quickly, Thomas took a step backward. There was a flash of anger there, but it quickly melted into an odd expression of surprise or confusion. That's not what I meant, Shank. Thomas narrowed his eyes in curiosity. What did? Just shut your hole for now. Minho put his fingers to his lips, his eyes darting around to see if anyone was looking at him. Just shut your hole. You'll find out soon enough. Thomas took a deep breath and thought. If he expected the other boys to be honest, he should be honest too. He decided he'd better share about the possible maze code, maps or no maps. Minho, I need to tell you and Newt something. And we need to let Teresa out. She's probably starving and we could use her help. That stupid girl is the last thing I'm worried about. Thomas ignored the insult. Just give us a few minutes. We have an idea. Maybe it'll still work if enough runners remember their maps. This seemed to get Minho's full attention. But again, there was the same strange look, as if Thomas was missing something very obvious. An idea? What? Just come over to the slammer with me. You and Newt. Minho thought for a second. Newt, he called out. Yeah. Newt stood up, refolding his bloody rag to find a clean spot. Thomas couldn't help noticing that every inch was drenched in red. Minho pointed down at Albie. Let the medjacks take care of him. We need to talk. Newt gave him a questioning look, then handed the rag to the closest glader. Go find Clint. Tell him we got worse problems than guys with bogan splinters. 
When the kid ran off to do as he was told, Newt stepped away from Albie. Talk about what? Minho nodded at Thomas, but didn't say anything. Just come with me, Thomas said. Then he turned and headed for the slammer without waiting for a response. Let her out. Thomas stood by the cell door, arms folded. Let her out, and then we'll talk. Trust me, you want to hear it. Newt was covered in soot and dirt, his hair matted with sweat. He certainly didn't seem to be in a very good mood. Tommy, this is... Please, just open it. Let her out. Please. He wouldn't give up this time. Minho stood in front of the door with his hands on his hips. How can we trust her? he asked. Soon as she woke up, the whole place fell to pieces. She even admitted she triggered something. He's got a point, Newt said. Thomas gestured through the door at Teresa. We can trust her. Every time I've talked to her, it's something about trying to get out of here. She was sent here just like the rest of us. It's stupid to think she's responsible for any of this. Newt grunted. What the bloody shuck did she mean by saying she triggered something? Thomas shrugged, refusing to admit that Newt had a good point. There had to be an explanation. Who knows? Her mind was doing all kinds of weird stuff when she woke up. Maybe we all went through that in the box, talking gibberish before we came totally awake. Just let her out. Newt and Minho exchanged a long look. Come on, Thomas insisted. What's she gonna do, run around and stab every glader to death? Come on. Minho sighed. Fine, just let the stupid girl out. I'm not stupid, Teresa shouted, her voice muffled by the walls. And I can hear every word you morons are saying. Newt's eyes widened. Real sweet girl you picked up, Tommy. Just hurry, Thomas said. I'm sure we have a lot to do before the grievers come back tonight, if they don't come during the day. Newt grunted and stepped up to the slammer, pulling his keys out as he did so. A few clinks later, the door swung wide open. Come on. Teresa walked out of the small building, glowering at Newt as she passed him. She gave a just as unpleasant glance toward Minho, then stopped to stand right next to Thomas. Her arm brushed against his. Tingles shot across his skin, and he felt mortally embarrassed. All right, talk, Minho said. What's so important? Thomas looked at Teresa, wondering how to say it. What? she said. You talk. They obviously think I'm a serial killer. Yeah, you look so dangerous, Thomas muttered, but he turned his attention to Newt and Minho. Okay, when Teresa was first coming out of her deep sleep, she had memories flashing through her mind. She, uh... He just barely stopped himself from saying she'd set it inside his mind. She told me later that she remembers that the maze is a code that maybe instead of solving it to find a way out, it's trying to send us a message. A code? Minho asked. How is it a code? Thomas shook his head, wishing he could answer. I don't know for sure. You're way more familiar with the maps than I am. But I have a theory. That's why I was hoping you guys could remember some of them. Minho glanced at Newt, his eyebrows raised in question. Newt nodded. What? Thomas asked fed up with them keeping information from him. You guys keep acting like you have a secret. Minho rubbed his eyes with both hands, took a deep breath. We hid the maps, Thomas. At first it didn't compute. 
Huh? Minho pointed at the homestead. We hid the freaking maps in the weapons room, put dummies in their place. Because of Albie's warning, and because of the so-called ending your girlfriend triggered. Thomas was so excited to hear this news, he temporarily forgot how awful things had become. He remembered Minho acting suspicious the day before, saying he had a special assignment. Thomas looked over at Newt, who nodded. They're all safe and sound, Minho said. Every last one of those suckers. So if you have a theory, get talking. Take me to them, Thomas said, itching to have a look. Okay, let's go. Chapter 42 Minho switched on the light, making Thomas squint for a second until his eyes got used to it. Menacing shadows clung to the boxes of weapons scattered across the table and floor, blades and sticks and other nasty-looking devices seeming to wait there, ready to take on a life of their own and kill the first person stupid enough to come close. The dank, musty smell only added to the creepy feel of the room. There's a hidden storage closet back here, Minho explained, walking past some shelves into a dark corner. Only a couple of us know about it. Thomas heard the creak of an old wooden door, and then Minho was dragging a cardboard box across the floor. The scrape of it sounded like a knife on bone. I put each trunk's worth in its own box. Eight boxes total. They're all in there. Which one is this? Thomas asked. He knelt down next to it, eager to get started. Just open it and see. Each page is marked, remember? Thomas pulled on the crisscrossed lid flaps until they popped open. The maps for Section 2 lay in a messy heap. Thomas reached in and pulled out a stack. Okay, he said. The runners have always compared these day to day, looking to see if there was a pattern that would somehow help figure out a way to an exit. You even said you didn't really know what you were looking for, but you kept studying them anyway, right? Minho nodded, arms folded. He looked as if someone were about to reveal the secret of immortal life. Well, Thomas continued, what if all the wall movements had nothing to do with a map or a maze or anything like that? What if instead the pattern spelled words? Some kind of clue that'll help us escape? Minho pointed at the maps in Thomas's hand, letting out a frustrated sigh. Dude, you have any idea how much we've studied these things? Don't you think we would have noticed if it were spelling out freaking words? Maybe it's too hard to see with a naked eye, just comparing one day to the next. And maybe you weren't supposed to compare one day to the next, but look at it one day at a time. Newt laughed. Tommy, I might not be the sharpest guy in the glade, but sounds like you're talking straight out of your butt to me. While he'd been talking, Thomas's mind had been spinning even faster. The answer was within his grasp. He knew he was almost there. It was just so hard to put it into words. Okay, okay, he said, starting over. You've always had one runner assigned to one section, right? Right, Minho replied. He seemed genuinely interested and ready to understand. And that runner makes a map every day and then compares it to maps from previous days for that section. What if instead you were supposed to compare the eight sections to each other every day? each day being a separate clue or code. Did you ever compare sections to other sections? Minho rubbed his chin, nodding. Yeah, kind of. We tried to see if they made something when put together. Of course we did that. We've tried everything. 
Thomas pulled his legs up underneath him, studying the maps in his lap. He could just barely see the lines of the maze written on the second page through the page resting on top. In that instant, he knew what they had to do. He looked up at the others. Wax paper. Huh? Minho asked. What the? Just trust me. We need wax paper and scissors, and every black marker and pencil you can find. Frypan wasn't too happy having a whole box of his wax paper rolls taken away from him, especially with their supplies being cut off. He argued that it was one of the things he always requested, that he used it for baking. They finally had to tell him what they needed it for to convince him to give it up. After ten minutes of hunting down pencils and markers, most had been in the map room and were destroyed in the fire, Thomas sat around the work table in the weapons basement with Newt, Minho, and Teresa. They hadn't found any scissors, so Thomas had grabbed the sharpest knife he could find. This better be good, Minho said. Warning laced his voice, but his eyes showed some interest. Newt leaned forward, putting his elbows on the table as if waiting for a magic trick. Get on with it, Greeny. Okay. Thomas was eager to do so, but was also scared to death it might end up being nothing. He handed the knife to Minho, then pointed at the wax paper. Start cutting rectangles, about the size of the maps. Newt and Teresa, you can help me grab the first ten or so maps from each section box. What is this, kitty craft time? Minho held up the knife and looked at it with disgust. Why don't you just tell us what the clunk we're doing this for? I'm done explaining, Thomas said, knowing they just had to see what he was picturing in his mind. He stood to go rummage through the storage closet. It'll be easier to show you. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong, and we can go back to running around the maze like mice. Minho sighed, clearly irritated, then muttered something under his breath. Teresa had stayed quiet for a while, but she spoke up inside Thomas's head. I think I know what you're doing. Brilliant, actually. Thomas was startled, but he tried his best to cover it up. He knew he had to pretend he didn't have voices in his head. The others would think he was a lunatic. Just come help me, he tried to say back, thinking each word separately, trying to visualize the message. Send it. But she didn't respond. Teresa, he said aloud, can you help me a second? He nodded toward the closet. The two of them went into the dusty little room and opened up all the boxes, grabbing a small stack of maps from each one. Returning to the table, Thomas found that Min Ho had cut twenty sheets already, making a messy pile to his right as he threw each new piece on top. Thomas sat down and grabbed a few. He held one of the papers up to the light, saw how it shone through with a milky glow. It was exactly what he needed. He grabbed a marker. All right, everybody trace the last ten or so days onto a piece of this stuff. Make sure you write the info on top so we can keep track of what's what. When we're done, I think we might see something. What? Minho began. Just bloody keep cutting, Newt ordered. I think I know where he's going with this. Thomas was relieved someone was finally getting it. They got to work, tracing from original maps to wax paper, one by one, trying to keep it clean and correct while hurrying as fast as possible. Thomas used the side of a stray slab of wood as a makeshift ruler, keeping his lines straight. Soon he'd completed five maps, then five more. The others kept the same pace, working feverishly. 
As Thomas drew, he started to feel a tickle of panic, a sick feeling that what they were doing was a complete waste of time. But Teresa, sitting next to him, was a study in concentration. Her tongue sticking out the corner of her mouth as she traced lines up and down, side to side. She seemed way more confident that they were definitely on to something. Box by box, section by section, they continued on. I've had enough, Newt finally announced, breaking the quiet. My fingers are bloody burning like a mother. See if it's working. Thomas put his marker down, then flexed his fingers, hoping he'd been right about all this. Okay. Give me the last few days of each section. Make piles along the table, in order from section one to section eight. One here, he pointed at an end. To eight here, he pointed at the other end. Silently, they did as he asked, sorting through what they'd traced until eight low stacks of wax paper lined the table. Jittery and nervous, Thomas picked up one page from each pile, making sure they were all from the same day, keeping them in order. He then laid them one on top of the other so that each drawing of the maze matched the same day above it and below it, until he was looking at eight different sections of the maze at once. What he saw amazed him. Almost magically, like a picture coming into focus, an image developed. Teresa let out a small gasp. Lines crossed each other up and down, so much so that what Thomas held in his hands looked like a checkered grid. But certain lines in the middle, lines that happened to appear more often than any other, made a slightly darker image than the rest. It was subtle, but it was, without a doubt, there. Sitting in the exact center of the page was the letter F. Chapter 43 Thomas felt a rush of different emotions, relief that it had worked, surprise, excitement, wonder at what it could lead to. Man, Minho said, summing up Thomas's feelings with one word. Could be a coincidence, Teresa said. Do more, quick. Thomas did, putting together the eight pages of each day, in order from section one to section eight. Each time, an obvious letter formed in the center of the crisscrossed mass of lines. After the F was an L, then an O, then an A, and a T, then C-A-T. Look, Thomas said, pointing down the line of stacks they'd formed, confused but happy that the letters were so obvious. It spells float, and then it spells cat. Float cat, Newt asked. Doesn't sound like a bloody rescue code to me. We just need to keep working, Thomas said. Another couple of combinations made them realize that the second word was actually catch. Float and catch. Definitely not a coincidence, Minho said. Definitely not, Thomas agreed. He couldn't wait to see more. Teresa gestured toward the storage closet. We need to go through all of them, all those boxes in there. Yeah, Thomas nodded. Let's get on it. We can't help, Minho said. All three of them looked at him. He returned their glares. At least not me and Thomas here. We need to get the runners out in the maze. What? Thomas asked. This is way more important. Maybe, Minho answered calmly. But we can't miss a day out there. Not now. Thomas felt a rush of disappointment. Running the maze seemed like such a waste of time compared to figuring out the code. Why, Minho? 
You said the pattern's basically been repeating itself for months. One more day won't mean a thing. Minho slammed his hand against the table. That's bullcrap, Thomas. Of all days, this might be the most important to get out there. Something might have changed. Something might have opened up. In fact, with the freaking walls not closing anymore, I think we should try your idea. Stay out there overnight and do some deeper exploring. That piqued Thomas's interest. He had been wanting to do that. Conflicted, he asked, But what about this code? What about... Tommy, Newt said in a consoling voice. Minho's right. You shanks go out and get running. I'll round up some gladers we can trust and get working on this. Newt sounded more like a leader than ever before. Me too, Teresa agreed. I'll stay and help Newt. Thomas looked at her. You sure? He was itching to figure out the code himself, but he decided Minho and Newt were right. She smiled and folded her arms. If you're going to decipher a hidden code from a complex set of different mazes, I'm pretty sure you need a girl's brain running the show. Her grin turned into a smirk. If you say so. He folded his own arms, staring at her with a smile, suddenly not wanting to leave again. Good that, Minho nodded and turned to go. Everything's fine and dandy. Come on. He started toward the door, but stopped when he realized Thomas wasn't behind him. Don't worry, Tommy, Newt said. Your girlfriend will be fine. Thomas felt a million thoughts go through his head in that moment. An itch to learn the code, embarrassment at what Newt thought of him and Teresa, the intrigue of what they might find out in the maze, and fear. But he pushed it all aside. Without even saying goodbye, he finally followed Min Ho, and they went up the stairs. Thomas helped Minho gather the runners to give them the news and organize them for the big journey. He was surprised at how readily everyone agreed that it was time to do some more in-depth exploring of the maze and stay out there overnight. Even though he was nervous and scared, he told Minho he could take one of the sections himself, but the keeper refused. They had eight experienced runners to do that. Thomas was to go with him, which made Thomas so relieved he was almost ashamed of himself. He and Minho packed their backpacks with more supplies than usual. There was no telling how long they'd be out there. Despite his fear, Thomas couldn't help being excited as well. Maybe this was the day they'd find an exit. He and Minho were stretching their legs by the west door when Chuck walked over to say goodbye. I'd go with you, the boy said in a far too jovial voice, but I don't want to die a gruesome death. Thomas laughed, surprising himself. Thanks for the words of encouragement. Be careful, Chuck said, his tone quickly melting into genuine concern. I wish I could help you guys. Thomas was touched. He bet that if it really came down to it, Chuck would go out there if he were asked to. Thanks, Chuck. We'll definitely be careful. Minho grunted. Being careful hasn't gotten a squat. It's all or nothing now, baby. We better get going, Thomas said. Butterflies swarmed in his gut, but he just wanted to move, to quit thinking about it. After all, going out in the maze was no worse than staying in the glade with open doors, though the thought didn't make him feel much better. Yeah, Minho responded evenly. Let's go. Well, Chuck said, looking down at his feet before returning his gaze to Thomas. Good luck. If your girlfriend gets lonely for you, I'll give her some lovin'. Thomas rolled his eyes. She's not my girlfriend, Chuck face. Wow, Chuck said. 
You're already using Albie's dirty words. He was obviously trying hard to pretend he wasn't scared of all the recent developments, but his eyes revealed the truth. Seriously, good luck. Thanks, that means a lot, Minho answered with his own eye roll. See ya, Shank. Yeah, see ya, Chuck muttered, then turned to walk away. Thomas felt a pang of sadness. It was possible he might never see Chuck or Teresa or any of them again. A sudden urge gripped him. Don't forget my promise, he yelled. I'll get you home. Chuck turned and gave him a thumbs up. His eyes glimmered with tears. Thomas flipped up double thumbs. Then he and Minho pulled on their backpacks and entered the maze. Chapter 44 Thomas and Minho didn't stop until they were halfway to the last dead end of Section 8. They made good time. Thomas was glad for his wristwatch with the skies being gray, because it quickly became obvious that the walls hadn't moved from the day before. Everything was exactly the same. There was no need for map-making or taking notes. Their only task was to get to the end and start making their way back, searching for things previously unnoticed, anything. Minho allowed a twenty-minute break, and then they were back at it. They were silent as they ran. Minho had taught Thomas that speaking only wasted energy, so he concentrated on his pace and his breaths. Regular, even. In, out. In, out. Deeper and deeper into the maze they went, with only their thoughts and the sounds of their feet thumping against the hard stone floor. In the third hour, Teresa surprised him, speaking in his mind from back in the glade. We're making progress. Found a couple more words already. But none of it makes sense yet. Thomas's first instinct was to ignore her, to deny once again that someone had the ability to enter his mind, invade his privacy. But he wanted to talk to her. Can you hear me? he asked, picturing the words in his mind, mentally throwing them out to her in some way he could never have explained. Concentrating, he said it again. Can you hear me? Yes, she replied. Really clearly the second time you said it. Thomas was shocked. So shocked he almost quit running. It had worked. Wonder why we can do this, he called out with his mind. The mental effort of speaking to her was already straining. He felt a headache forming like a bulge in his brain. Maybe we were lovers, Teresa said. Thomas tripped and crashed to the ground, smiling sheepishly at Min Ho, who'd turned to look without slowing. Thomas got back up and caught up to him. What? he finally asked. He sensed a laugh from her, a watery image full of color. This is so bizarre, she said. It's like you're a stranger, but I know you're not. Thomas felt a pleasant chill, even though he was sweating. Sorry to break it to you, but we are strangers. I just met you, remember? Don't be stupid, Tom. I think someone altered our brains— put something in there so we could do this telepathy thing before we came here, which makes me think we already knew each other. It was something he'd wondered about, and he thought she was probably right. Hoped it, anyway. He was really starting to like her. Brains altered, he asked. How? I don't know. Some memory I can't quite grasp. I think we did something big. Thomas thought about how he'd always felt a connection to her, ever since she arrived in the glade. 
He wanted to dig a little more and see what she said. What are you talking about? Wish I knew. I'm just trying to bounce ideas off you to see if it sparks anything in your mind. Thomas thought about what Galley, Ben, and Albie had said about him, their suspicions that he was against them somehow, was someone not to trust. He thought about what Teresa had said to him too, the very first time, that he and she had somehow done all of this to them. This code has to mean something, she added. And the thing I wrote on my arm, wicked is good. Maybe it won't matter, he answered. Maybe we'll find an exit. You never know. Thomas squeezed his eyes shut for a few seconds as he ran, trying to concentrate. A pocket of air seemed to float in his chest every time they spoke, a swelling that half annoyed and half thrilled him. His eyes popped back open when he realized she could maybe read his thoughts, even when he wasn't trying to communicate. He waited for a response, but none came. You still there? he asked. Yeah, but this always gives me a headache. Thomas was relieved to hear he wasn't the only one. My head hurts too. Okay, she said. See you later. No, wait. He didn't want her to leave. She was helping the time pass, making the running easier somehow. Bye, Tom. I'll let you know if we figure anything out. Teresa, what about the thing you wrote on your arm? Several seconds passed. No reply. Teresa? She was gone. Thomas felt as if that bubble of air in his chest had burst, releasing toxins into his body. His stomach hurt, and the thought of running the rest of the day suddenly depressed him. In some ways, he wanted to tell Minho about how he and Teresa could talk, to share what was happening before it made his brain explode. But he didn't dare. Throwing telepathy into the whole situation didn't seem like the grandest of ideas. Everything was weird enough already. Thomas put his head down and drew in a long, deep breath. He would just keep his mouth shut and run. Two breaks later, Minho finally slowed to a walk as they headed down a long corridor that ended in a wall. He stopped and took a seat against the dead end. The ivy was especially thick there. It made the world seem green and lush, hiding the hard, impenetrable stone. Thomas joined him on the ground, and they attacked their modest lunch of sandwiches and sliced fruit. This is it, Minho said after his second bite. We've already run through the whole section. Surprise, surprise, no exits. Thomas already knew this, but hearing it made his heart sink even lower. Without another word, from himself or Minho, he finished his food and readied himself to explore. To look for who knew what. For the next few hours, he and Minho scoured the ground, felt along the walls, climbed up the ivy in random spots. They found nothing, and Thomas grew more and more discouraged. The only thing interesting was another one of those odd signs that read, World in Catastrophe, Kill Zone Experiment Department. Minho didn't even give it a second glance. They had another meal, searched some more. They found nothing and Thomas was beginning to get ready to accept the inevitable, that there was nothing to find. When wall-closing time rolled around, he started looking for signs of grievers, was struck by an icy hesitation at every corner. He and Minho always had knives clasped firmly in both hands, but nothing showed up until almost midnight. Minho spotted a griever disappearing around a corner ahead of them, 
and it didn't come back. Thirty minutes later, Thomas saw one do the exact same thing. An hour after that, a griever came charging through the maze right past them, not even pausing. Thomas almost collapsed from the sudden rush of terror. He and Minho continued on. I think they're playing with us, Minho said a while later. Thomas realized he'd given up on searching the walls and was just heading back toward the glade in a depressed walk. From the looks of it, Minho felt the same way. What do you mean? Thomas asked. The keeper sighed. I think the creators want us to know there's no way out. The walls aren't even moving anymore. It's like this has all just been some stupid game and it's time to end. And they want us to go back and tell the other gladers. How much you want to bet when we get back we find out a griever took one of them just like last night? I think Galley was right. They're going to just keep killing us. Thomas didn't respond, felt the truth of what Minho said. Any hope he'd felt earlier when they'd set out had crashed a long time ago. Let's just go home, Minho said, his voice weary. Thomas hated to admit defeat, but he nodded in agreement. The code seemed like their only hope now, and he resolved to focus on that. He and Minho made their way silently back to the glade. They didn't see another griever the whole way. Chapter 45 by Thomas's watch, it was mid-morning when he and Minho stepped through the west door back into the glade. Thomas was so tired he wanted to lie down right there and take a nap. They'd been in the maze for roughly twenty-four hours. Surprisingly, despite the dead light and everything falling apart, the day in the glade appeared to be proceeding business as usual, farming, gardening, cleaning. It didn't take long for some of the boys to notice them standing there. Newt was notified, and he came running. "'You're the first to come back,' he said as he walked up to them. "'What happened?' The childlike look of hope on his face broke Thomas's heart. He obviously thought they'd found something important. "'Tell me you've got good news.' Minho's eyes were dead, staring at a spot somewhere in the gray distance. "'Nothing,' he said. "'The maze is a big freaking joke.' Newt looked at Thomas, confused. What's he talking about? He's just discouraged, Thomas said with a weary shrug. We didn't find anything different. The walls haven't moved, no exits, nothing. Did the grievers come last night? Newt paused, darkness passing over his face. Finally, he nodded. Yeah, they took Adam. Thomas didn't know the name and felt guilty for feeling nothing. Just one person again, he thought. Maybe Galley was right. Newt was about to say something else when Minho freaked out, startling Thomas. I'm sick of this! Minho spat in the ivy, veins popping out of his neck. I'm sick of it! It's over! It's all over! He took off his backpack and threw it on the ground. There's no exit! Never was! Never will be! We're all shucked! Thomas watched, his throat dry, as Minho stomped off toward the homestead. It worried him. If Minho gave up, they were all in big trouble. Newt didn't say a word. He left Thomas standing there, now in his own days. Despair hung in the air like the smoke from the map room, thick and acrid. The other runners returned within the hour, and from what Thomas heard, none of them had found anything, and they'd eventually given up as well. 
Glum faces were everywhere throughout the glade, and most of the workers had abandoned their daily jobs. Thomas knew that the code of the maze was their only hope now. It had to reveal something. It had to. And after aimlessly wandering the glade to hear the other runners' stories, he snapped out of his funk. Teresa, he said in his mind, closing his eyes, as if that would do the trick. Where are you? Did you figure anything out? After a long pause, he almost gave up, thinking it didn't work. Huh? Tom, did you say something? Yeah, he said, excited he'd made contact again. Can you hear me? Am I doing this thing right? Sometimes it's choppy, but it's working. Kind of freaky, huh? Thomas thought about that. Actually, he was sort of getting used to it. It's not so bad. Are you guys still in the basement? I saw Newt, but then he disappeared again. Still here. Newt had three or four gladers help us trace the maps. I think we have the code all figured out. Thomas's heart leaped into his throat. Serious? Get down here. I'm coming. He was already moving as he said it, somehow not feeling so exhausted anymore. Newt let him in. Ninho still hasn't shown up, he said as they walked down the stairs to the basement. Sometimes he turns into a buggin' hothead. Thomas was surprised Minho was wasting time sulking, especially with the code possibilities. He pushed the thought aside as he entered the room. Several gladers he didn't know were gathered around the table, standing. They all looked exhausted, their eyes sunken. Piles of maps lay scattered all over the place, including the floor. It looked as if a tornado had touched down right in the middle of the room. Teresa was leaning against a stack of shelves, reading a single sheet of paper. She glanced up when he entered, but then returned her gaze to whatever it was she held. This saddened him a little. He'd hoped she'd be happy to see him. But then he felt really stupid for even having the thought. She was obviously busy figuring out the code. You have to see this, Teresa said to him just as Newt dismissed his helpers. They clomped up the wooden stairs, a couple of them grumbling about doing all that work for nothing. Thomas started, for a brief moment worried that Newt could tell what was going on. Don't talk in my head while Newt's around. I don't want him knowing about our... gift. Come check this out, she said aloud, barely hiding the smirk that flashed across her face. I'll get down on my knees and kiss your bloody feet if you can figure it out, Newt said. Thomas walked over to Teresa eager to see what they'd come up with. She held out the paper, eyebrows raised. No doubt this is right, she said. Just don't have a clue what it means. Thomas took the paper and scanned it quickly. There were numbered circles running down the left side, one to six. Next to each one was a word written in big blocky letters. Float, catch, bleed, death, stiff, push. That was it. Six words. Disappointment washed over Thomas. He'd been sure the purpose of the code would be obvious once they had it figured out. He looked up at Teresa with a sunken heart. That's all? Are you sure they're in the right order? She took the paper back from him. The maze has been repeating those words for months. We finally quit when that became clear. Each time, after the word push, it goes a full week without showing any letter at all, and then it starts over again with float. So we figured that's the first word, and that's the order. Thomas folded his arms and leaned against the shelves next to Teresa. 
Without thinking about it, he'd memorized the six words, welded them to his mind. Float, catch, bleed, death, stiff, push. That didn't sound good. Cheerful, don't you think? Newt said, mirroring his thoughts exactly. Yeah, Thomas replied with a frustrated groan. We need to get Min Ho down here. Maybe he knows something we don't. If we just had more clues. He froze, hit by a dizzy spell. He would have fallen to the floor if he hadn't had the shelves to lean on. An idea had just occurred to him. A horrible, terrible, awful idea. The worst idea in the history of horrible, terrible, awful ideas. But instinct told him he was right, that it was something he had to do. Tommy, Newt asked, stepping closer with a look of concern creasing his forehead. What's wrong with you? Your face just went white as a ghost. Thomas shook his head, composing himself. Oh, nothing, sorry. My eyes are hurting. I think I need some sleep. He rubbed his temples for effect. Are you okay? Teresa asked in his mind. He looked to see that she was as worried as Newt, which made him feel good. Yeah, seriously, I'm tired. I just need some rest. Well, Newt said, reaching out to squeeze Thomas's shoulder. You spent all bloody night out in the maze. Go take a nap. Thomas looked at Teresa, then at Newt. He wanted to share his idea, but decided against it. Instead, he just nodded and headed for the stairs. All the same, Thomas now had a plan. As bad as it was, he had a plan. They needed more clues about the code. They needed memories. So he was going to get stung by a griever, go through the changing, on purpose. Chapter 46 Thomas refused to talk to anyone the rest of the day. Teresa tried several times, but he kept telling her he didn't feel good, that he just wanted to be alone and sleep in his spot behind the forest, maybe spend some time thinking. Try to discover a hidden secret within his mind that would help them know what to do. But in truth, he was psyching himself up for what he had planned for that evening, convincing himself it was the right thing to do, the only thing to do. Plus, he was absolutely terrified, and he didn't want the others to notice. Eventually, when his watch showed that evening had arrived, he went to the homestead with everyone else. He barely noticed he'd been hungry until he started eating Frypan's hastily prepared meal of biscuits and tomato soup. And then it was time for another sleepless night. The builders had boarded up the gaping holes left by the monsters who'd carried off Galley and Adam. The end result looked to Thomas like an army of drunk guys had done the work, but it was solid enough. Newt and Albie, who finally felt well enough to walk around again, his head heavily bandaged, insisted on a plan for everyone to rotate where they slept each night. Thomas ended up in the large living room on the bottom floor of the homestead with the same people he'd slept with two nights before. Silence settled over the room quickly, though he didn't know if it was because people were actually asleep or just scared, quietly hoping against hope the grievers didn't come again. Unlike two nights ago, Teresa was allowed to stay in the building with the rest of the gladers. She was near him, curled up in two blankets. Somehow, he could sense that she was sleeping. Actually sleeping. Thomas certainly couldn't sleep, 
even though he knew his body needed it desperately. He tried. He tried so hard to keep his eyes closed, forced himself to relax. But he had no luck. The night dragged on, the heavy sense of anticipation like a weight on his chest. Then, just as they'd all expected, came the mechanical, haunted sounds of the grievers outside. The time had come. Everyone crowded together against the wall farthest from the windows, doing their best to keep quiet. Thomas huddled in a corner next to Teresa, hugging his knees, staring at the window. The reality of the dreadful decision he'd made earlier squeezed his heart like a crushing fist. But he knew that everything might depend on it. The tension in the room rose at a steady pace. The gladers were quiet. Not a soul moved. A distant scraping of metal against wood echoed through the house. It sounded to Thomas like a griever was climbing on the backside of the homestead, opposite where they were. More noises joined in a few seconds later, coming from all directions, the closest right outside their own window. The air in the room seemed to freeze into solid ice, and Thomas pressed his fists against his eyes, the anticipation of the attack killing him. A booming explosion of ripping wood and broken glass thundered from somewhere upstairs, shaking the whole house. Thomas went numb as several screams erupted, followed by the pounding of fleeing footsteps. Loud creaks and groans announced a whole horde of gladers running to the first floor. "'It's got Dave!' someone yelled, the voice high-pitched with terror. No one in Thomas's room moved a muscle. He knew each of them was probably feeling guilty about their relief, that at least it wasn't them, that maybe they were safe for one more night. Two nights in a row, only one boy had been taken, and people had started to believe that what Galley had said was true. Thomas jumped as a terrible crash sounded right outside their door, accompanied by screams and the splintering of wood, like some iron-jawed monster was eating the entire stairwell. A second later came another explosion of ripping wood. The front door. The griever had come right through the house and was now leaving. An explosion of fear ripped through Thomas. It was now or never. He jumped up and ran to the door of the room, yanking it open. He heard Newt yell, but he ignored him and ran down the hall, sidestepping and jumping over hundreds of splintered pieces of wood. He could see that where the front door had been, there now stood a jagged hole leading out into the gray night. He headed straight for it and ran out into the glade. Tom! Teresa screamed inside his head. What are you doing? He ignored her. He just kept running. The griever holding Dave, a kid Thomas had never spoken to, was rolling along on its spikes toward the west door, churning and whirring. The other grievers had already gathered in the courtyard and followed their companion toward the maze. Without hesitating, knowing the others would think he was trying to commit suicide, Thomas sprinted in their direction until he found himself in the middle of the pack of creatures. Having been taken by surprise, the grievers hesitated. Thomas jumped on the one holding Dave, trying to jerk the kid free, hoping the creature would retaliate. Teresa's scream inside his mind was so loud it felt as if a dagger had been driven through his skull. Three of the grievers swarmed on him at once, their long pincers and claspers and needles flying in from all directions. Thomas flailed his arms and legs, 
knocking away the horrible metallic arms as he kicked at the pulsating blubber of the griever's bodies. He only wanted to be stung, not taken like Dave. Their relentless attack intensified, and Thomas felt pain erupt over every inch of his body, needle pricks that told him he'd succeeded. Screaming, he kicked and pushed and thrashed, throwing his body into a roll, trying to get away from them. Struggling, bursting with adrenaline, he finally found an open spot to get his feet under him and ran with all his power. As soon as he escaped the immediate reach of the griever's instruments, they gave up and retreated, disappearing into the maze. Thomas collapsed to the ground, groaning from the pain. Newt was on him in a second, followed immediately by Chuck, Teresa, several others. Newt grabbed him by the shoulders and lifted him up, gripping him under both arms. Get his legs, he yelled. Thomas felt the world swimming around him, felt delirious, nauseated. Someone, he couldn't tell who, obeyed Newt's order. He was being carried across the courtyard, through the front door of the homestead, down the shattered hall, into a room, placed on a couch. The world continued to twist and pitch. What were you doing? Newt yelled in his face. How could you be so bloody stupid? Thomas had to speak before he faded into blackness. No, Newt, you don't understand. Shut up, Newt shouted. Don't waste your energy. Thomas felt someone examining his arms and legs, ripping his clothes away from his body, checking for damage. He heard Chuck's voice, couldn't help feeling relief that his friend was okay. A medjack said something about him being stung dozens of times. Teresa was by his feet, squeezing his right ankle with her hand. Why, Tom? Why would you do that? Because... He didn't have the strength to concentrate. Newt yelled for the grief serum. A minute later, Thomas felt a pinprick on his arm. Warmth spread from that point throughout his body, calming him, lessening the pain. But the world still seemed to be collapsing in on itself, and he knew it would all be gone from him in just a few seconds. The room spun, colors morphing into each other, churning faster and faster. It took all of his effort, but he said one last thing before the darkness took him for good. Don't worry, he whispered, hoping they could hear him. I did it on purpose. Chapter 47 Thomas had no concept of time as he went through the changing. It started much like his first memory of the box, dark and cold. But this time he had no sensation of anything touching his feet or body. He floated in emptiness, stared into a void of black. He saw nothing, heard nothing, smelled nothing. It was as if someone had stolen his five senses, leaving him in a vacuum. Time stretched on, and on. Fear turned into curiosity, which turned into boredom. Finally, after an interminable wait, things began to change. A distant wind picked up, unfelt but heard. Then a swirling mist of whiteness appeared far in the distance, a spinning tornado of smoke that formed into a long funnel, stretching out until he could see neither the top nor the bottom of the white whirlwind. He felt the gales then, sucking into the cyclone so that it blew past him from behind, ripping at his clothes and hair like they were shredded flags caught in a storm. 
The tower of thick mist began to move toward him, or he was moving toward it, he couldn't tell, increasing its speed at an alarming rate. Where seconds before he'd been able to see the distinct form of the funnel, he now could see only a flat expanse of white. And then it consumed him. He felt his mind taken by the mist, felt memories flood into his thoughts. Everything else turned into pain. Chapter 48 Thomas! The voice was distant, warbled like an echo in a long tunnel. Thomas, can you hear me? He didn't want to answer. His mind had shut down when it could no longer take the pain. He feared it would all return if he allowed himself back into consciousness. He sensed light on the other side of his eyelids, but knew it would be unbearable to open them. He did nothing. Thomas, it's Chuck. Are you okay? Please don't die, dude. Everything came crashing back into his mind. The glade, the grievers, the stinging needle, the changing. Memories. The maze couldn't be solved. Their only way out was something they'd never expected. Something terrifying. He was crushed with despair. Groaning, he forced his eyes open, squinting at first. Chuck's pudgy face was there, staring with frightened eyes, but then they lit up and a smile spread across his face. Despite it all, despite the terrible crappiness of it all, Chuck smiled. He's awake, the boy yelled to no one in particular. Thomas is awake! The booming sound of his voice made Thomas wince. He shut his eyes again. Chuck! Do you have to scream? I don't feel so good. Sorry, I'm just glad you're alive. You're lucky I don't give you a big kiss. Please, don't do that, Chuck. Thomas opened his eyes again and forced himself to sit up in the bed in which he lay, pushing his back against the wall and stretching out his legs. Soreness aided his joints and muscles. How long did it take? he asked. Three days, Chuck answered. We put you in the slammer at night to keep you safe. Brought you back here during the days. Thought you were dead for sure about thirty times since you started. But check you out. You look brand new. Thomas could only imagine how non-great he looked. Did the grievers come? Chuck's jubilation visibly crashed to the ground as his eyes sank down toward the floor. Yeah, they got Zart and a couple others. One a night. Minho and the runners have scoured the maze, trying to find an exit or some use for that stupid code you guys came up with. But nothing. Why do you think the grievers are only taking one shank at a time? Thomas's stomach turned sour. He knew the exact answer to that question, and some others now. Enough to know that sometimes knowing sucked. Get nude and Albie, he finally said in answer. Tell them we need to have a gathering. Soon as possible. Serious? Thomas let out a sigh. Chuck, I just went through the changing. Do you think I'm serious? Without a word, Chuck jumped up and ran out of the room, his calls for Newt fading the farther he went. Thomas closed his eyes and rested his head against the wall. Then he called out to her with his mind. Teresa. She didn't answer at first but then her voice popped into his thoughts as clearly as if she were sitting next to him. 
That was really stupid, Tom. Really, really stupid. Had to do it, he answered. I pretty much hated you the last couple days. You should have seen yourself. Your skin, your veins. You hated me? He was thrilled she'd cared so much about him. She paused. That's just my way of saying I would have killed you if you'd died. Thomas felt a burst of warmth in his chest, reached up and actually touched it, surprised at himself. Well, thanks, I guess. So how much do you remember? He paused. Enough. What you said about the two of us and what we did to them, it was true? We did some bad things, Teresa. He sensed frustration from her, like she had a million questions and no idea where to start. Did you learn anything to help us get out of here? She asked, as if she didn't want to know what part she'd had in all of this. A purpose for the code? Thomas paused, not really wanting to talk about it yet, not before he really gathered his thoughts. Their only chance for escape might be a death wish. Maybe, he finally said. But it won't be easy. We need a gathering. I'll ask for you to be there. I don't have the energy to say it all twice. Neither one of them said anything for a while, a sense of hopelessness wafting between their minds. Teresa? Yeah? The maze can't be solved. She paused for a long time before answering. I think we all know that now. Thomas hated the pain in her voice. He could feel it in his mind. Don't worry. The Creator's meant for us to escape, though. I have a plan. He wanted to give her some hope, no matter how scarce. Oh, really? Yeah. It's terrible and some of us might die. Sound promising? Big time. What is it? We have to... Before he could finish, Newt walked into the room, cutting him off. I'll tell you later, Thomas quickly finished. Hurry, she said, then was gone. Newt had walked over to the bed and sat down next to him. Tommy, you barely look sick? Thomas nodded. I feel a little queasy, but other than that, I'm fine. Thought it'd be a lot worse. Newt shook his head, his face a mixture of anger and awe. What you did was half brave and half bloody stupid. Seems like you're pretty good at that. He paused, shook his head. I know why you did it. What memories came back? Anything that'll help? We need to have a gathering, Thomas said, shifting his legs to get more comfortable. Surprisingly, he didn't feel much pain, just wooziness. Before I start forgetting some of this stuff. Yeah, Chuck told me. We'll do it. But why? What did you figure out? It's a test, Newt. The whole thing is a test. Newt nodded. Like an experiment? Thomas shook his head. No, you don't get it. They're weeding us out, seeing if we'll give up, finding the best of us. Throwing variables at us, trying to make us quit. Testing our ability to hope and fight. Sending Teresa here and shutting everything down was only the last part, one more final analysis. Now it's time for the last test. To escape. Newt's brow crinkled in confusion. What do you mean? You know a way out? Yeah. Call the gathering. Now.
Chapter 49 An hour later, Thomas sat in front of the keepers for the gathering, just like he had a week or two before. They hadn't let Teresa in, which ticked him off just as much as it did her. Newt and Minho trusted her now, but the others still had their doubts. All right, Greeny, Albie said, looking much better as he sat in the middle of the semicircle of chairs next to Newt. The other chairs were all occupied except two, a stark reminder that Zart and Galley had been taken by the grievers. Forget all the beat around the bush, Clunk. Start talking. Thomas, still a bit queasy from the changing, forced himself to take a second and gain his composure. He had a lot to say, but wanted to be sure it came out sounding as non-stupid as possible. It's a long story, he began. We don't have time to go through it all, but I'll tell you the gist of it. When I went through the changing, I saw flashes of images, hundreds of them, like a slideshow in Fast Forward. A lot came back to me, but only some of it's clear enough to talk about. Other stuff has faded or is fading. He paused, gathering his thoughts one last time. But I remember enough. The creators are testing us. The maze was never meant to be solved. It's all been a trial. They want the winners, or survivors, to do something important. He trailed off, already confused at what order he should tell things in. What? Newt asked. Let me start over, Thomas said, rubbing his eyes. Every single one of us was taken when we were really young. I don't remember how or why, just glimpses and feelings that things had changed in the world, that something really bad had happened. I have no idea what. The creators stole us, and I think they felt justified in doing it. Somehow, they figured out that we have above-average intelligence, and that's why they chose us. I don't know. Most of this is sketchy and doesn't matter that much anyway. I can't remember anything about my family or what happened to them. But after we were taken, we spent the next few years learning in special schools, living somewhat normal lives until they were finally able to finance and build the maze. All our names are just stupid nicknames they made up, like Albie for Albert Einstein, Newt for Isaac Newton, and me, Thomas, as in Edison. Albie looked like he'd been slapped in the face. Our names? These ain't even our real names? Thomas shook his head. As far as I can tell, we'll probably never know what our names were. What are you saying? Frypan asked. That we're freaking orphans raised by scientists? Yes, Thomas said, hoping his expression didn't give away just how depressed he felt. Supposedly, we're really smart, and they're studying every move we make, analyzing us, seeing who'd give up and who wouldn't seeing who'd survive it all. No wonder we have so many beetle-blade spies running around this place. Plus, some of us have had things altered in our brains. I believe this clunk about as much as I believe Frypan's food is good for you, Winston grumbled, looking tired and indifferent. Why would I make this up? Thomas said, his voice rising. He'd gotten stung on purpose to remember these things. Better yet, what do you think is the explanation? That we live on an alien planet? Just keep talking, Albie said. But I don't get why none of us remembered this stuff. I've been through the changing, but everything I saw was... He looked around quickly, like he just said something he shouldn't have. I didn't learn nothing. 
I'll tell you in a minute why I think I learned more than others, Thomas said, dreading that part of the story. Should I keep going or not? Talk, Newt said. Thomas sucked in a big breath, as if he were about to start a race. Okay. Somehow, they wiped our memories, not just our childhood, but all the stuff leading up to entering the maze. They put us in the box and sent us up here, a big group to start, and then one a month over the last two years. But why? Newt asked. What's the bloody point? Thomas held up a hand for silence. I'm getting there. Like I said, they wanted to test us, see how we'd react to what they call the variables, and to a problem that has no solution. See if we could work together, build a community even. Everything was provided for us, and the problem was laid out as one of the most common puzzles known to civilization, a maze. All this added up to making us think there had to be a solution, just encouraging us to work all the harder while at the same time magnifying our discouragement at not finding one. He paused to look around, making sure they were all listening. What I'm saying is, there is no solution. Chatter broke out, questions overlapping each other. Thomas held his hands up again, wishing he could just zap his thoughts into everyone else's brain. See, your reaction proves my point. Most people would have given up by now. But I think we're different. We couldn't accept that a problem can't be solved, especially when it's something as simple as a maze. And we've kept fighting no matter how hopeless it's gotten. Thomas realized his voice had steadily risen as he spoke, and he felt heat in his face. Whatever the reason, it makes me sick. All of this, the grievers, the walls moving, the cliff, they're just elements of a stupid test. We're being used and manipulated. The creators wanted to keep our minds working toward a solution that was never there. Same thing goes for Teresa being sent here, her being used to trigger the ending, whatever that means. The place being shut down, gray skies, on and on and on. They're throwing crazy things at us to see our response, test our will, see if we'll turn on each other. In the end, they want the survivors for something important. Frypan stood up. In killing people, that's a nice little part of their plan. Thomas felt a moment of fear, worried that the keepers might take out their anger on him for knowing so much. And it was only about to get worse. Yes, Frypan, killing people. The only reason the grievers are doing it one by one is so we don't all die before it ends the way it's supposed to. Survival of the fittest. Only the best of us will escape. Frypan kicked his chair. Well, you better start talking about this magical escape, then. He will, Newt said quietly. Shut up and listen. Min Ho, who'd been mostly silent the whole time, cleared his throat. Something tells me I'm not going to like what I'm about to hear. Probably not, Thomas said. He closed his eyes for a second and folded his arms. The next few minutes were going to be crucial. The creators want the best of us for whatever it is they have planned. But we have to earn it. The room fell completely silent, every eye on him. The code. The code? Frypan repeated, his voice lighting up with a trace of hope. What about it? Thomas looked at him, paused for effect. It was hidden in the wall movements of the maze for a reason. I should know. I was there when the creators did it. Chapter 50 For a long moment, no one said anything, 
and all Thomas saw were blank faces. He felt the sweat beating on his forehead, slicking his hands. He was terrified to keep going. Newt looked completely baffled and finally broke the silence. What are you talking about? Well, first there's something I have to share. About me and Teresa. There's a reason Galley accused me of so much stuff, and why everyone who's gone through the changing recognizes me. He expected questions, an eruption of voices, but the room was dead silent. Teresa and I are... different, he continued. We were part of the maze trials from the very beginning, but against our will, I swear it. Min Ho was the one to speak up now. Thomas, what are you talking about? Teresa and I were used by the creators. If you had your full memories back, you'd probably want to kill us. But I had to tell you this myself to show you we can be trusted now, so you'll believe me when I tell you the only way we can get out of here. Thomas quickly scanned the faces of the keepers, wondering one last time if he should say it, if they would understand. But he knew he had to. He had to. Thomas took a deep breath, then said it. Teresa and I helped design the maze. We helped create the whole thing. Everyone seemed too stunned to respond. Blank faces stared back at him once again. Thomas figured they either didn't understand or didn't believe him. What's that supposed to mean? Newt finally asked. You're a bloody sixteen-year-old. How could you have created the maze? Thomas couldn't help doubting it a little himself, but he knew what he'd remembered. As crazy as it was, he knew it for the truth. We were smart, and I think it might be part of the variables. But most importantly, Teresa and I have a gift that made us very valuable as they designed and built this place. He stopped, knowing it must all sound absurd. Speak! Newt yelled. Spit it out! We're telepathic. We can talk to each other in our freaking heads. Saying it out loud almost made him feel ashamed, as if he'd just admitted he was a thief. Newt blinked in surprise. Someone coughed. But listen to me, Thomas continued, in a hurry to defend himself. They forced us to help. I don't know how or why, but they did. He paused. Maybe it was to see if we could gain your trust despite having been a part of them. Maybe we were meant all along to be the ones to reveal how to escape. Whatever the reason, with your maps, we figured out the code, and we need to use it now. Thomas looked around, and surprisingly, astonishingly, no one seemed angry. Most of the gladers continued to stare blankly at him or shook their heads in wonder or disbelief. And for some odd reason, Minho was smiling. It's true, and I'm sorry, Thomas continued. But I can tell you this. I'm in the same boat with you now. Teresa and I were sent here just like anyone else, and we can die just as easily. But the creators have seen enough. It's time for the final test. I guess I needed the changing to add the final pieces of the puzzle. Anyway, I wanted you to know the truth. To know there's a chance we can do this. Newt shook his head back and forth, staring at the ground. Then he looked up, took in the other keepers. The creators, those shanks did this to us. Not Tommy and Teresa. The creators. And they'll be sorry.
Whatever, Minho said. Who gives a clunk about all that? Just get on with the escape already. A lump formed in Thomas's throat. He was so relieved he almost couldn't speak. He'd been sure they'd put him under major heat for his confession, if not throw him off the cliff. The rest of what he had to say almost seemed easy now. There's a computer station in a place we've never looked before. The code will open a door for us to get out of the maze. It also shuts down the grievers so they can't follow us, if we can just survive long enough to get to that point. The place we've never looked before? Albie asked. What do you think we've been doing for two years? Trust me, you've never been to this spot. Minho stood up. Well, where is it? It's almost suicide, Thomas said, knowing he was putting off the answer. The grievers will come after us whenever we try to do it. All of them. The final test. He wanted to make sure they understood the stakes. The odds of everyone surviving were slim. So where is it? Newt asked, leaning forward in his chair. Over the cliff, Thomas answered. We have to go through the griever hole. Chapter 51 Albie stood up so quickly his chair fell over backward. His bloodshot eyes stood out against the white bandage on his forehead. He took two steps forward before stopping, as if he'd been about to charge and attack Thomas. Now you're being a shuck idiot, he said, glaring at Thomas. Or a traitor. How can we trust a word you say if you help design this place, put us here? We can't handle one griever on our own ground, much less fight a whole horde of them in their little hole. What are you really up to? Thomas was furious. What am I up to? Nothing. Why would I make all this up? Albie's arms stiffened, fists clenched. For all I know, you were sent here to get us all killed. Why should we trust you? Thomas stared, incredulous. Albie, do you have a short-term memory problem? I risked my life to save you out in the maze. You'd be dead if it wasn't for me. Maybe that was a trick to gain our trust. If you're in league with the shucks who sent us here, you wouldn't have had to worry about the grievers hurting you. Maybe it was all an act. Thomas's anger lessened slightly at that, turned into pity. Something was odd here, suspicious. Albie, Minho finally interjected, relieving Thomas. That's about the dumbest theory I've ever heard. He just about got freaking torn apart three nights ago. You think that's part of the act? Albie nodded once, curtly. Maybe. I did it, Thomas said, throwing all the annoyance he could into his voice. On the chance that I could get my memories back, help all of us get out of here. Do I need to show you the cuts and bruises all over my body? Albie said nothing, his face still quivering with rage. His eyes watered and veins popped out on his neck. We can't go back, he finally yelled, turning to look at everyone in the room. I've seen what our lives were like. We can't go back. Is that what this is about? Newt asked. Are you kidding? Albie turned on him, fiercely, even held up a clenched fist. But he stopped, lowered his arm, then went over and sank into his chair, put his face in his hands, and broke down. Thomas couldn't have been more surprised. The fearless leader of the Gladers was crying. Albie, talk to us, Newt pressed, not willing to let it drop. What's going on? I did it, Albie said through a racking sob. I did it. Did what? Newt asked. He looked as confused as Thomas felt. Albie looked up, 
his eyes wet with tears. I burned the maps. I did it. I slammed my head on the table so you'd think it was someone else. I lied. Burned it all. I did it. The keepers exchanged looks, shock clear in their wide eyes and raised eyebrows. For Thomas, though, it all made sense now. Albie remembered how awful his life was before he came here, and he didn't want to go back. Well, it's a good thing we saved those maps, Minho said, completely straight-faced, almost mocking. Thanks for the tip you gave us after the changing, to protect them. Thomas looked to see how Albie would respond to Minho's sarcastic, almost cruel remark, but he acted as if he hadn't even heard. Newt, instead of showing anger, asked Albie to explain. Thomas knew why Newt wasn't mad. The maps were safe. The code figured out. It didn't matter. I'm telling you. Albie sounded like he was begging, near hysterical. We can't go back to where we came from. I've seen it. Remember awful, awful things. Burned land, a disease, something called the flare. It was horrible. Way worse than we have it here. If we stay here, we'll all die, Minho yelled. It's worse than that? Albie stared at Minho a long time before answering. Thomas could only think of the words he'd just said. The flare. Something about it was familiar, right on the edge of his mind. But he was certain he hadn't remembered anything about that when he'd gone through the changing. Yes, Albie finally said. It's worse. Better to die than go home. Minho snickered and leaned back in his chair. Man, you are one buttload of sunshine, let me tell you. I'm with Thomas. I'm with Thomas 100%. If we're going to die, let's freaking do it fighting. Inside the maze or out of it, Thomas added, relieved that Minho was firmly on his side. He turned to Albie then and looked at him gravely. We still live inside the world you remembered. Albie stood again, his voice showing his defeat. Do what you want, he sighed. Doesn't matter. We'll die no matter what. And with that, he walked to the door and left the room. Newt let out a deep breath and shook his head. He's never been the same since being stung. Must have been one bugger of a memory. What in the world is the flare? I don't care, Minho said. Anything's better than dying here. We can deal with the creators once we're out. But for now, we gotta do what they planned. Go through the griever hole and escape. If some of us die, so be it. Frypan snorted. You shanks are driving me nuts. I can't get out of the maze, and this idea of hanging with the grievers at their bachelor pad sounds as stupid as anything I've ever heard in my life. Might as well slit our wrists. The other keepers burst out in argument, everyone talking over everyone else. Newt finally screamed for them to shut up. Thomas spoke again once things settled. I'm going through the hole, or I'll die trying to get there. Looks like Mean Ho will too. And I'm sure Teresa's in. If we can fight off the grievers long enough for someone to punch in the code and shut them down, then we can go through the door they come through. We'll have passed the tests. Then we can face the creators themselves. Newt's grin had no humor in it. And you think we can fight off the grievers? Even if we don't die, we'll probably all get stung. Every last one of them might be waiting for us when we get to the cliff. The beetle blades are out there constantly. The creators will know when we make our run for it. He'd been dreading it, but Thomas knew it was time to tell them the last part of his plan. I don't think they'll sting us. 
The changing was a variable meant for us while we lived here, but that part will be over. Plus, we might have one thing going for us. Yeah? Newt asked, rolling his eyes. Can't wait to hear it. It doesn't do the creators any good if we all die. This thing is meant to be hard, not impossible. I think we finally know for sure that the Grievers are programmed to only kill one of us each day. So somebody can sacrifice himself to save the others while we run to the hole. I think this might be how it's supposed to happen. The room went silent until the blood housekeeper barked a loud laugh. Excuse me? Winston asked. So your suggestion is that we throw some poor kid to the wolves so the rest of us can escape? This is your brilliant suggestion. Thomas refused to admit how bad that sounded, but an idea hit him. Yes, Winston. I'm glad you're so good at paying attention. He ignored the glare that got him. And it seems obvious who the poor kid should be. Oh, yeah, Winston asked. Who? Thomas folded his arms. Me. Chapter 52 The meeting erupted into a chorus of arguments. Newt very calmly stood up, walked over to Thomas, and grabbed him by the arm. He pulled him toward the door. You're leaving. Now. Thomas was stunned. Leaving? Why? Think you said enough for one meeting. We need to talk and decide what to do, without you here. They had reached the door, and Newt gave him a gentle push outside. Wait for me by the box. When we're done, you and I'll talk. He started to turn around, but Thomas reached out and grabbed him. You gotta believe me, Newt. It's the only way out of here. We can do it, I swear. We're meant to. Newt got in his face and spoke in an angry rasp of a whisper. Yeah, I especially love the bit where you volunteered to get yourself killed. I'm perfectly willing to do it. Thomas meant it, but only because of the guilt that racked him. Guilt that he'd somehow helped design the maze. But deep down, he held on to the hope that he could fight long enough for someone to punch in the code and shut down the grievers before they killed him. Open the door. Oh, really? Newt asked, seeming irritated. Mr. Noble himself, aren't you? I have plenty of my own reasons. In some ways it's my fault we're here in the first place. He stopped, took a breath to compose himself. Anyway, I'm going no matter what, so you better not waste it. Newt frowned, his eyes suddenly filled with compassion. If you really did design the maze, Tommy, it's not your fault. You're a kid. You can't help what they forced you to do. But it didn't matter what Newt said, what anyone said. Thomas bore the responsibility anyway, and it was growing heavier the more he thought about it. I just feel like I need to save everyone, to redeem myself. Newt stepped back, slowly shaking his head. You know what's funny, Tommy? What? Thomas replied, wary. I actually believe you. You just don't have an ounce of lying in those eyes of yours. And I can't bloody believe I'm about to say this. He paused. But I'm going back in there to convince those shanks we should go through the griever hole, just like you said. Might as well fight the grievers rather than sit around letting them pick us off one by one. He held up a finger. But listen to me. I don't want another buggin' word about you dying and all that heroic clunk. If we're gonna do this, we'll take our chances. All of us. You hear me? 
Thomas held his hands up, overwhelmed with relief. Loud and clear. I was just trying to make the point that it's worth the risk. If someone's going to die every night anyway, we might as well use it to our advantage. Newt frowned. Well, ain't that just cheery? Thomas turned to walk away, but Newt called out to him. Tommy! Yeah? He stopped but didn't look back. If I can convince those shanks, and that's a big if, the best time to go would be at night. We can hope that a lot of the grievers might be out and about in the maze, not in that hole of theirs. Good that, Thomas agreed with him. He just hoped Newt could convince the keepers. He turned to look at Newt and nodded. Newt smiled, a barely there crack in his worried grimace. We should do it tonight, before anyone else is killed. And before Thomas could say anything, Newt disappeared back into the gathering. Thomas, a little shocked at the last statement, left the homestead and walked to an old bench near the box and took a seat, his mind a whirlwind. He kept thinking of what Albie had said about the flare and what it could mean. The older boy had also mentioned burned earth and a disease. Thomas didn't remember anything like that, but if it was all true, the world they were trying to get back to didn't sound so good. Still, what other choice did they have? Besides the fact that the Grievers were attacking every night, the Glade had basically shut down. Frustrated, worried, tired of his thoughts, he called out to Teresa. Can you hear me? Yeah, she replied. Where are you? By the box. I'll come in a minute. Thomas realized how badly he needed her company. Good. I'll tell you the plan. I think it's on. What is it? Thomas leaned back on the bench and put his right foot up on his knee, wondering how Teresa would react to what he was going to say. We gotta go through the griever hole. Use that code to shut the grievers down and open a door out of here. A pause. I figured it was something like that. Thomas thought for a second, then added, Unless you've got any better ideas. No. It's gonna be awful. He punched his right fist against his other hand, even though he knew she couldn't see him. We can do this. Doubtful. Well, we have to try. Another pause, this one longer. He could feel her resolve. You're right. I think we're leaving tonight. Just come out here and we can talk more about it. I'll be there in a few minutes. Thomas's stomach tightened into a knot. The reality of what he had suggested, the plan Newt was trying to convince the keepers to accept, was starting to hit him. He knew it was dangerous, but the idea of actually fighting the grievers, not just running from them, was terrifying. The absolute best-case scenario was that only one of them would die, but even that couldn't be trusted. Maybe the creators would just reprogram the creatures, and then all bets were off. He tried not to think about it. Sooner than Thomas expected, Teresa had found him and was sitting next to him, her body pressed against his despite plenty of room on the bench. She reached out and took his hand. He squeezed back, so hard he knew it must have hurt. Tell me, she said. Thomas did, reciting every word he'd told the keepers, hating how Teresa's eyes filled with worry and terror. The plan was easy to talk about, he said, after he'd told her everything. But Newt thinks we should go tonight. It doesn't sound so good now. 
It especially terrified him to think about Chuck and Teresa out there. He'd faced the grievers down already and knew all too well what it was like. He wanted to be able to protect his friends from the horrible experience, but he knew he couldn't. We can do it, she said in a quiet voice. Hearing her say that only made him worry more. Holy crap, I'm scared. Holy crap, you're human. You should be scared. Thomas didn't respond, and for a long time they just sat there, holding hands, no word spoken, in their minds or aloud. He felt the slightest hint of peace, as fleeting as it was, and tried to enjoy it for however long it might last. Chapter 53 Thomas was almost sad when the gathering finally ended. When Newt came out of the homestead, he knew that the time for rest was over. The keeper spotted them and approached at a limping run. Thomas noticed he'd let go of Teresa's hand without thinking about it. Newt finally came to a halt and crossed his arms over his chest as he looked down at them sitting on the bench. This is bloody nuts. You know that, right? His face was impossible to read, but there seemed to be a hint of victory in his eyes. Thomas stood up, feeling a rush of excitement flooding his body. So they agreed to go? Newt nodded. All of them. Wasn't as hard as I thought it'd be. Those shanks have seen what happens at night with those bloody doors open. We can't get out of the stupid maze. Gotta try something. He turned and looked at the keepers, who'd started to gather their respective work groups. Now we just have to convince the gladers. Thomas knew that would be even more difficult than persuading the keepers had been. You think they'll go for it? Teresa asked, finally standing to join them. Not all of them, Newt said, and Thomas could see the frustration in his eyes. Some will stay and take their chances. Guarantee it. Thomas didn't doubt people would blanch at the thought of making a run for it. Asking them to fight the grievers was asking a lot. What about Albie? Who knows? Newt responded, looking around the glade, observing the keepers and their groups. I'm convinced that bugger really is more scared to go back home than he is of the grievers. But I'll get him to go with us. Don't worry. Thomas wished he could bring back memories of those things that were tormenting Albie, but there was nothing. How are you going to convince him? Newt laughed. I'll make up some clunk. Tell him we'll all find a new life in another part of the world. Live happily ever after. Thomas shrugged. Well, maybe we can. I promised Chuck I'd get him home, you know. Or at least find him a home. Yeah, well, Teresa murmured. Anything's better than this place. Thomas looked around at the arguments breaking out across the glade. Keepers doing their best to convince people they should take a chance and battle their way through the griever hole. Some gladers stomped away, but most seemed to listen and at least consider. So what's next? Teresa asked. Newt took a deep breath. Figure out who's going, who's staying. Get ready, food, weapons, all that. Then we go. Thomas, I'd put you in charge since it was your idea but it's going to be hard enough to get people on our side without making the Greenie our leader. No offense. So just lay low, okay? We'll leave the code business to you and Teresa. You can handle that from the background. Thomas was more than fine with lying low. Finding that computer station and punching in the code was more than enough responsibility for him. Even with that much on his shoulders, he had to fight the rising flood of panic he felt.
You sure make it sound easy, he finally said, trying his best to lighten up the situation. Or at least sound like he was. Newt folded his arms again, looked at him closely. Like you said, stay here, one shank will die tonight. Go, one shank will die. What's the difference? He pointed at Thomas. If you're right. I am. Thomas knew he was right about the hole, the code, the door, the need to fight. But whether one person or many would die, he had no clue. However, if there was one thing his gut told him, it was not to admit to any doubt. Newt clapped him on the back. Good that. Let's get to work. The next few hours were frantic. Most of the Gladers ended up agreeing to go, even more than Thomas would have guessed. Even Alby decided to make the run. Though no one admitted it, Thomas bet most of them were banking on the theory that only one person would be killed by the Grievers, and they figured their chances of not being the unlucky sap were decent. Those who decided to stay in the Glade were few but adamant and loud. They mainly walked around sulking, trying to tell others how stupid they were. Eventually, they gave up and kept their distance. As for Thomas and the rest of those committed to the escape, there was a ton of work to be done. Backpacks were handed out and stuffed full of supplies. Fry pan, Newt told Thomas that the cook had been one of the last keepers to agree to go, was in charge of gathering all the food and figuring out a way to distribute it evenly among the packs. Syringes of grief serum were included, even though Thomas didn't think the grievers would sting them. Chuck was in charge of filling water bottles and getting them out to everyone. Teresa helped him, and Thomas asked her to sugarcoat the trip as much as she could, even if she had to flat-out lie, which was mostly the case. Chuck had tried to act brave from the time he first found out they were going for it, but his sweaty skin and dazed eyes revealed the truth. Minho went to the cliff with a group of runners, taking ivy ropes and rocks to test the invisible griever hole one last time. They had to hope the creatures would keep to their normal schedule and not come out during daytime hours. Thomas had contemplated just jumping into the hole right away and trying to punch in the code quickly, but he had no idea what to expect or what might be waiting for him. Newt was right. They'd better wait until night and hope that most of the grievers were in the maze, not inside their hole. When Minho returned, safe and sound, Thomas thought he seemed very optimistic that it really was an exit, or entrance, depending on how you looked at it. Thomas helped Newt distribute the weapons, and even more innovative ones were created in their desperation to be prepared for the grievers. Wooden poles were carved into spears or wrapped in barbed wire. The knives were sharpened and fastened with twine to the ends of sturdy branches hacked from trees in the woods. Chunks of broken glass were duct-taped to shovels. By the end of the day, the gladers had turned into a small army. A very pathetic, ill-prepared army, Thomas thought, but an army all the same. Once he and Teresa were done helping, they went to the secret spot in the deadheads to strategize about the station inside the griever hole and how they planned to punch in the code. We have to be the ones to do it, Thomas said, as they leaned their backs against craggy trees, the once green leaves already starting to turn gray from the lack of artificial sunlight. That way, if we get separated, we can be in contact and still help each other. Teresa had grabbed a stick and was peeling off the bark. But we need backup in case something happens to us. Definitely. 
Minho and Newt know the code words. We'll tell them they have to get them punched into the computer if we... Well, you know. Thomas didn't want to think about all the bad things that might happen. Not much to the plan, then, Teresa yawned, as if life were completely normal. Not much at all. Fight the grievers, punch in the code, escape through the door. Then we deal with the creators, whatever it takes. Six code words. Who knows how many grievers? Teresa broke the stick in half. What do you think wicked stands for, anyway? Thomas felt like he'd been hit in the stomach. For some reason, hearing the word at that moment from someone else knocked something loose in his mind and it clicked. He was stunned he hadn't made the connection sooner. That sign I saw out in the maze, remember? The metal one with the word stamped on it? Thomas's heart had started to race with excitement. Teresa crinkled her forehead in confusion for a second, but then a light seemed to blink on behind her eyes. Whoa! World in Catastrophe, Kill Zone Experiment Department. Wicked! Wicked is good. What I wrote on my arm. What does that even mean? No idea. Which is why I'm scared to death that what we're about to do is a whole pile of stupid. Could be a bloodbath. Everyone knows what they're getting into. Teresa reached out and took his hand. Nothing to lose, remember? Thomas remembered, but for some reason, Teresa's words fell flat. They didn't have much hope in them. Nothing to lose, he repeated. Chapter 54 Just before the normal door-closing time, Frypan prepared one last meal to carry them through the night. The mood hanging over the gladers as they ate couldn't have been more somber or sodden with fear. Thomas found himself sitting next to Chuck, absently picking at his food. So, Thomas, the boy said through a huge bite of mashed potatoes, who am I nicknamed after? Thomas couldn't help shaking his head. Here they were, about to embark on probably the most dangerous task of their lives, and Chuck was curious where he'd gotten his nickname. I don't know. Darwin, maybe? The dude who figured out evolution? I bet no one's ever called him a dude before. Chuck took another big bite and seemed to think that was the best time to talk, full mouth and all. You know, I'm really not all that scared. I mean, last few nights, sitting in the homestead, just waiting for a griever to come in and steal one of us was the worst thing I've ever done. At least now, we're taking it to them, trying something. And at least... At least what? Thomas asked. He didn't believe for a second that Chuck wasn't scared. It almost hurt to see him acting brave. Well, everyone's speculating they can only kill one of us. Maybe I sound like a shuck, but it gives me some hope. At least most of us will make it through. Just leaves one poor sucker to die. Better than all of us. It made Thomas sick to think people were hanging on to that hope of just one person dying. The more he thought about it, the less he believed it was true. The creators knew the plan. They might reprogram the grievers. But even false hope was better than nothing. Maybe we can all make it. As long as everyone fights... Chuck stopped stuffing his face for a second and looked at Thomas carefully. You really think that? Or you're just trying to cheer me up? We can do it. Thomas ate his last bite, took a big drink of water. He'd never felt like such a liar in his life. People were going to die. 
but he was going to do everything possible to make sure Chuck wasn't one of them. And Teresa. Don't forget my promise. You can still plan on it. Chuck frowned. Big deal. I keep hearing the world is in clunky shape. Hey, maybe so. But we'll find the people who care about us. You'll see. Chuck stood up. Well, I don't want to think about it, he announced. Just get me out of the maze, and I'll be one happy dude. Good that, Thomas agreed. A commotion from the other tables caught his attention. Newt and Albie were gathering the gladers, telling everyone it was time to go. Albie seemed mostly himself, but Thomas still worried about the guy's mental state. In Thomas's mind, Newt was in charge, but he could also be a loose cannon sometimes. The icy fear and panic Thomas had experienced so often the last few days swept over him once again in full force. This was it. They were going. Trying not to think about it, to just act, he grabbed his backpack. Chuck did the same, and they headed for the west door, the one leading to the cliff. Thomas found Minho and Teresa talking to each other near the left side of the door, going over the hastily made plans to enter the escape code once they got into the hole. You shanks ready? Minho asked when they came up. Thomas, this was all your idea, so it better work. If not, I'll kill you before the grievers can. Thanks, Thomas said. But he couldn't shake the twisting feeling in his gut. What if somehow he was wrong? What if the memories he'd had were false ones, planted somehow? The thought terrified him, and he pushed it aside. There was no going back. He looked at Teresa, who shifted from foot to foot, wringing her hands. You okay? he asked. I'm fine, she answered with a small smile, clearly not fine at all. Just anxious to get it over with. Amen, sister, Minho said. He looked the calmest to Thomas, the most confident, the least scared. Thomas envied him. When Newt finally had everyone gathered, he called for quiet, and Thomas turned to hear what he had to say. There's forty-one of us. He pulled the backpack he was holding onto his shoulders and hoisted a thick wooden pole with barbed wire wrapped around its tip. The thing looked deadly. Make sure you've got your weapons. Other than that... Isn't a whole lot to Bogan say. You've all been told the plan. We're going to fight our way through to the Griever Hole, and Tommy here's going to punch in his little magic code, and then we're going to get payback on the creators. Simple as that. Thomas barely heard Newt, having seen Albie sulking over to the side, away from the main group of the Gladers, alone. Albie picked at the string of his bow while he stared at the ground. A quiver of arrows hung over his shoulder, Thomas felt a rising tide of worry that somehow Albie was unstable, that somehow he'd screw everything up. He decided to watch him carefully if he could. Shouldn't someone give a pep talk or something? Minho asked, pulling Thomas's attention away from Albie. Go ahead, Newt replied. Minho nodded and faced the crowd. Be careful, he said dryly. Don't die. Thomas would have laughed if he could, but he was too scared for it to come out. Great. We're all bloody inspired, Newt answered, then pointed over his shoulder toward the maze. You all know the plan. After two years of being treated like mice, tonight we're making a stand. Tonight we're taking the fight back to the creators, no matter what we have to go through to get there. Tonight, the grievers better be scared. Someone cheered, 
and then someone else. Soon shouts and battle calls broke out, rising in volume, filling the air like thunder. Thomas felt a trickle of courage inside him. He grasped it, clung to it, urged it to grow. Newt was right. Tonight they'd fight. Tonight they'd make their stand, once and for all. Thomas was ready. He roared with the other gladers. He knew they should probably be quiet, not bring any more attention to themselves, but he didn't care. The game was on. Newt thrust his weapon into the air and yelled, Hear that, creators! We're coming! And with that, he turned and ran into the maze, his limp barely noticeable, into the gray air that seemed darker than the glade, full of shadows and blackness. The gladers around Thomas, still cheering, picked up their weapons and ran after him, even Albie. Thomas followed, falling into line between Teresa and Chuck, hefting a big wooden spear with a knife tied to its tip. The sudden feeling of responsibility for his friends almost overwhelmed him, made it hard to run. But he kept going, determined to win. You can do this, he thought. Just make it to that hole. Chapter 55 Thomas kept a steady pace as he ran with the other gladers along the stone pathways toward the cliff. He'd grown used to running the maze, but this was completely different. The sounds of shuffling feet echoed up the walls, and the red lights of the beetle blades flashed more menacingly in the ivy. The creators were certainly watching, listening. One way or another, there was going to be a fight. Scared? Teresa asked him as they ran. Now. I love things made out of blubber and steel. Can't wait to see them. He felt no mirth or humor, and wondered if there'd ever be a time again when he would. So funny, she responded. She was right next to him, but his eyes stayed glued up ahead. We'll be fine. Just stay close to me and mean ho. Ah, my knight in shining armor. What, you don't think I can fend for myself? Actually, he thought quite the opposite. Teresa seemed as tough as anybody there. No, I'm just trying to be nice. The group was spread out across the full width of the corridor, running at a steady but quick pace. Thomas wondered how long the non-runners would hold up. As if in response to the thought, Newt fell back, finally tapping Minho on the shoulder. You lead the way now, Thomas heard him say. Minho nodded and ran to the front, guiding the gladers through all the turns necessary. Every step was agonizing for Thomas. What courage he'd gathered had turned to dread, and he wondered when the grievers would finally give chase, wondered when the fight would begin. And so it went for him as they kept moving, those gladers not used to running such distances gasping in huge gulps of air. But no one quit. On and on they ran, with no signs of grievers. And as the time passed, Thomas let the slightest trickle of hope enter his system. Maybe they'd make it before getting attacked. Maybe. Finally, after the longest hour of Thomas's life, they reached the long alley that led to the last turn before the cliff, a short corridor to the right that branched off like the stem of the letter T. Thomas, his heart thumping, sweat slicking his skin, had moved up right behind Minho, Teresa at his side. Minho slowed at the corner, then stopped, holding up a hand to tell Thomas and the others to do the same. Then he turned, a look of horror on his face. Do you hear that? he whispered. 
Thomas shook his head, trying to squash the terror Minho's expression had given him. Minho crept ahead and peeked around the sharp edge of stone, looking toward the cliff. Thomas had seen him do that before, when they'd followed a griever to this very spot. Just like that time, Minho jerked back and turned to face him. Oh, no, the keeper said through a moan. Oh, no. Then Thomas heard it. Griever sounds. It was as if they'd been hiding, waiting, and now were coming to life. He didn't even have to look. He knew what Minho was going to say before he said it. There's at least a dozen of them, maybe fifteen. He reached up and rubbed his eyes with the heels of his hands. They're just waiting for us. The icy chill of fear bit Thomas harder than ever before. He looked over at Teresa, about to say something, but stopped when he saw the expression on her pale face. He'd never seen terror present itself so starkly. Newt and Albie had moved up the line of waiting gladers to join Thomas and the others. Apparently Minho's pronouncement had already been whispered through the ranks, because the first thing Newt said was, Well, we knew we'd have to fight. But the tremor in his voice gave him away. He was just trying to say the right thing. Thomas felt it himself. It had been easy to talk about. The nothing-to-lose fight. The hope that just one of them would be taken. The chance to finally escape. But now it was here, literally around the corner. Doubts that he could go through with it seeped into his mind and heart. He wondered why the grievers were just waiting. The beetleblades had obviously let them know the gladers were coming. Were the creators enjoying this? He had an idea. Maybe they've already taken a kid back at the glade. Maybe we can get past them. Why else would they just be sitting? A loud noise from behind cut him off. He spun to see more grievers moving down the corridor toward them, spikes flaring, metal arms groping, coming from the direction of the glade. Thomas was just about to say something when he heard sounds from the other end of the long alley. He looked to see yet more grievers. The enemy was on all sides, blocking them off completely. The gladers surged toward Thomas, forming a tight group, forcing him to move out into the open intersection where the cliff corridor met the long alley. He saw the pack of grievers between them and the cliff, spikes extended, their moist skin pulsing in and out, waiting, watching. The other two groups of grievers had closed in and stopped just a few dozen feet from the gladers, also waiting, watching. Thomas slowly turned in a circle, fought the fear as he took it all in. They were surrounded. They had no choice now. There was nowhere to go. A sharp, pulsing pain throbbed behind his eyes. The gladers compressed into a tighter group around him, everyone facing outward, huddled together in the center of the T-intersection. Thomas was pressed between Newt and Teresa. He could feel Newt trembling. No one said a word. The only sounds were the eerie moans and whirs of machinery coming from the grievers, sitting there as if enjoying the little trap they'd set for the humans. Their disgusting bodies heaved in and out with mechanical wheezes of breath. What are they doing? Thomas called out to Teresa. What are they waiting for? She didn't answer, which worried him. He reached out and squeezed her hand. The gladers around him stood silent, clutching their meager weapons. Thomas looked over at Newt. Got any ideas? No, he replied, his voice just the tiniest bit shaky. 
I don't understand what they're bloody waiting for. We shouldn't have come, Albie said. He'd been so quiet, his voice sounded odd, especially with the hollow echo the maze walls created. Thomas was in no mood for whining. They had to do something. Well, we'd be no better off in the homestead. Hate to say it, but if one of us dies, that's better than all of us. He really hoped the one-person-a-night thing was true now. Seeing all these grievers close up hit home with an explosion of reality. Could they really fight them all? A long moment passed before Albie replied. Maybe I should... He trailed off and started walking forward, in the direction of the cliff, slowly as if in a trance. Thomas watched in detached awe. He couldn't believe his eyes. Albie, Newt said, get back here. Instead of responding, Albie took off running. He headed straight for the pack of grievers between him and the cliff. Albie! Newt screamed. Thomas started to say something himself, but Albie had already made it to the monsters and jumped on top of one. Newt moved away from Thomas's side and toward Albie, but five or six grievers had already burst to life and attacked the boy in a blur of metal and skin. Thomas reached out and grabbed Newt by the arms before he could go any farther, then pulled him backward. Let go! Newt yelled, struggling to break loose. Are you nuts? Thomas shouted. There's nothing you can do! Two more grievers broke from the pack and swarmed over Albie, piling on top of each other, snapping and cutting at the boy, as if they wanted to rub it in, show their vicious cruelty. Somehow, impossibly, Albie didn't scream. Thomas lost sight of the body as he struggled with Newt, thankful for the distraction. Newt finally gave up, collapsing backward in defeat. Albie'd flipped once and for all, Thomas thought, fighting the urge to rid his stomach of its contents. Their leader had been so scared to go back to whatever he'd seen, he'd chosen to sacrifice himself instead. He was gone. Totally gone. Thomas helped steady Newt on his feet. The glader couldn't stop staring at the spot where his friend had disappeared. I can't believe it, Newt whispered. I can't believe he just did that. Thomas shook his head, unable to reply. Seeing Albie go down like that, a new kind of pain he'd never felt before filled his insides. An ill, disturbed pain. It felt worse than the physical kind. And he didn't even know if it had anything to do with Albie. He'd never much liked the guy. But the thought that what he'd just seen might happen to Chuck, or Teresa. Minho moved closer to Thomas and Newt, squeezed Newt's shoulder. We can't waste what he did. He turned toward Thomas. We'll fight him if we have to. Make a path to the cliff for you and Teresa. Get in the hole and do your thing. We'll keep them off until you scream for us to follow. Thomas looked at each of the three sets of grievers. Not one had yet made a move toward the gladers, and nodded. Hopefully they'll go dormant for a while. We should only need a minute or so to punch in the code. How can you guys be so heartless? Newt murmured the disgust in his voice surprising Thomas. "'What do you want, Newt?' Mino said. "'Should we all dress up and have a funeral?' Newt didn't respond, still staring at the spot where the grievers seemed to be feeding on Albie beneath them. Thomas couldn't help taking a peek. He saw a smear of bright red on one of the creature's bodies. His stomach turned, and he quickly looked away. Minho continued, "'Albie didn't want to go back to his old life.' He freaking sacrificed himself for us, and they aren't attacking, so maybe it worked. 
We'd be heartless if we wasted it. Newt only shrugged, closed his eyes. Minho turned and faced the huddled group of gladers. Listen up. Number one priority is to protect Thomas and Teresa. Get them to the cliff and the hole so... The sounds of the grievers revving to life cut him off. Thomas looked up in horror. The creatures on both sides of their group seemed to have noticed them again. Spikes were popping in and out of blubbery skin. Their bodies shuddered and pulsed. Then, in unison, the monsters moved forward, slowly, instrument-tipped appendages unfolding, pointed at Thomas and the gladers, ready to kill. Tightening their trap formation like a noose, the grievers steadily charged toward them. Albie's sacrifice had failed miserably. Chapter 56 Thomas grabbed Minho by the arm. Somehow I have to get through that. He nodded toward the rolling pack of grievers between them and the cliff. They looked like one big mass of rumbling, spiked blubber, glistening with flashes of lights off steel. They were even more menacing in the faded gray light. Thomas waited for an answer as Minho and Newt exchanged a long glance. The anticipation of fighting was almost worse than the fear of it. They're coming! Teresa yelled. We have to do something! You lead, Newt finally said to Minho, his face barely more than a whisper. Make a bloody path for Tommy and the girl. Do it! Minho nodded once, a steel look of resolve hardening his features. Then he turned toward the gladers. We head straight for the cliff. Fight through the middle. Push the shucking things toward the walls. What matters most is getting Thomas and Teresa to the griever hole. Thomas looked away from him, back at the approaching monsters. They were only a few feet away. He gripped his poor excuse for a spear. We have to stay close together, he told Teresa. Let them do the fighting. We have to get through that hole. He felt like a coward, but he knew that any fighting and any deaths would be in vain if they didn't get that code punched. The door to the creators opened. I know, she replied. Stick together. Ready! Minho yelled next to Thomas, raising his barbed wire-wrapped club into the air with one hand, a long silver knife in the other. He pointed the knife at the horde of grievers. A flash glinted off the blade. Now! The keeper ran forward without waiting for a response. Newt went after him, right on his heels. Then the rest of the gladers followed, a tight pack of roaring boys charging ahead to a bloody battle, weapons raised. Thomas held Teresa's hand, let them all go past, felt them bump him, smelled their sweat, sensed their terror, waiting for the perfect opportunity to make his own dash. Just as the first sounds of boys crashing into grievers filled the air, pierced with screams and roars of machinery and wood clacking against steel, Chuck ran past Thomas, who quickly reached out and grabbed his arm. Chuck stumbled backward, then looked up at Thomas, his eyes so full of fright Thomas felt something shatter in his heart. In that split second, he'd made a decision. Chuck, you're with me and Teresa. He said it forcefully, with authority, leaving no room for doubt. Chuck looked ahead at the engaged battle. But... He trailed off, and Thomas knew the boy relished the idea, though he was ashamed to admit it. Thomas quickly tried to save his dignity. We need your help in the griever hole, in case one of those things is in there waiting for us. Chuck nodded quickly, too quickly. 
Again, Thomas felt the pang of sadness in his heart, felt the urge to get Chuck home safely, stronger than he'd ever felt it before. Okay, then, Thomas said. Hold Teresa's other hand. Let's go. Chuck did as he was told, trying so hard to act brave. And, Thomas noted, not saying a word, perhaps for the first time in his life. They've made an opening, Teresa shouted in Thomas's mind. It sent a quick snap of pain shooting through his skull. She pointed ahead, and Thomas saw the narrow aisle forming in the middle of the corridor, gladers fighting wildly to push the grievers toward the walls. Now! Thomas shouted. He sprinted ahead, pulling Teresa behind him, Teresa pulling Chuck behind her, running at full speed, spears and knives cocked for battle, forward into the bloody, scream-filled hallway of stone, toward the cliff. War raged around them. Gladers fought, panic-induced adrenaline driving them on. The sounds echoing off the walls were a cacophony of terror, human screams, metal clashing against metal, motors roaring, the haunted shrieks of the grievers, saws spinning, claws clasping, boys yelling for help. All was a blur, bloody and gray and flashes of steel. Thomas tried not to look left or right, only ahead, through the narrow gap formed by the gladers. Even as they ran, Thomas went through the code words again in his mind. Float, catch, bleed, death, stiff, push. They just had to make it a few dozen feet more. Something just sliced my arm, Teresa screamed. Even as she said it, Thomas felt a sharp stab in his leg. He didn't look back, didn't bother answering. The seething impossibility of their predicament was like a heavy deluge of black water flooding around him, dragging him toward surrender. He fought it, pushed himself forward. There was the cliff, opening out into a gray, dark sky, about twenty feet away. He surged ahead, pulling his friends. Battles clashed on both sides of them. Thomas refused to look, refused to help. A griever spun directly in his path. A boy, his face hidden from sight, was clutched in its claws, stabbing viciously into the thick, whalish skin, trying to escape. Thomas dodged to the left, kept running. He heard a shriek as he passed by, a throat-scorching wail that could only mean the glader had lost the fight, met a horrific end. The scream ran on, shattering the air, overpowering the other sounds of war, until it faded in death. Thomas felt his heart tremble, hoped it wasn't someone he knew. Just keep going, Teresa said. I know, Thomas shouted back, this time out loud. Someone sprinted past Thomas, bumped him. A griever charged in from the right, blades twirling. A glader cut it off, attacked it with two long swords, metal clacking and clanging as they fought. Thomas heard a distant voice, screaming the same words over and over, something about him, about protecting him as he ran. It was Minho, desperation and fatigue radiant in his shouts. Thomas kept going. One almost got Chuck, Teresa yelled, a violent echo in his head. More grievers came at them, more gladers helped. Winston had picked up Albie's bow and arrow, flinging the steel-pointed shafts at anything non-human that moved, missing more than he hit. Boys Thomas didn't know ran alongside him, whacking at griever instruments with their makeshift weapons, jumping on them, attacking. The sounds, clashes, clangs, screams, moaning wails, 
roars of engines, spinning saws, snapping blades, the screech of spikes against the floor, hair-raising pleas for help. It all grew to a crescendo, became unbearable. Thomas screamed, but he kept running until they made it to the cliff. He skidded to a stop, right on the edge. Teresa and Chuck bumped into him, almost sending all three of them to an endless fall. In a split second, Thomas surveyed his view of the griever hole. Hanging out in the middle of thin air were ivy vines stretching to nowhere. Earlier, Minho and a couple of runners had pulled out ropes of ivy and knotted them to vines still attached to the walls. They'd then tossed the loose ends over the cliff until they hit the griever hole, where now six or seven vines ran from the stone edge to an invisible rough square hovering in the empty sky, where they disappeared into nothingness. It was time to jump. Thomas hesitated, feeling one last moment of stark terror, hearing the horrible sounds behind him, seeing the illusion in front of him, then snapped out of it. You first, Teresa. He wanted to go last to make sure a griever didn't get her or Chuck. To his surprise, she didn't hesitate. After squeezing Thomas's hand, then Chuck's shoulder, she leaped off the edge, immediately stiffening her legs with her arms by her sides. Thomas held his breath until she slipped into the spot between the cut-off ivy ropes and disappeared. It looked as if she'd been erased from existence with one quick swipe. Whoa! Chuck yelled, the slightest hint of his old self breaking through. Whoa is right, Thomas said. You're next. Before the boy could argue, Thomas grabbed him under his arms, squeezed Chuck's torso. Push off with your legs and I'll give you a lift. Ready? One, two... Three! He grunted with effort, heaved him over toward the hole. Chuck screamed as he flew through the air, and he almost missed the target, but his feet went through, then his stomach and arms slammed against the sides of the invisible hole before he disappeared inside. The boy's bravery solidified something in Thomas's heart. He loved the kid. He loved him as if they had the same mom. Thomas tightened the straps on his backpack held his makeshift fighting spear tightly in his right fist. The sounds behind him were awful, horrible. He felt guilty for not helping. Just do your part, he told himself. Stealing his nerves, he tapped his spear against the stone ground, then planted his left foot on the very edge of the cliff and jumped, catapulting up and into the twilight air. He pulled the spear close to his torso, pointed his toes downward, stiffened his body. Then he hit the hole. Chapter 57 A line of icy cold shot across Thomas's skin as he entered the griever hole, starting from his toes and continuing up his whole body as if he'd jumped through a flat plain of freezing water. The world went even darker around him as his feet thumped to a landing on a slippery surface, then shot out from under him. He fell backward into Teresa's arms. She and Chuck helped him stand. It was a miracle Thomas hadn't stabbed someone's eye out with his spear. The griever hole would have been pitch black if not for the beam of Teresa's flashlight cutting through the darkness. As Thomas got his bearings, he realized they were standing in a ten-foot-high stone cylinder. It was damp and covered in shiny, grimy oil and it stretched out in front of them for dozens of yards before it faded into darkness. Thomas peered up at the hole through which they'd come. 
It looked like a square window into a deep, starless space. The computer's over there, Teresa said, grabbing his attention. Several feet down the tunnel, she had aimed her light at a small square of grimy glass that shone a dull green color. Beneath it, a keyboard was set into the wall, angling out enough for someone to type on it with ease if standing. There it was, ready for the code. Thomas couldn't help thinking it seemed too easy, too good to be true. Put the words in, Chuck yelled, slapping Thomas on the shoulder. Hurry! Thomas motioned for Teresa to do it. Chuck and I'll keep watch. Make sure a griever doesn't come through the hole. He just hoped the gladers had turned their attention from making the aisle in the maze to keeping the creatures away from the cliff. Okay, Teresa said. Thomas knew she was too smart to waste time arguing about it. She stepped up to the keyboard and screen, then started typing. Wait, Thomas called to her mind. Are you sure you know the words? She turned to him and scowled. I'm not an idiot, Tom. Yes, I'm perfectly capable of remembering. A loud bang from above and behind them cut her off, made Thomas jump. He spun around to see a griever plop through the griever hole, appearing as if by magic from the dark square of black. The thing had retracted its spikes and arms to enter. When it landed with a squishy thump, a dozen sharp and nasty objects popped back out, looking deadlier than ever. Thomas pushed Chuck behind him and faced the creature, holding out his spear as if that would ward it off. Just keep typing, Teresa, he yelled. A skinny metallic rod burst out of the griever's moist skin, unfolding into a long appendage with three spinning blades, which moved directly toward Thomas's face. He gripped at the end of his spear with both hands, squeezing tightly as he lowered the knife-laced point to the ground in front of him. The bladed arm moved within two feet, ready to slice his skin to bits. When it was just a foot away, Thomas tensed his muscles and swung the spear up, around, and toward the ceiling as hard as he could. It smacked the metal arm and pivoted the thing skyward, revolving in an arc until it slammed back into the body of the griever. The monster let out an angry shriek and pulled back several feet, its spikes retracting into its body. Thomas heaved breaths in and out. Maybe I can hold it off, he said quickly to Teresa. Just hurry. I'm almost done, she replied. The griever's spikes appeared again. It surged ahead and another arm popped out of its skin and shot forward. This one with huge claws snapping to grab the spear. Thomas swung, this time from above his head, throwing every bit of strength into the attack. The spear crashed into the base of the claws. With a loud clunk and then a squishing sound, the entire arm ripped free of its socket, falling to the floor. Then, from some kind of mouth that Thomas couldn't see, the griever let out a long, piercing shriek and pulled back again. The spikes disappeared. These things are beatable, Thomas shouted. It won't let me enter the last word, Teresa said in his mind. Barely hearing her, not quite understanding, he yelled out a roar and charged ahead to take advantage of the griever's moment of weakness. Swinging his spear wildly, he jumped on top of the creature's bulbous body, whacking two metal arms away from him with a loud crack. He lifted the spear above his head, braced his feet, felt them sink into the disgusting blubber, then thrust the spear down and into the monster. A slimy yellow goo exploded from the flesh, splashing over Thomas's legs as he drove the spear as far as it would sink into the thing's body. 
Then he released the hilt of the weapon and jumped away, running back to Chuck and Teresa. Thomas watched in sick fascination as the griever twitched uncontrollably, spewing the yellow oil in every direction. Spikes popped in and out of the skin. Its remaining arms swung around in mass confusion, at times impaling its own body. Soon it began to slow, losing energy with every ounce of blood, or fuel, it lost. A few seconds later, it stopped moving altogether. Thomas couldn't believe it. He absolutely couldn't believe it. He'd just defeated a griever, one of the monsters that had terrorized the gladers for more than two years. He glanced behind him at Chuck, standing there with eyes wide. You killed it, the boy said. He laughed, as if that one act had solved all their problems. Wasn't so hard, Thomas muttered, then turned to see Teresa frantically typing away at the keyboard. He knew immediately that something was wrong. What's the problem? he asked, almost shouting. He ran up to look over her shoulder and saw that she kept typing the word push over and over, but nothing appeared on the screen. She pointed at the dirty square of glass, empty but for its greenish glow of life. I put in all the words and one by one they appeared on the screen. Then something beeped and they'd disappear. But it won't let me type in the last word. Nothing's happening. Cold filled Thomas's veins as Teresa's words sank in. Well, why? I don't know. She tried again, then again. Nothing appeared. Thomas! Chuck screamed from behind them. Thomas turned to see him pointing at the griever hole. Another creature was making its way through. As he watched, it plopped down on top of its dead brother, and another griever started entering the hole. What's taking so long? Chuck cried frantically. You said they'd turn off when you punched in the code. Both grievers had righted themselves and extended their spikes, had started moving toward them. He won't let us enter the word push, Thomas said absently, not really speaking to Chuck, but trying to think of a solution. I don't get it, Teresa said. The grievers were coming, only a few feet away. Feeling his will fade into blackness, Thomas braced his feet and held up his fists half-heartedly. It was supposed to work. The code was supposed to... Maybe you should just push that button, Chuck said. Thomas was so surprised by the random statement that he turned away from the grievers, looked at the boy. Chuck was pointing at a spot near the floor, right underneath the screen and keyboard. Before he could move, Teresa was already down there, crouching on her knees. And consumed by curiosity, by a fleeting hope, Thomas joined her, collapsing to the ground to get a better look. He heard the griever moan and roar behind him felt a sharp claw grab his shirt, felt a prick of pain. But he could only stare. A small red button was set into the wall only a few inches above the floor. Three black words were printed there, so obvious he couldn't believe he'd missed it earlier. Kill the maze. More pain snapped Thomas out of his stupor. The griever had grabbed him with two instruments, had started dragging him backward. The other one had gone after Chuck and was just about to swipe at the kid with a long blade. A button. Push! Thomas screamed, louder than he'd thought possible for a human being to scream. And Teresa did. She pushed the button and everything went perfectly silent. Then, from somewhere down the dark tunnel, came the sound of a door sliding open. Chapter 58 
Almost at once, the grievers had shut down completely. Their instruments sucked back through their blubbery skin. Their lights turned off. Their inside machines dead quiet. And that door. Thomas fell to the floor after being released by his captor's claws, and despite the pain of several lacerations across his back and shoulders, elation surged through him so strongly he didn't know how to react. He gasped, then laughed, then choked on a sob before laughing again. Chuck had scooted away from the grievers, bumping into Teresa. She held him tightly, squeezing him in a fierce hug. You did it, Chuck. Teresa said. We were so worried about the stupid code words, we didn't think to look around for something to push. The last word, the last piece of the puzzle. Thomas laughed again in disbelief that such a thing could be possible so soon after what they'd gone through. She's right, Chuck. You saved us, man. I told you we needed you. Thomas scrambled to his feet and joined the other two in a group hug, almost delirious. Chuck's a shucking hero. What about the others? Teresa said with a nod toward the griever hole. Thomas felt his elation wither, and he stepped back and turned toward the hole. As if in answer to her question, someone fell through the black square. It was Minho, looking as if he'd been scratched or stabbed on ninety percent of his body. Minho! Thomas shouted, filled with relief. Are you okay? What about everybody else? Minho stumbled toward the curved wall of the tunnel, then leaned there, gulping big breaths. We lost a ton of people. It's a mess of blood up there. Then they all just shut down. He paused, taking in a really deep breath and letting it go in a rush of air. You did it. I can't believe it actually worked. Newt came through then, followed by Frypan, then Winston and others. Before long. Eighteen boys had joined Thomas and his friends in the tunnel, making a total of twenty-one gladers in all. Every last one of those who'd stayed behind and fought was covered in griever sludge and human blood, their clothes ripped to shreds. The rest, Thomas asked, terrified of the answer. Half of us, Newt said, his voice weak. Dead. No one said a word then. No one said a word for a very long time. You know what, Minho said, standing up a little taller. Half might have died, but half of us shucking lived, and nobody got stung, just like Thomas thought. We've got to get out of here. Too many, Thomas thought. Too many by far. His joy dribbled away, turning into a deep mourning for the twenty people who lost their lives. Despite the alternative, despite knowing that if they hadn't tried to escape. All of them might have died. It still hurt, even though he hadn't known them very well. Such a display of death. How could it be considered a victory? Let's get out of here, Newt said. Right now. Where do we go? Minho asked. Thomas pointed down the long tunnel. I heard a door open down that way. He tried to push away the ache of it all, the horrors of the battle they'd just won, the losses. He pushed it away. Knowing they were nowhere near safe yet. Well, let's go, Minho answered, and the older boy turned and started walking up the tunnel without waiting for a response. Newt nodded, ushering the other gladers past him to follow. One by one they went until only he remained with Thomas and Teresa. I'll go last, 
Thomas said. No one argued. Newt went, then Chuck, then Teresa, into the black tunnel. Even the flashlight seemed to get swallowed by the darkness. Thomas followed, not even bothering to look back at the dead grievers. After a minute or so of walking, he heard a shriek from ahead, followed by another, then another. Their cries faded as if they were falling. Murmurs made their way down the line, and finally Teresa turned to Thomas. Looks like it ends in a slide up there, shooting downward. Thomas's stomach turned at the thought. It seemed like it was a game, for whoever had built the place at least. One by one he heard the glader's dwindling shouts and hoots up ahead. Then it was Newt's turn, then Chuck's. Teresa shone her light down on a steeply descending, slick black chute of metal. Guess we have no choice, she said to his mind. Guess not. Thomas had a strong feeling it wasn't a way out of their nightmare. He just hoped it didn't lead to another pack of grievers. Teresa slipped down the slide with an almost cheerful shriek, and Thomas followed her before he could talk himself out of it. Anything was better than the maze. His body shot down a steep decline, slick with an oily goo that smelled awful, like burnt plastic and overused machinery. He twisted his body until he got his feet in front of him, then tried to hold his hands out to slow himself down. It was useless. The greasy stuff covered every inch of the stone. He couldn't grip anything. The screams of the other gladers echoed off the tunnel walls as they slid down the oily chute. Panic gripped Thomas's heart. He couldn't fight off the image that he'd been swallowed by some gigantic beast and were sliding down its long esophagus, about to land in its stomach at any second. And as if his thoughts had materialized, the smells changed to something more like mildew and rot. He started gagging. It took all his effort not to throw up on himself. The tunnel began to twist, turning in a rough spiral, just enough to slow them down, and Thomas's feet smacked right into Teresa, hitting her in the head. He recoiled, and a feeling of complete misery sank over him. They were still falling. Time seemed to stretch out, endless. Around and around they went down the tube. Nausea burned in his stomach, the squishing of the goo against his body, the smell, the circling motion. He was just about to turn his head to the side to throw up when Teresa let out a sharp cry. This time there was no echo. A second later, Thomas flew out of the tunnel and landed on her. Bodies scrambled everywhere, people on top of people, groaning and squirming in confusion as they tried to push away from each other. Thomas wiggled his arms and legs to scoot away from Teresa, then crawled a few more feet to throw up, emptying his stomach. Still shuddering from the experience, he wiped at his mouth with his hand, only to realize it was covered in slimy filth. He sat up, rubbing both hands on the ground, and he finally got a good look at where they'd arrived. As he gaped, he saw also that everyone else had pulled themselves together into a group, taking in the new surroundings. Thomas had seen glimpses of it during the changing, but didn't truly remember it until that very moment. They were in a huge underground chamber, big enough to hold nine or ten homesteads. From top to bottom, side to side, the place was covered in all kinds of machinery and wires and ducts and computers. On one side of the room, to his right, there was a row of forty or so large white pods that looked like enormous coffins. 
Across from that, on the other side, stood large glass doors, although the light made it impossible to see what was on the other side. Look! someone shouted, but he'd already seen it, his breath catching in his throat. Goosebumps broke out all over him, a creepy fear trickling down his spine like a wet spider. Directly in front of them, a row of twenty or so darkly tinged windows stretched across the compound horizontally, one after the other. Behind each one, a person, some men, some women, all of them pale and thin, sat observing the gladers, staring through the glass with squinted eyes. Thomas shuddered, terrified. They all looked like ghosts. Angry, starving, sinister apparitions of people who'd never been happy when alive, much less dead. But Thomas knew they were not, of course, ghosts. They were the people who'd sent them all to the glade. The people who'd taken their lives away from them. The Creators. Chapter 59 Thomas took a step backward, noticing others doing the same. A deathly silence sucked the life out of the air as every last glader stared at the row of windows, at the row of observers. Thomas watched one of them look down to write something, another reach up and put on a pair of glasses. They all wore black coats over white shirts, a word stitched on their right breast. He couldn't quite make out what it said. None of them wore any kind of discernible facial expression. They were all sallow and gaunt, miserably sad to look upon. They continued to stare at the gladers. A man shook his head. A woman nodded. Another man reached up and scratched his nose, the most human thing Thomas had seen any of them do. Who are those people? Chuck whispered, but his voice echoed throughout the chamber with a raspy edge. The creators, Minho said. Then he spat on the floor. I'm going to break your faces, he screamed. So loudly, Thomas almost held his hands over his ears. What do we do? Thomas asked. What are they waiting on? They've probably revved the grievers back up, Newt said. They're probably coming right... A loud, slow beeping sound cut him off, like the warning alarm of a huge truck driving in reverse, but much more powerful. It came from everywhere, booming and echoing throughout the chamber. What now? Chuck asked, not hiding the concern in his voice. For some reason, everyone looked at Thomas. He shrugged in answer. He'd only remembered so much, and now he was just as clueless as anyone else. And scared. He craned his neck as he scanned the place top to bottom, trying to find the source of the beeps, but nothing had changed. Then, out of the corner of his eye, he noticed the other gladers looking in the direction of the doors. He did as well. His heart quickened when he saw that one of the doors was swinging open toward them. The beeping stopped, and a silence as deep as outer space settled on the chamber. Thomas waited without breathing, braced himself for something horrible to come flying through the door. Instead, two people walked into the room. One was a woman, an actual grown-up. She seemed very ordinary, wearing black pants and a button-down white shirt with a logo on the breast, Wicked, spelled in blue capital letters. Her brown hair was cut at the shoulder, and she had a thin face with dark eyes. As she walked toward the group, she neither smiled nor frowned. It was almost as if she didn't notice or care they were standing there. 
I know her, Thomas thought. But it was a cloudy kind of recollection. He couldn't remember her name or what she had to do with the maze, but she seemed familiar. And not just her looks, but the way she walked, her mannerisms, stiff, without a hint of joy. She stopped several feet in front of the gladers and slowly looked left to right, taking them all in. The other person, standing next to her, was a boy wearing an overly large sweatshirt, its hood pulled up over his head, concealing his face. Welcome back, the woman finally said. Over two years, and so few dead. Amazing. Thomas felt his mouth drop open, felt anger redden his face. Excuse me, Newt asked. Her eyes scanned the crowd again before falling on Newt. Everything has gone according to plan, Mr. Newton, although we expected a few more of you to give up along the way. She glanced over at her companion, then reached out and pulled the hood off the boy. He looked up, his eyes wet with tears. Every glader in the room sucked in a breath of surprise. Thomas felt his knees buckle. It was galley. Thomas blinked, then rubbed his eyes like something out of a cartoon. He was consumed with shock and anger. It was galley. What's he doing here? Minho shouted. You're safe now, the woman responded, as if she hadn't heard him. Please be at ease. At ease? Minho barked. Who are you telling us to be at ease? We want to see the police, the mayor, the president. Somebody. Thomas worried what Minho might do. Then again, Thomas kind of wanted him to go punch her in the face. She narrowed her eyes as she looked at Minho. You have no idea what you're talking about, boy. I'd expect more maturity from someone who's passed the maze trials. Her condescending tone shocked Thomas. Minho started to retort, but Newt elbowed him in the gut. Gally, Newt said. What's going on? The dark-haired boy looked at him. His eyes flared for a moment, his head shaking slightly, but he didn't respond. Something's off with him, Thomas thought. Worse than before. The woman nodded as if proud of him. One day you'll all be grateful for what we've done for you. I can only promise this, and trust your minds to accept it. If you don't, then the whole thing was a mistake. Dark times, Mr. Newton. Dark times. She paused. There is, of course, one final variable. She stepped back. Thomas focused on Galley. The boy's whole body trembled, his face pasty white, making his wet, red eyes stand out like bloody splotches on paper. His lips pressed together. The skin around them twitched, as if he were trying to speak but couldn't. Galley? Thomas asked, trying to suppress the complete hatred he had for him. Words burst from Galley's mouth. They can control me. I don't... His eyes bulged. A hand went to his throat, as if he were choking. I have to... Each word was a croaking cough. Then he stilled, his face calming, his body relaxing. It was just like Albie in bed, back in the glade, after he went through the changing. The same type of thing had happened to him. What did it... But Thomas didn't have time to finish his thought. Galley reached behind himself pulled something long and shiny from his back pocket. The lights of the chamber flashed off the silvery surface, 
a wicked-looking dagger gripped tightly in his fingers. With unexpected speed, he reared back and threw the knife at Thomas. As he did so, Thomas heard a shout to his right, sensed movement, toward him. The blade windmilled, its every turn visible to Thomas, as if the world had turned to slow motion, as if it did so for the sole purpose of allowing him to feel the terror of seeing such a thing. On the knife came, flipping over and over, straight at him. A strangled cry was forming in his throat. He urged himself to move, but he couldn't. Then, inexplicably, Chuck was there, diving in front of him. Thomas felt as if his feet had been frozen in blocks of ice. He could only stare at the scene of horror unfolding before him, completely helpless. With a sickening, wet thunk, the dagger slammed into Chuck's chest, burying itself to the hilt. The boy screamed, fell to the floor, his body already convulsing. Blood poured from the wound, dark crimson. His legs slapped against the floor, feet kicking aimlessly with onrushing death. Red spit oozed from between his lips. Thomas felt as if the world were collapsing around him, crushing his heart. He fell to the ground, pulled Chuck's shaking body into his arms. Chuck! he screamed. His voice felt like acid ripping through his throat. Chuck! The boy shook uncontrollably, blood everywhere, wetting Thomas's hands. Chuck's eyes had rolled up in their sockets, dull white orbs. Blood trickled out of his nose and mouth. Chuck, Thomas said, this time a whisper. There had to be something they could do. They could save him. They... The boy stopped convulsing, stilled. His eyes slid back into normal position, focused on Thomas, clinging to life. Thomas? It was one word, barely there. Hang on, Chuck, Thomas said. Don't die. Fight it. Someone get help. Nobody moved, and deep inside, Thomas knew why. Nothing could help now. It was over. Black spots swam before Thomas's eyes. The room tilted and swayed. No, he thought. Not Chuck. Not Chuck. Anyone but Chuck. Thomas, Chuck whispered. Find my mom. A racking cough burst from his lungs, throwing a spray of blood. Tell her. He didn't finish. His eyes closed. His body went limp. One last breath wheezed from his mouth. Thomas stared at him, stared at his friend's lifeless body. Something happened within Thomas. It started deep down in his chest, a seed of rage, of revenge, of hate. Something dark and terrible, and then it exploded, bursting through his lungs, through his neck, through his arms and legs, through his mind. He let go of Chuck, stood up, trembling, turned to face their new visitors. And then Thomas snapped. He completely and utterly snapped. He rushed forward, threw himself on Galley, grasping with his fingers like claws. He found the boy's throat, squeezed, fell to the ground on top of him. He straddled the boy's torso, gripped him with his legs so he couldn't escape. Thomas started punching. He held Galley down with his left hand, pushing down on the boy's neck, as his right fist rained punches upon Galley's face, one after another. 
down and down and down, slamming his bald knuckles into the boy's cheek and nose. There was crunching, there was blood, there were horrible screams. Thomas didn't know which were louder, Galley's or his own. He beat him, beat him, as he released every ounce of rage he'd ever owned. And then he was being pulled away by Minho and Newt, his arms still flailing even when they only hit air. They dragged him across the floor. He fought them, squirmed, yelled to be left alone. His eyes remained on Galley, lying there, still. Thomas could feel the hatred pouring out, as if a visible line of flame connected them. And then, just like that, it all vanished. There were only thoughts of Chuck. He threw off Minho's and Newt's grip, ran to the limp, lifeless body of his friend. He grabbed him, pulled him back into his arms, ignoring the blood, ignoring the frozen look of death on the boy's face. No! Thomas shouted, sadness consuming him. No! Teresa was there, put her hand on his shoulder. He shook it away. I promised him! he screamed, realizing even as he did so that his voice was laced with something wrong, almost insanity. I promised I'd save him, take him home. I promised him. Teresa didn't respond, only nodded, her eyes cast to the ground. Thomas hugged Chuck to his chest, squeezed him as tightly as possible, as if that could somehow bring him back, or show thanks for saving his life, for being his friend when no one else would. Thomas cried, wept like he'd never wept before. His great, racking sobs echoed through the chamber, like the sounds of tortured pain. Chapter 60 He finally pulled it all back into his heart, sucking in the painful tide of his misery. In the glade, Chuck had become a symbol for him, a beacon that somehow they could make everything right again in the world, sleep in beds, get kissed goodnight, have bacon and eggs for breakfast, go to a real school, be happy. But now Chuck was gone, and his limp body, to which Thomas still clung, seemed a cold talisman, that not only would those dreams of a hopeful future never come to pass, but that life had never been that way in the first place, that even in escape... Dreary days lay ahead, a life of sorrow. His returning memories were sketchy at best, but not much good floated in the muck. Thomas reeled in the pain, locked it somewhere deep inside him. He did it for Teresa, for Newt and Minho. Whatever darkness awaited them, they'd be together, and that was all that mattered right then. He let go of Chuck, slumped backward, trying not to look at the boy's shirt, black with blood. He wiped the tears from his cheeks, rubbed his eyes, thinking he should be embarrassed, but not feeling that way. Finally, he looked up, looked up at Teresa and her enormous blue eyes, heavy with sadness. Just as much for him as for Chuck, he was sure of it. She reached down, grabbed his hand, helped him stand. Once he was up, she didn't let go, and neither did he. He squeezed, tried to say what he felt by doing so. No one else said a word, most of them staring at Chuck's body without expression, as if they'd moved far beyond feeling. No one looked at Galley, 
breathing but still. The woman from Wicked broke the silence. All things happen for a purpose, she said, any sign of malice now gone from her voice. You must understand this. Thomas looked at her, threw all his compressed hatred into the glare. But he did nothing. Teresa placed her other hand on his arm, gripped his bicep. What now? she asked. I don't know, he replied. I can't. His sentence was cut short by a sudden series of shouts and commotion outside the entrance through which the woman had come. She visibly panicked, the blood draining from her face as she turned toward the door. Thomas followed her gaze. Several men and women dressed in grimy jeans and soaking wet coats burst through the entrance with guns raised, yelling and screaming words over each other. It was impossible to understand what they were saying. Their guns, some were rifles, other pistols, looked archaic, rustic, almost like toys abandoned in the woods for years, recently discovered by the next generation of kids ready to play war. Thomas stared in shock as two of the newcomers tackled the wicked woman to the floor. Then one stepped back and drew up his gun, aimed. No way, Thomas thought. No. Flashes lit the air as several shots exploded from the gun, slamming into the woman's body. She was dead, a bloody mess. Thomas took several steps backward, almost stumbled. A man walked up to the gladers as the others in his group spread out around them, sweeping their guns left and right as they shot at the observation windows, shattering them. Thomas heard screams, saw blood, looked away, focused on the man who approached them. He had dark hair, his face young but full of wrinkles around the eyes, as if he'd spent each day of his life worrying about how to make it to the next. We don't have time to explain, the man said, his voice as strained as his face. Just follow me and run like your life depends on it, because it does. With that, the man made a few motions to his companions, then turned and ran out the big glass doors, his gun held rigidly before him. Gunfire and cries of agony still rattled the chamber, but Thomas did his best to ignore them and follow instructions. Go! One of the rescuers, that was the only way Thomas could think of them, screamed from behind. After the briefest hesitation, the gladers followed, almost stomping each other in their rush to get out of the chamber, as far away from the grievers and the maze as possible. Thomas, his hand still gripping Teresa's, ran with them, bunched up in the back of the group. They had no choice but to leave Chuck's body behind. Thomas felt no emotion. He was completely numb. He ran down a long hallway into a dimly lit tunnel, up a winding flight of stairs. Everything was dark, smelled like electronics. Down another hallway, up more stairs, more hallways. Thomas wanted to ache for Chuck, get excited about their escape, Rejoice that Teresa was there with him. But he'd seen too much. There was only emptiness now. A void. He kept going. On they ran, some of the men and women leading from ahead, some yelling encouragement from behind. They reached another set of glass doors and went through them into a massive downpour of rain, falling from a black sky. Nothing was visible but dull sparkles flashing off the pounding sheets of water. The leader didn't stop moving until they reached a huge bus, 
its sides dented and scarred, most of the windows webbed with cracks. Rain sluiced down it all, making Thomas imagine a huge beast cresting out of the ocean. Get on, the man screamed. Hurry! They did, forming into a tight pack behind the door as they entered one by one. It seemed to take forever, gladers pushing and scrambling their way up the three stairs and into the seats. Thomas was at the back, Teresa right in front of him. Thomas looked up into the sky, felt the water beat against his face. It was warm, almost hot, had a weird thickness to it. Oddly, it helped break him out of his funk, snap him to attention. Maybe it was just the ferocity of the deluge. He focused on the bus, on Teresa, on escape. They were almost to the door when a hand suddenly slammed against his shoulder, gripping his shirt. He cried out as someone jerked him backward, ripping his hand out of Teresa's. He saw her spin around just in time to watch as he slammed into the ground, throwing up a spray of water. A bolt of pain shot down his spine as a woman's head appeared two inches above him, upside down, blocking out Teresa. Greasy hair hung down, touching Thomas, framing a face hidden in shadow. A horrible smell filled his nostrils, like eggs and milk gone rotten. The woman pulled back enough for someone's flashlight to reveal her features. Pale, wrinkly skin, covered in horrible sores, oozing with pus. Sheer terror filled Thomas, froze him. Gonna save us all, the hideous woman said, spit flying out of her mouth, spraying Thomas. Gonna save us from the flare. She laughed, not much more than a hacking cough. The woman yelped when one of the rescuers grabbed her with both hands and yanked her off Thomas, who recovered his wits and scrambled to his feet. He backed into Teresa, staring as the man dragged the woman away, her legs kicking out weakly, her eyes on Thomas. She pointed at him, called out, Don't believe a word they tell you. Gonna save us from the flare you are. When the man was several yards from the bus, he tossed the woman to the ground. Stay put or I'll shoot you dead, he yelled at her. Then he turned to Thomas. Get on the bus. Thomas, so terrified by the ordeal that his body shook, turned and followed Teresa up the stairs and into the aisle of the bus. Wide eyes watched him as they walked all the way to the back seat and plopped down. They huddled together. Black water washed down the windows outside. The rain drummed on the roof, heavy. Thunder shook the skies above them. What was that? Teresa said in his mind. Thomas couldn't answer, just shook his head. Thoughts of Chuck flooded him again, replacing the crazy woman, deadening his heart. He just didn't care, didn't feel any relief at escaping the maze. Chuck. One of the rescuers, a woman, sat across from Thomas and Teresa. The leader who'd spoken to them earlier climbed onto the bus and took a seat at the wheel, cranked up the engine. The bus started rolling forward. Just as it did, Thomas saw a flash of movement outside the window. The sore, riddled woman had gotten to her feet, was sprinting toward the front of the bus, waving her arms wildly, screaming something drowned out by the sounds of the storm. Her eyes were lit with lunacy, or terror. Thomas couldn't tell which. He leaned toward the glass of the window as she disappeared from his view up ahead. Wait! Thomas shrieked, but no one heard him. Or if they did, 
they didn't care. The driver gunned the engine. The bus lurched as it slammed into the woman's body. A thump almost jolted Thomas out of his seat as the front wheels ran over her, quickly followed by a second thump, the back wheels. Thomas looked at Teresa, saw the sickened look on her face that surely mirrored his own. Without a word, the driver kept his foot on the gas and the bus plowed forward, driving off into the rain-swept night. Chapter 61 The next hour or so was a blur of sights and sounds for Thomas. The driver drove at reckless speeds through towns and cities, the heavy rain obscuring most of the view. Lights and buildings were warped and watery, like something out of a drug-induced hallucination. At one point, people outside rushed the bus, their clothes ratty, hair matted to their heads, strange sores like those Thomas had seen on the woman covering their terrified faces. They pounded on the sides of the vehicle as if they wanted to get on, wanted to escape whatever horrible lives they were living. The bus never slowed. Teresa remained silent next to Thomas. He finally got up enough nerve to speak to the woman sitting across the aisle. What's going on? he asked, not sure how else to pose it. The woman looked over at him. Wet, black hair hung in strings around her face. Dark eyes full of sorrow. That's a very long story. The woman's voice came out much kinder than Thomas had expected, giving him hope that she truly was a friend, that all of their rescuers were friends, despite the fact that they'd run over a woman in cold blood. Please, Teresa said. Please tell us something. The woman looked back and forth between Thomas and Teresa, then let out a sigh. It'll take a while before you get your memories back, if ever. We're not scientists. We have no idea what they did to you or how they did it. Thomas's heart dropped at the thought of maybe having lost his memory forever, but he pressed on. Who are they? he asked. It started with the sun flares, the woman said her gaze growing distant. What? Teresa began, but Thomas shushed her. Just let her talk, he said to her mind. She looks like she will. Okay. The woman almost seemed in a trance as she spoke, never taking her eyes off an indistinct spot in the distance. The sun flares couldn't have been predicted. Sun flares are normal, but these were unprecedented, massive, spiking higher and higher, and once they were noticed, it was only minutes before their heat slammed into earth. First our satellites were burned out, and thousands died instantly, millions within days. Countless miles became wastelands. Then came the sickness. She paused, took a breath. As the ecosystem fell apart, it became impossible to control the sickness even to keep it in South America. The jungles were gone, but the insects weren't. People call it the flare now. It's a horrible, horrible thing. Only the richest can be treated. No one can be cured. Unless the rumors from the Andes are true. Thomas almost broke his own advice. Questions filled his mind. Horror grew in his heart. He sat and listened as the woman continued. As for you, all of you, you're just a few of millions orphaned. 
They tested thousands, chose you for the big one, the ultimate test. Everything you lived through was calculated and thought through, catalysts to study your reactions, your brain waves, your thoughts, all in an attempt to find those capable of helping us find a way to beat the flare. She paused again, pulled a string of hair behind her ear. Most of the physical effects are caused by something else. First the delusions start, then animal instincts begin to overpower the human ones. Finally it consumes them, destroys their humanity. It's all in the brain. The flare lives in their brains. It is an awful thing. Better to die than catch it. The woman broke her gaze into nothingness and focused on Thomas, then looked at Teresa, then Thomas again. We won't let them do this to children. We've sworn our lives to fighting wicked. We can't lose our humanity, no matter the end result. She folded her hands in her lap, looked down at them. You'll learn more in time. We live far in the north. We're separated from the Andes by thousands of miles. They call it the Scorch. It lies between here and there. It's centered mainly around what they used to call the equator. It's just heat and dust now, filled with savages consumed by the flare beyond help. We're trying to cross that land to find the cure. But until then, we'll fight wicked and stop the experiments and tests. She looked carefully at Thomas, then Teresa. It's our hope that you'll join us. She looked away then, gazing out her window. Thomas looked at Teresa, raised his eyebrows in question. She simply shook her head and then laid it on his shoulder and closed her eyes. I'm too tired to think about it, she said. Let's just be safe for now. Maybe we are, he replied. Maybe. He heard the soft sounds of her sleep, but he knew that sleep would be impossible for him. He felt such a raging storm of conflicting emotions, he couldn't identify any of them. Still, it was better than the dull void he'd experienced earlier. He could only sit and stare out the window, into the rain and blackness, pondering words like flare and sickness and experiment and scorch and wicked. He could only sit and hope that things might be better now than they'd been in the maze. But as he jiggled and swayed with the movements of the bus, felt Teresa's head thump against his shoulder every once in a while when they hit big bumps, heard her stir and fall back to sleep, heard the murmurs of other conversations from other gladers, his thoughts kept returning to one thing. Chuck. Two hours later, the bus stopped. They had pulled into a muddy parking lot that surrounded a nondescript building with several rows of windows. The woman and other rescuers shuffled the nineteen boys and one girl through the front door and up a flight of stairs, then into a huge dormitory with a series of bunk beds lined up along one of the walls. On the opposite side were some dressers and tables. Curtain-covered windows checkered each wall of the room. Thomas took it all in with a distant and muted wonder. He was far past being surprised or overcome by anything ever again. The place was full of color, bright yellow paint, red blankets, green curtains. After the drab grayness of the glade, 
It was as if they'd been transported to a living rainbow. Seeing it all, seeing the beds and the dressers, all made up and fresh, the sense of normalcy was almost overwhelming. Too good to be true. Minho said it best on entering their new world. I'd been shucked and gone to heaven. Thomas found it hard to feel joy, as if he'd betray Chuck by doing so. But there was something there. Something. Their bus-driving leader left the gladers in the hands of a small staff, nine or ten men and women dressed in pressed black pants and white shirts, their hair immaculate, their faces and hands clean. They were smiling. The colors, the beds, the staff. Thomas felt an impossible happiness trying to break through inside him. An enormous pit lurked in the middle of it, though. A dark depression that might never leave. Memories of Chuck and his brutal murder. His sacrifice. But despite that, despite everything, despite all the woman on the bus had told them about the world they'd re-entered, Thomas felt safe for the very first time since coming out of the box. Beds were assigned. Clothes and bathroom things were passed out. Dinner was served. Pizza. Real, bona fide, greasy fingers pizza. Thomas devoured each bite, hunger trumping everything else, the mood of contentment and relief around him palpable. Most of the gladers had remained quiet through it all, perhaps worried that speaking would make everything vanish. But there were plenty of smiles. Thomas had gotten so used to looks of despair, it was almost unsettling to see happy faces, especially when he was having such a hard time feeling it himself. Soon after eating, no one argued when they were told it was time for bed. Certainly not Thomas. He felt as if he could sleep for a month. Chapter 62 Thomas shared a bunk with Min Ho, who insisted on sleeping up top. Newt and Frypan were right next to them. The staff put Teresa up in a separate room, shuffling her away before she could even say goodbye. Thomas missed her desperately three seconds after she was gone. As Thomas was settling into the soft mattress for the night, he was interrupted. Hey, Thomas, Minho said from above him. Yeah. Thomas was so tired the word barely came out. What do you think happened to the gladers who stayed behind? Thomas hadn't thought about it. His mind had been occupied with Chuck and now Teresa. I don't know. But based on how many of us died getting here, I wouldn't like to be one of them right now. Grievers are probably swarming all over them. He couldn't believe how nonchalant his voice sounded as he said it. You think we're safe with these people? Minho asked. Thomas pondered the question for a moment. There was only one answer to hold on to. Yeah, I think we're safe. Minho said something else, but Thomas didn't hear. Exhaustion consuming him, his mind wandered to his short time in the maze, his time as a runner, and how much he'd wanted it, ever since that first night in the glade. It felt like a hundred years ago, like a dream. Murmurs of conversation floated through the room, but to Thomas they seemed to come from another world. He stared at the crossed wooden boards of the bed above him, feeling the pull of sleep. But wanting to talk to Teresa, he fought it off. How's your room? he asked in his mind. Wish you were in here. Oh, yeah? she replied. 
with all those stinky boys? Think not. Guess you're right. I think Min Ho's farted three times in the last minute. Thomas knew it was a lame attempt at a joke, but it was the best he could do. He sensed her laughing, wished he could do the same. There was a long pause. I'm really sorry about Chuck, she finally said. Thomas felt a sharp pang and closed his eyes as he sank deeper into the misery of the night. He could be so annoying, he said. He paused, thought of that night when Chuck had scared the crap out of Galley in the bathroom. But it hurts. Feels like I lost a brother. I know. I promised. Stop, Tom. What? He wanted Teresa to make him feel better, say something magic to make the pain go away. Stop with the promise stuff. Half of us made it. We all would have died if we'd stayed in the maze. But Chuck didn't make it, Thomas said. Guilt racked him because he knew for a certainty he would trade any one of the gladers in that room for Chuck. He died saving you, Teresa said. He made the choice himself. Just don't ever waste it. Thomas felt tears swell under his eyelids. One escaped and trickled down his right temple into his hair. A full minute passed without any words between them. Then he said, Teresa? Yeah? Thomas was scared to share his thoughts, but did. I want to remember you. Remember us. You know, before. Me too. Seems like we... He didn't know how to say it after all. I know. Wonder what tomorrow will be like. We'll find out in a few hours. Yeah. Well, good night. He wanted to say more, much more, but nothing came. Good night, she said, just as the lights went out. Thomas rolled over, glad it was dark so no one could see the look that had settled across his face. It wasn't a smile, exactly. Not quite a happy expression, but almost. And for now, almost was good enough. Epilogue Wicked Memorandum, date 232.1.27, time 22.45, to My Associates, from Ava Page, Chancellor, R.E. Thoughts on Maze Trials, Group A. By any reckoning, I think we'd all agree that the trials were a success. Twenty survivors, all well qualified for our planned endeavor, the responses to the variables were satisfactory and encouraging. The boys' murder and the rescue proved to be a valuable finale. We needed to shock their systems, see their responses. Honestly, I'm amazed that in the end, despite everything, we were able to collect such a large population of kids that just never gave up. Oddly enough, seeing them this way, thinking all is well, has been the hardest thing for me to observe. But there's no time for regret. For the good of our people, we will move forward. I know I have my own feelings as to who should be chosen as the leader, but I'll refrain from saying at this time so as not to influence any decisions. But to me, it's an obvious choice. We are all well aware of what's at stake. I, for one, am encouraged. Remember what the girl wrote on her arm before losing her memory? 
the one thing she chose to clasp on to. Wicked is good. The subjects will eventually recall and understand the purpose of the hard things we have done and plan to do to them. The mission of Wicked is to serve and preserve humanity, no matter the cost. We are indeed good. Please respond with your own reactions. The subjects will be allowed one full night's sleep before Stage 2 implementation. At this time, let's allow ourselves to feel hopeful. Group B's trial results were also most extraordinary. I need time to process the data, but we can touch on it in the morning. Until tomorrow, then. End of Book One This is Mark Deakins. We hope you've enjoyed this unabridged production of The Maze Runner by James Dashner. This program was produced by Dan Musselman. Text copyright 2009 by James Dashner. Production copyright 2009, Random House, Inc. All rights reserved. Audible hopes you have enjoyed this program.